Show has not started yet. Okay, now it's almost starting, but I really do have to take next week off. I think I'm going to put my fist through a wall. I've only done that once before, and the guy on the other end of the glory hole was so mad at me. Welcome to the mop-up for June 9th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 82 degrees and cloudy. According to the Gun Violence Archives, there have been 251 mass shootings this year, 251 mass shootings involving guns this year. The number one cause of death for children is no longer car accidents, it's guns. 61 million American children live at or below the poverty line. 18 million military veterans risk suicide, homelessness, domestic violence, and unemployment. 110 million Americans are exposed to what are called toxic forever chemicals in their drinking water. Late last month, the UN World Meteorological Organization issued their annual State of the Climate Report. It said our planet is heating up at unprecedented rates, and unless we do something today, our Earth will be uninhabitable much sooner than anyone ever expected. We're talking about our grandchildren. By doing nothing, we are killing our grandchildren. So what does Nancy Pelosi's Congress decide to focus on tonight in prime time? What is her Congress pouring all its political capital into? Their own safety. Not the planet's safety, not your safety, not your economic precarity, not the guns killing school children, not the children in America who are underfed, experiencing homelessness. No, not hedge fund managers like war profiteer David Rubenstein and his Carlisle group, who is currently buying up trailer parks and then gouging the tenants who live on Social Security into bankruptcy. Not the millions of Americans who can't afford rent, tuition, or a $500 court fee when they get arrested. No, Tonight, the big show leading up to the midterms, what we are all supposed to watch this evening and worry about is Mike Pence's and Nancy Pelosi's physical safety. And the Emmy goes to the January 6th Select Committee. Again, my heart goes out to those cops who protected Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. And I do think it was a coup attempt. And I do think it was a conspiracy that came from within the Republican Party. And they should all be put on trial, which begs the question. It's been a year and a half. Why haven't they been put on trial? We have a Justice Department. Can't the Democrats do better than tonight's show trial, which is what tonight is? a show trial. Today, Merrick Garland, he's our attorney general, he arrested a GOP Michigan gubernatorial candidate named Ryan Kelly on misdemeanor charges. The key part of the word misdemeanor, 
misdemeanor charges related to Ryan Kelly's involvement in the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th. Those would be misdemeanor charges for a Republican candidate. He's running for governor of Michigan. You know, if you're in Michigan, Merrick Garland, you should bring a rod and reel to Flint because I hear the fish are even smaller there. Really, the big hearings are tonight. And all Merrick Garland and his Justice Department can come up with is this. The Biden administration does not want to prosecute because they are chicken shit. Tonight is about one thing and one thing only. It is the Democrats building the political will to defeat the Republicans in November. January 6th was an insurrection. We watched it, all of us watched it unfold before our eyes on January 6th. There's nothing to discuss, prosecute. But the Biden administration and the Democrats are too chicken shit to put these people on trial. And what they're doing now is they are hiding behind the lack of political will. That's what these show trials are about. Merrick Garland will not try these insurrectionists. He will not try the Republican congressmen and women who helped the insurrectionists. And it's all because of the American people. It's our fault because we are not demanding it loud enough, right? That's what these show trials are about. Maybe if the American people watch these primetime show trials, we'll demand the Justice Department do what they're supposed to do. That would be something. Merrick Garland is chicken shit because he was appointed by Joe Biden, who is chicken shit. And he was propped up by Democrats who are chicken shit. And now it's the American people's fault that they're not prosecuting because we haven't expressed enough outrage over January 6th. Garland, Biden, Pelosi and Schumer, Steny Hoyer, Clyburn, they just don't feel the political will is there to prosecute these Republicans who are guilty of sedition. We all know what January 6th was. But the Democrats listen to their pollsters and the pollsters are telling the Democratic leadership that the American people don't care about January 6th. The polling shows it may not be politically expedient to lock these Republicans up. So in a last ditch effort, the Democrats tonight are trying to make it politically expedient by taking over primetime television and making their case to the American people. But they don't have to make a case to the American people. They, may, they need to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department and prosecute these Republicans. So what is this really? It's about staying in power. It's about the midterms. One of the questions Joe Biden, Merrick Garland, Chuck Schumer, 
Nancy Pelosi should ask is, why don't the American people care enough about January 6th? We know it was horrible. One for the history books. They'll be teaching this centuries from now on some other planet because we'll all be underwater. It was one for the history books. And most importantly, my heart, our heart, goes out to all the cops that day and their families. But the people those cops were protecting, hmm, not so much. And why is that? Why is that? We will be told tonight that the attack on the Capitol wasn't just an attack against our lawmakers. It was an attack against our democracy. Partly true. I do believe the animals who invaded the Capitol that day were trying to reverse the November elections. And they were monsters sent there by bigger monsters. But I also believe people living in the streets, unable to afford health care, living in or at the poverty level, I believe that is the real threat to our democracy. An AR-15 reducing 19 school children into a spray of mist and the American people demanding these assault weapons get banned, but Congress not budging because they don't want to upset their corporate donors, that is the real threat to our democracy. When half this country cannot come up with $400 for a medical emergency, when Americans earning $250,000 a year find themselves living paycheck to paycheck, when our water is poisoned and elementary school children are massacred, and we all know they're going to be massacred again because our government is an owned and operated subsidiary of Wall Street. I believe that is the real threat to our democracy. Nancy Pelosi has an idiot husband named Paul who is worth, conservatively speaking, $200 million. His wife, our speaker, Nancy was asked about her family's $200 million fortune. When asked about Paul Pelosi buying and trading millions of dollars in stocks in both their names, when asked, our speaker, Nancy Pelosi, said, this is a capitalist country and there's no reason lawmakers shouldn't be allowed to participate in it. When the Speaker of the House says that, then I believe the capital has already been breached by capital. I believe the looting has already taken place. I believe all that looting is a much bigger threat to our democracy than anything that happened on January 6th. What happened on January 6th was appalling, especially for the Capitol Police. And the people who attacked our Capitol Police and our Capitol should be locked away for life. And the Republicans who facilitated that insurrection should be locked away for life, if not shot for treason. And so Nancy Pelosi should be asking herself right now, why, if there was a coup attempt, 
Why, if the world saw your marble fortress violated, desecrated, your office ransacked, and these animals coming for you and our vice president with nooses, then why, why do you have to hold these hearings in prime time for the next three weeks to gin up outrage? It's been a year and a half. Shouldn't the American people already be angry? Haven't the American people seen everything already? Why do you feel we aren't sufficiently angry? Why do you feel the American people have to get it hammered into their thick skulls that there was an attack on the U.S. Capitol? What are these polls telling you, Nancy Pelosi? I suspect the polls are telling you that the American people just don't get it. You're thinking we were attacked on January 6th and the American people just don't care. Why don't you care? They ransacked my office. Why can't you see this? We saw it and we care. But not really. Maybe, maybe, just maybe Pelosi, Schumer, Steny Hoyer, Clyburn, you're not getting it. You know, the American people feel bad for the cops. We do. But honestly, stop trying to BS us. Uh, not giving a crap if people live or die is a two-way street. $55 billion for Ukraine, but not for COVID relief. I know, I know, it's Joe Manchin and cinema's fault. I know, I know, your hands are tied. Stop BSing a nation of BSers. The Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership, they do not care if we live or die. As a result, we don't care if you live or die. Your husband, Paul Pelosi, gets behind the wheel of his $100,000 Porsche, completely blotto, crashes into another car. Your husband, Paul, couldn't care less if he or anyone else lives or die. And that all happened the same month your husband and you traded $2 million of Apple and Microsoft stock. But let's preempt the midseason premieres of Chicago Med, Chicago PD, and Chicago Fire because you were attacked. This is all a big framing exercise tonight to get the Democrats reelected. The committee has hired the former president of ABC News, who made his bones producing Good Morning America and Nightline. He's known as a master storyteller, James Goldston. He has been hired by the select committee to produce tonight's extravaganza. And the Emmy goes to James Goldston for the January 6th select committee hearings. We all saw what happened. But the Democrats feel the need to bring in James Goldston, master storyteller, to make us care. I'm sorry you were attacked. I'm mostly sorry 
for the Capitol Police. I've dealt with the Capitol Police. I really like and respect them. I've also dealt with the Secret Service. I really like and respect them. I think they're reasonable. Not sure I can say the same about the people they protect. The Capitol Police kept... They kept the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership safe from dying on January 6th. But they refused to return that favor to the American people. They refused to fight for Medicare for all. When the Democrats had a filibuster-proof Senate, they had a chance to codify Roe v. Wade into law. Didn't do it. They can't even get the minimum wage bumped up to $15 an hour. But Nancy Pelosi and her husband end up with $200 million, and we're supposed to care about your physical safety? Seriously? I would hate anything to happen that's bad to Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, but empathy is a two-way street. You want protection, you give protection. The American people don't care about you, and that's why you're going prime time. You're frustrated and angry. Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership live in such a bubble of privilege, they just don't understand why the American people don't seem to get how much danger you were all in on January 6th. But Nancy, Chuck, we get it. We're glad you're okay. We are. But honestly, I have friends who died from cancer because the insurance companies you refuse to regulate wouldn't approve their treatment. I have friends who are being evicted. I have friends who committed suicide because it's too easy to get a gun. And that's your fault. Nancy, Chuck, I'm glad you're okay. Stay safe. Really, stay safe. I'm glad you're okay. And what happened on January 6th was horrible. But I used to live in San Francisco, and I know exactly who Nancy Pelosi is, what her children are and aren't, and I know who and what they care about. The city streets of Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco are covered today in human feces. Look it up. Because the homeless have no place to to go or go. Homeless people created by Nancy Pelosi and her landlord husband and children. They're all landlords. But we're supposed to feel bad about the human feces spread inside Nancy Pelosi's office. That feces was already there before January 6th. Now look, those animals should not have done what they did to your office. They should be arrested and locked up for life. And so should Nancy Pelosi. And so should her husband. And so should her son. Nancy Pelosi's kids are getting richer and richer, trading on, her, on their mother's connections to further themselves in both politics and finance. The world would be better off if Nancy Pelosi stepped aside and we frog-marched her, her husband, and the children into prison. Please go away. 
Thanks for Obamacare, Nancy Pelosi. It was almost good, especially if you own stock like your husband does in health insurance companies. Now go away. We don't like you, Nancy Pelosi. We don't like you. Your approval ratings are even lower than Donald Trump's, who is the devil. Three out of five Americans wish Nancy Pelosi would go away. I'm glad you're safe. But you know what would make you even safer, Nancy? To pick one of your multi-million dollar vineyards or estates in San Francisco or the one in Mill Valley, Mill Valley and move there. Go away. You are clinging to power that nobody really wants you to have. And that power stems from one thing. Not your charisma, not your smarts, not your caring, or your ability to get things done. No, 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 no. Your power stems from one thing. The ability to raise and distribute cash. And while you're busy raising and distributing cash, your criminal husband, Paul Pelosi, is skimming a little off the top for you and your worthless son and daughters. You are corrupt. Your husband is corrupt, and so are your children. You're dirty. So is Steny Hoyer. So is Kevin McCarthy, Joe and Jimmy Biden. And don't forget Hunter, the whole lot of you. If you won't go to prison, at least just go away. How much money do you need? Now, look, again, I am appalled by January 6th. And I have been following this story, like all of you, quite closely. It, It was a beer hall putsch. It was a coup. The Trump administration was the worst of the worst, even worse than Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Jimmy Biden. The people who voted for Donald Trump are the worst of the worst. They are, as Hillary, the deplorables. And Hillary should be locked up along with Bill and Chelsea and her failure of a husband, the hedge fund manager who failed, who failed as a hedge fund manager, lock them up. Uh, Well, but they, I'm talking about the Trump voters. They are the deplorables, all 75 million of them. And the people who stuck with the Trump White House after Biden was declared the winner, the people who worked in the Trump White House during his lame duck period, they should all be in jail right now. The lawyers who advised Trump, Rudy Giuliani, on how to steal the Electoral College, Eastman, they should all be disbarred and thrown in jail. Donald Trump, his family, Mark Meadows, Steve Bannon, all of them should be thrown in jail. Lord knows the Justice Department under Merrick Garland has had plenty of time and more importantly, evidence to do just that. But for some reason, he mysteriously slow walks the entire process. I understand the wheels of justice move slowly, but there's no question that Merrick Garland has taken all the air out of the tires attached to the wheels of justice. So again, why these primetime hearings? No question. One of the reasons is there's something seriously wrong with the Republican Party 
And the people need to know that. I'm going to watch these hearings. I'm going to be giving you up-to-date information, news stories as the hearings proceed. We're doing this show live on YouTube, and we'll be up against the hearings, and we'll be giving you updates throughout the night. The Republican Party has been hijacked by fascists who don't believe in democracy, who believe in hate for the sake of hate, who believe in cruelty to punish the weak and to punish the hyper-educated, credentialed class who makes them all feel inferior. All 75 million Americans who voted for Trump believe in violence, guns, killing, and destruction. They don't believe there's such a thing as marital rape, sexual harassment, or hate speech. This is a party that believes people should be able to do or say whatever they want, and they believe might makes right. Guns make right, and money makes right. These are people who believe the government is only there to protect us from people of color. That's it. And to bomb foreigners of color. That's it. This is a party that believes you're on your own. Get a gun, get a job, get out of my way. That's what the 75 million people who voted for Trump truly believe. Get a gun, get a job, get out of my way. They get more joy from watching you die than they do from helping you survive. And then there are the 80 million people like me who voted for Joe Biden for one reason. We all voted, or most of us voted for Joe Biden for one reason. We are we are terrified of the 75 million people who voted for Trump. That's it. Meanwhile, the five richest families get richer and richer while the rest of us fight amongst ourselves. The system is working perfectly. The system isn't broken. It's working perfectly. I hate you for hating critical race theory, and you hate me for wanting to teach it. And I'm going to make a scene at the next school board meeting as soon as I can scrounge up enough cash to fill up my tank. The system is working. Look, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. And I usually am. I hope the January 6th committee will produce roots tonight or the final or the, the final episode of Friends, where we all come together, shed a tear for our fragile democracy and realize that the Republican Party is made up of liars who are all in on the ransacking of our capital which they were. I do think this country would be better off without a Republican Party. I would like to see the Republican Party ripped apart. But let's not pretend that this is the first time our nation's capital has been looted. It's looted every day. It's being looted right now by millionaires and billionaires and corporations destroying any part of the administrative state It doesn't have anything to do with awarding them federal contracts. I've gone over this before. 30% of our economy is what government spends. Every day, corporations, multimillionaires and multibillionaires loot our hollowed halls of Congress to get those contracts, to get those tax breaks. That's, they're looting. They're looting our government. 
They take the money, they take the contracts, and they demand no congressional hearings. They demand no inspector generals. They demand no regulations. They demand that the IRS collect trillions of dollars each year so that money can go to them, but they don't want the IRS to audit them. That is a kleptocracy. We're there. We are there. And every day, our capital is being looted. What happened on January 6th was an insurrection. It was sedition. It was an attempted coup. The people who organized it, as far as I'm concerned, should all be shot for treason. I believe that is the law. If you commit treason, you, I think you're shot. But uh, we have a Justice Department. We have an Attorney General. Uh, we have the evidence. We have uh, Giuliani, Trump, Eastman. We have it all. They should have been convicted and sentenced by now. Do we really need any more evidence? What are we going to learn tonight that we haven't already seen on television and read in the tsunami of books that followed January 6th. Tonight is a framing device. They brought in a master storyteller to frame the events of January 6th. I hope it's effective. I'm, I'm sure it will be. I, I'm sure it will convince people that it was a coup, it was insurrection, it was treason. I'm sure it will convince Everybody who watches it, that the Republicans are Nazis. Unfortunately, everybody who's going to be watching it already thinks that. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. I usually am. Maybe tonight's season finale of MASH will bring 350 million Americans together. Maybe this is the Super Bowl halftime show we all need to, to shed a tear for our democracy to heal our differences and come to the collective realization that the Republicans are a mortal threat, not just to democracy, but to our planet, which all happens to be true. Well, let me speak to Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden for a second. I know you you hire pollsters who tell you what to do. Uh let me tell you what most Americans on the left, on the right, even in the center are thinking. I don't own guns. I think guns should be illegal. I think only the police and the military should be allowed to have a gun. I think most Americans believe that. I believe in laws. I believe in free speech, but I believe free speech doesn't include threatening the lives of anybody, including government officials. I believe in peace. I believe in zero violence. Zero. Zero violence. And I was disgusted by what I saw on January 6th. What I believe is what most Americans truly believe to the core of their very being. Most Americans are decent. They want to live a quiet life with purpose, love, meaning, surrounded by natural beauty and connection. 
Most Americans want that, not just for themselves, but for others. Most Americans love America because it is our home. And we want our home to be safe, clean, quiet, and joyful. And sometimes our home, despite all the problems we encounter, despite all the problems we see on the television, sometimes our home is just that. For many, many, many of us, sometimes our home is safe, clean, quiet, and joyful. And we want that for everybody. Now, having said all that, I want Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and Chuck Schumer. I want all that for them. I wish for you all. I wish for Jimmy Biden, Hunter Biden. I wish for all of them a, uh, and their family, their idiot family, a safe, clean, quiet, and joy, joyful home. But in the end, I couldn't give a rat's ass about you. There are 350 million Americans, and of those 350 million Americans, you people rank dead last on my list of people whose emotional, financial, and physical security I care about. I wish for you and your family a safe, clean, quiet, joyful life. I wish for them physical security. But we are in the process of burying 19 school children. School shootings are on the rise. The leading cause of death for American children is guns. So your safety is the least of my concerns because you are not keeping me or my children safe. I wish safety upon you. I wish you would return the favor. So January 6th is about physical safety. Let's talk about physical safety. Let's talk about the physical safety that the people conducting these hearings tonight just can't seem to provide to the American people. Joe Biden, I wish you well. I voted for you. I will vote for you again because I'm a coward. I wish you well. Uh, I don't think you mean well. I don't think you mean to do good in this world. I think you're a craven moron. I, I don't think there's much upstairs. I don't think there ever was. But I wish you well. You're my president, and I'm rooting for you. When it comes to gun violence, uh, your hands are not tied. When the FBI arrests you, and they should arrest you, then your hands will be tied. But you could put an end to gun violence today if you wanted to. But you don't want to because you're a craven moron. The president of the United States right now has at his disposal the entire administrative state, all 3.5 million employees of the executive branch, every cabinet member works for the president, and they employ 3.5 million Americans who work for one man and one man only, the president of the United States. 
Through executive order today, Joe Biden could run roughshod over the Republicans and the gun lobby. Through executive order, Joe Biden today could. Now, these are my ideas. I would assume someone who really knows what they're talking about could come up with even better ideas. But these are my ideas. Today, the president of the United States, and I talked about this last week, Joe Biden, as commander in chief, could say today that the Pentagon will no longer purchase weapons from any gun manufacturer who sells weapons to consumers. I came up with this last week. So far, nobody has been able to, pardon the expression, shoot holes in the idea. Through executive order, our commander in chief, Joe Biden, today could debar, it's called debarment, he could debar today any gun manufacturer from receiving Pentagon contracts if they also sell weapons to consumers. So if the Democrats cared at all about our physical safety, they would force our commander in chief to do just that. Tonight, when you hold these hearings and you ask us to worry about your safety, return the favor by worrying about ours. Through executive order, Joe Biden could tell every police department in America that if you take any federal dollars, you are forbidden from purchasing weapons from any gun manufacturer that also sells to consumers. Federal dollars have strings attached. They have always had strings attached. Keep your Second Amendment. Joe Biden should say, keep your Second Amendment. But this president is telling the police and the Pentagon that tax dollars will no longer be going to gun manufacturers who endanger the lives of our police, our soldiers, and our people. Today, Joe Biden could do that. He could put Smith & Wesson, Sig Sauer, Sturm, Ruger & Company, Glock and Kimber Manufacturing, and most importantly, Daniel's Defense. They made the AR-15 that turned 19 school children into mist. They all do business with the Pentagon. They all do business with the police. The President of the United States could say today, you have to make a choice. Do you want to sell to the Pentagon? Do you want to sell to the police? Or do you want to sell to American citizens? Make your choice. Do you want to sell to the police? Or do you want to sell to people who assassinate the police? Make a choice. Keep your Second Amendment. But now, as of today, there are two separate markets for assault weapons. One for consumers and one for the police and the military. The gun manufacturers must make a choice. Will it be challenged in the courts? Probably. I don't think the Supreme Court uh, would give it cert, as they say. But who cares? Fight it out. 
fight it out in public, Joe. The American people want these guns off the street. Take on this fight. That's how you win the midterms. Not putting show trials on primetime television to portray the Republicans as Nazis. We already know the Republicans are Nazis. What does that have to do with keeping me and my children safe? That's how you win elections. But you're, well, anyway. Joe Biden has an IRS, an Internal Revenue Service. Through executive order, he could remove the NRA's tax-exempt status. I know that would probably be against the law, but do it anyway. I know it's against the law for the president to use the IRS to attack his political enemies. Do it anyway, they do it anyway. How many times have our friends been audited? Take away the NRA's tax-exempt status. Break the law. If it's against the law to do it, break it. Have it struck down in court. Take the NRA to court. Break the NRA and the gun manufacturers with legal fees. You have a Justice Department. Have them spend millions and millions of dollars in legal fees. Let the gun manufacturers know they now have an enemy. And that enemy is the United States Commander-in-Chief. Look, I watched the NRA convention. You either take on these crazies full bore or surrender to their Hobbesian nightmare of a country ruled by war lords. That's what these people want. They want zero government. They want weapons, warlords. Do it through executive order, fight it out in the courts, But most importantly, by doing that, you're telling the American people that you are serious about getting gun money out of politics. And that's how you win elections. And when you win elections, you get to appoint better Supreme Court justices. But that's not who this Democratic Party is. They rather limp to the finish line. The Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, is suing to break up the NRA because it's chartered in the state of New York. The NRA has declared bankruptcy because of the Attorney General of New York. Where the F is Merrick Garland? Why is Merrick Garland and our President's Justice Department, why are they not assisting Letitia James in the destruction of the NRA. Why isn't the president ordering his Federal Trade Commission, his Security Exchange Commission, and his Federal Elections Commission to investigate how the top five gun manufacturers, they are Smith & Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm Ruger & Company, Glock & Kimber Manufacturing, and don't forget Daniel's Defense, why aren't they looking into how these companies market illegally to teenagers, how they illegally hand over campaign cash to politicians, and how they manipulate share price after every mass shooting. It has been said a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Well, indict 
these gun manufacturers ruin their bottom line with legal fees. The president could destroy the National Rifle Association tomorrow. And let's be honest about the National Rifle Association. It is nothing more than a lightning rod. Wayne LaPierre is paid millions of dollars each year to take the blame for every mass shooting. The NRA is a front organization for Smith & Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm, Ruger & Company, Glock, and Kimber Manufacturing, and don't forget Daniel's Defense. That's who pays Wayne LaPierre's salary. He is paid to take the blame for every mass shooting. It is Wayne LaPierre that has to go into hiding after every mass shooting. Wayne LaPierre goes into hiding. He goes on a boat and he leaves America because he's scared. Apparently a gun, the guy who says guns will keep you safe, needs a boat to keep himself safe. He is paid to take the blame for every mass shooting. But it's really the fault of the CEOs of Smith & Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm Ruger & Company, Glock and Kimber Manufacturing, and of course, Daniel's Defense. Why are we not name-checking their CEOs? Why isn't the president bringing them into the Oval Office and jawboning them? The Labor Department could issue an order demanding that no state, local, or federal pension fund can invest in Smith Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm Ruger and Company, Glock and Kimber Manufacturing, and don't forget Daniel's defense. Fight. We need a president, we need a Democratic Party who wants to destroy the National Rifle Association, who wants the gun manufacturers to make a choice. You either sell to our military and police or you sell to consumers. Keep your second amendment. We need a president and a democratic party that wants to keep American children safe from gun violence as much as the gun manufacturers want to sell more and more assault weapons that gets our children killed. Let's go to the courts. Let's fight it out in the courts. And when you fight it out in the courts, when you take on the NRA and the gun manufacturers, you win elections. You know how you lose elections, Joe Biden? When you send Matthew McConaughey out in front of the nation as the face for your policy on assault weapons. Seriously, Matthew McConaughey? He's not even a Democrat. And you get him pounding the presidential podium? It was unseemly. If the president of the United States needs Matthew McConaughey to make his case for an assault weapons ban, then Joe Biden, you've already lost before you even begun. Nothing says I have no idea how, nor do I care about tapping in to the political will for meaningful gun reform than sending Matthew McConaughey out there to make the case for me. 
Mr. President, we already have an actor in the White House, you. That's how you win elections, by making the case for an assault weapons ban, not for sending Matthew McConaughey, who is an idiot, good actor, sells a good Lincoln Continental. He should not be the face for the Democratic Party's assault weapons ban. God damn it. God damn it. I mean, Matthew McConaughey? I, I was watching that with my mother last night. I thought I was dreaming. I thought, I thought, oh, this is a scene from a movie, a bad movie. Chuck Schumer should fire the parliamentarian and get rid of the filibuster. If Manchin and Cinema won't get behind it, figure out a way to destroy them. Because they're destroying this country. If it's true that Manchin and Cinema are keeping us from a new Green Deal, Build Back Better, uh, uh, civil rights, new civil rights legislation regarding voting, if they are that destructive, destroy them. Politically destroy them. Politics is a blood sport. Politicians get destroyed all the time. Destroy mansion and cinema. Nothing is getting done in the Senate. You say because of them. Destroy them. They're destroying the planet. Destroy them politically. Joe Manchin, Mr. President, should be in prison. It is against the law to get rich off coal while you are chairing one of the committees that regulates coal. Get him locked up and lock up his idiot daughter. We know while she was working for Big Pharma, she committed the crime of price fixing. She was overcharging, price gouging, sick people who needed an EpiPen lock her up. It has been said that Democrats fall in love while Republicans get in line. I'm not in love with any Democrats. It's time for the Democrats to do what the Republicans do and get in line. I have a friend, a congressperson, and he tells me he loves Nancy Pelosi even though she stands against everything he stands for, to which I tell him, stop falling in love. Get the Democrats to fall in line, and you do that through threats. That's how you win elections, by getting your party in line. You either vote for Build Back Better, or I will destroy you. And that's how you win elections by locking up the criminals in the Republican Party and your own party. But we have a governing class that insists it's bad precedent to start locking up your political opponents. See, after Watergate, in which a huge chunk of the Nixon White House actually went to prison, a decision was made to never do that again. In 2001, Caroline Kennedy gave Gerald Ford a Profile in Courage Award for pardoning Richard Nixon. 
In a ceremony at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum, the Profile and Courage Award went to Gerald Ford, and it read, President Gerald Ford is being honored for his courage in making a controversial decision of conscience to pardon former President Richard M. Nixon. On September 8, 1974, President Ford granted a full, free, and absolute pardon to former President Richard Nixon. That's what the Kennedy family decides is a profile in courage. Gerald Ford pardoning Nixon. Let's forget about the law. Let's come together. And so that was in 2001. We we came together, or at least the Democrats came together and just did whatever the GOP wanted. And the Democrats, in the name of unity, that year, they greenlit two illegal wars and the went on to greenlight the Patriot Act because it's a profile in courage to ignore the laws in the name of unity. Don't lock up Richard Nixon. It took courage not to lock up Richard Nixon. Gerald Ford also served on the Warren Commission looking into the assassination of Caroline Kennedy's father. Perhaps Gerald Ford deserves another Profile in Courage Award for making the decision of conscience not to investigate who really killed your dad. Are we a nation of laws? On the surface, we purport to be. There are 2.5 million Americans behind bars for, we're told, violating these laws. But this nation of laws somehow doesn't seem to put the 2.5 million Americans behind bars on trial. We don't have trials. Most of the 2.5 million Americans behind bars never went to trial. They plea out to save the government time and money. They are bullied into pleading guilty to a lesser charge. The dirty, dark secret about our prisons is most of these men and women never had a trial. Prosecutors sell plea bargaining to the state by saying it saves us all time and money. And that extends all the way up to the ruling class. We save time and money by never putting the ruling class on trial. If you're guilty of inside trading, you pay a multi-billion dollar fine, go on a vacation for a few years, come back and buy the New York Mets. If you're guilty of sexual assault, you resign your position of senator from Minnesota, have all your Harvard cronies circle the wagon, rewrite history and make it look like you were unfairly railroaded out of office and you become a professional martyr with your own podcasts, book deal and lecture series. In case I'm being too cryptic, I'm talking about Al Franken, who is guilty of sexual assault. Former Senator uh, Al Franken, who is guilty of sexual assault. And if he'd like to challenge me in court, I can present a list of all the women he was too chicken shit to face in an ethics hearing. He quit before the ethics hearing because he was too chicken shit to face the women he sexually assaulted. And I know one of them. But 
They say it's not good for the republic if we engage in a never-ending series of political show trials where the government in charge uses its Justice Department to punish the previous government in charge. Well, one way to prevent an endless cycle of criminal prosecutions is to start electing, to start appointing men and women who aren't criminals. George Bush, criminal. Both George Bushes, criminal. Dick Cheney, criminal. And his daughter is the star of tonight's hearings? Are you effing kidding me? Barack Obama, with his extrajudicial assassinations of American citizens overseas? Criminal. Joe Biden, criminal. Jimmy Biden, criminal. Hunter Biden, criminal. Nancy Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, Paul Pelosi Jr., Christine Pelosi, they're all criminal. Seriously, do you really care if these people go to prison? These people aren't my parents, my children, or my friends. They work for me. And they all do a piss poor job and they're ripping me off. They're making themselves rich while doing a piss poor job on my dime. This past month, Nancy Pelosi traded $2 million worth of shares in Apple and Microsoft. The Speaker of the House is privy, not just to the inner workings of corporations, Congress regulates through hearings these corporations. She's also privy to how the tax code will be written next year. And she's privy to which corporations will be getting government contracts and which corporations won't be. As I often say, one third of our economy is what the government spends. The House of Representatives controls the purse strings, budget bills, tax code comes out of the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi runs the House of Representatives. When it comes to corporations, the House of Representatives picks the winners and losers. That's why Paul Pelosi is worth $200 million. The government is one third of our economy. Government contracts pick the winners and they pick the losers. Elon Musk gets the multi-billion dollar contract to fly to the moon. That means Jeff Bezos didn't. Microsoft got the Pentagon's multi-billion dollar contract to provide cloud computing to our military. That meant Jeff Bezos didn't. And what did the homunculus Jeff Bezos do when he lost both those multi-billion dollar government contractors, contracts? Like the whiny little bitch that Jeff Bezos is, he unleashes an army of lawyers and lobbyists to forge some sort of compromise so that he can get some of those government contracts, too. He's going to get a piece of the cloud computing. He's going to get a piece of the moon landing. One third of Americans are underbanked. The post office, 
once offered banking to the underbanked. But the big banks put an end to that because they said they couldn't compete with the post office. So nearly one third of Americans remain underbanked and they must rely on payday loans who charge exorbitant, usurious fees. Many of these payday loan companies are owned by the big banks. So the government picked the winner, the big banks, and they picked the loser, the American people. Nancy Pelosi knows this, and her husband is trading on inside information. Even if Paul Pelosi was worth $200 million all by himself, which is impossible, it's still the appearance of financial impropriety. And appearance of financial impropriety, the proximity of financial impropriety, impropriety is in and of itself criminal. You can build a case solely on the appearance of financial impropriety with no other evidence than there, that there is an appearance of financial impropriety that happens to coincide with the uh, bilious Paul Pelosi's $200 million net worth. Nancy Pelosi's husband got rich while she was working for the government. Joe Biden's family, his son, Jimmy, his brother, got rich while Joe was working for the government. It doesn't look right because it isn't. It is illegal. Locking up our leaders isn't about prosecuting our political enemies. It's about enforcing the laws that are already on the books. We don't need new laws and we don't need more hearings. We need a justice department. We need a fully funded internal revenue service, a functioning federal trade commission to enforce the laws that are already on the books. Anyone who says it's not good for the country to prosecute government officials, anyone who says that is a criminal. People say, well, if you arrest Trump, then you must arrest Biden. If you arrest Don Jr., then you must arrest Hunter. If you arrest Joe Biden's brother, Jimmy, then you have to arrest Jared and Ivanka. And then if you arrest them, you have to arrest Nancy and Pelosi and Christine Pelosi and Paul Pelosi Jr. When does it all end? I'll tell you when it all ends. When criminals stop running for office and taking jobs in our government, that's when. I want every government official, every senator, congressperson, president, vice president, cabinet official to feel like an African-American driving a country road late at night in Alabama with a police light in the rearview mirror. That is how you change the culture in Washington. We will be right back. Thank you. 
neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been Yes, I can hear you. We're having some technical problems. Well, we're okay. The sovereignty All of right. citizenship, Thank you. Sorry. the work of democracy is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night. We're having one of those days, and this is why I'm probably going to take next week off. Uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Cheryl Cashin, Professor, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Do you see any buttons that say turn on video? Uh there, unable to start video, it says. Okay. David, the solution is you open the participants list, and there's more options in there for the yeah, individual. Yeah, I, I, I uh, saw panels. that in the one sheet. Okay. I'm going to in, attendees, right? Uh, nope. Attendees are the people that are not panelists. You want to be in the panelists. Right. Okay. And Ooh. I see Cheryl. And I see more. I see pin, make host, co-host, change role to attend, rename. Nothing about the video. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, uh, boy, I am sorry, Professor. I think what we're going to do is we'll do the interview through audio. And, Dan, if you could check in with hand yep, i'll keep working on it yeah i have a feeling we're, we're probably gonna have to restart take a break and restart the show in order to do this right so but let, let's continue uh i'm sorry professor uh professor can you hear me yeah can you hear me yes you sound great professor Sh what should i call you can call me cheryl what should i call you then call me professor if you're not using <laughs> professor i'll take it no what what do your guests call you should i call you mr feldman or david uh, or what, what? just call me david please let me introduce okay. you professor cheryl cashin okay. is professor of law at georgetown university where she teaches constitutional law race and american law 
She is an active member of the Poverty and Race Research Action Council, written commentaries for The Washington Post, Salon, The Root, and other media, and she is a contributing editor for Politico. Professor Cashin writes about race relations and inequality in America, and she is the author of Loving Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy, Place Not Race, The Failures of Integration and White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding, and Segregation in the Age of Inequality. Welcome, Professor Cheryl Cashin. This, uh, we're usually better than this. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I hope you come back and we can see you. Let's talk about uh, the caste system here in America. We do have a, a caste system. And how was that borne out uh, in in the Buffalo shooting and in the Valde, the 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 children uh, were people of color. They were that city is victimized by ICE. ICE after the shooting announced a brief moratorium on raiding the homes of those people, but they live under the threat of uh, ICE on a daily basis in Valde. Describe if you could the 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 caste system that we have here in the United States, please. Okay, so I'm going to use the Buffalo example because I actually researched the, the, the segregation patterns there. I really don't know uh, specifics about Uvalde, but okay. Right. So uh, a guy wants to, in his 180-odd-page uh, manifesto, the Buffalo gunman says he wanted to kill as many black people as possible, um, uh, it was fairly easy for him to just go online and research, um, intensely segregated, uh, very black, uh, census tracts in his state. He drove 200 miles to one of the blackest, uh, neighborhoods, 85% of black people in Buffalo live east of main street. Most whites live on the opposite side of main street. That kind of intense uh, separation or isolation of groups doesn't happen naturally. Um, we have, a, I say this in my book, I, I give the history, but we have basically what happened is uh, about 6 million black people moved to, to leave the South. They call it the Great Migration. Um, it started in the 19 teens. The dominant response to black people moving in large numbers was to contain them through intentional policies. But the biggest one, redlining their neighborhoods, cutting them off from the kind of resources that were regularly invested in white neighborhoods, zoning, discrim uh, intentional location of black occupied uh, public housing um on the black side of town, which is created through zoning. And, you know, the government just over time has doubled down on those borders. Um, and so you fast forward today, eight decades since the beginning of the Great Migration, it's very easy um, in a lot of cities to find, you know, pockets of intense concentration of black and brown people. Um, and and the thing that also made it easy for the shooter was um, there was only one grocery store on the black side of town. Right. 
And, and so it was filled with black people all shopping at the same place, which th- this is the other aspect of the caste system. One, it takes boundaries. Two, um, government tends to overinvest in affluent areas, which happen to be very white, and disinvest in concentrated black and brown neighborhoods, right? So you had a history of d- d- disinvestment in East Buffalo, only one grocery store, uh, an easy place to target. Um, so that's the system. The, the third aspect of it, so I've said boundary maintenance, uh, opportunity hoarding, overinvestment in some places, disinvestment in other places. And the third aspect of it is surveillance. Um, black neighborhoods tend to get a different kind of policing than white neighborhoods. Um, and black bodies are often surveilled. You know, think of Mar- Aubrey. He gets shot for going jogging in right. the wrong neighborhood. Dan, it was in Georgia. Yeah. yeah. The caste system, when we think of a caste system, we think of India. Is that where the caste system started? And was it, how did the caste system in India start? Was it for economic reasons? Because we do know that the idea of race was purely for economic reasons. There would be no right. black so- people had it not been for the... Uh, profitability of slavery. Okay, so I'm not an expert on India, but what I'll say is um, almost every country has hierarchies, right? What you might call a caste system, what I'm an expert on is American caste. And so, you know, pre-civil rights America, we had a caste system that was based exclusively on race, right? Particularly in the South where I'm from, I'm from Alabama. Post-civil rights America, my argument is we have a, in, the caste system is at the intersection of your zip code, where you live, your socioeconomic status, and your race, right? And, um, you know, it, it is the case that if you have money um, and you're black or brown, more than likely you can negotiate any discrimination you might encounter and and buy your way into a neighborhood that's nice, you know, if you want to go there. Um, but lots of people of all colors are constrained in where they can get to. And, what, you know, a caste system, there's some neighborhoods where uh, you have an abundance of everything, great schools, uh, jobs, great transportation, beautiful infrastructure. And if you are able to live there, it's like riding the up escalator, right? right. There are other neighborhoods where uh, everything I just talked about, the schools are crappy, the teachers there are not very, are not particularly good or not particularly experienced. Um, you face gun violence, uh, you know, you can't, you have one grocery store, you're far away from the jobs and don't have public transportation to get there. So it's like riding the down escalator, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's residential caste. And we're all trapped in it. I just talked about the extremes. But what a lot of people don't realize is that if you look at any affluent, low poverty neighborhood, just about everybody, the majority of people are excluded from that neighborhood because they can't afford to buy a million dollar house to get there. But everybody who's excluded 
from the high opportunity places are subsidizing those places, you know, subsidizing their golden infrastructure with their gas taxes, with their, you know, income taxes. Right. Um, And, you know, basically my argument is that all neighborhoods deserve their fair share of public and private investment so that opportunity is broadly distributed in this country. The the caste system, we also have apartheid, at least our public schools. Would you agree that public schools in America resemble an apartheid state? Well, um, I, I cannot. There are plenty of schools that I would use that label for. Not every all of them are that way, but it is. Is the case that the average existence for a black or brown child in America today is one where in public school is one where a majority of their peers are are racial minorities and at least half of their peers are poor Um, and something like. 40% of black kids go to what I would call an apartheid school where almost everybody is black or brown and you have like 80, 90%, sometimes 100% of the kids are poor. Those kinds of schools, and, and, you know, no matter what the race of the kids, if you're in a school where nearly everybody is poor, that's an apartheid situation. and, And I can guarantee you, you're not getting the best uh, you're not getting the best teachers, right? right. You're not getting um, stimulating and, and, and challenging courses. You're probably being taught to the test. Um, and everything you get, you know, some you may, you probably uh, don't have the quality of books, computers, all, all of those things, um, no matter how hard you work. And also your school is probably, um, if it's a high school, deemed... Um, unworthy by, you know, selective colleges, right? Even if you're like the, the top student at your school, your, your, your school is looked down upon, right? right. So um, it's, it's much harder to access uh, opportunity uh, if you're attending an apartheid school. We're talking with uh, Professor Cashin, and I want your, you teach law, so I wanted to ask you, I know nothing Plessy versus Ferguson said separate but equal that that the schools right. had to be could had to be separate but they had to be equal. Brown v. Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and said no, not separate but equal, integrated. Now sixty some odd years later, we're not separate but equal. We're not. Se- we're, we're, we're segregated and we're not even living up to the standards set by Plessy versus Ferguson, are we? I said the exact same thing in my book. So you, you know a lot, actually. I, 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 you know, honestly, I haven't read the, I haven't read the book. I said, but but, you're, you're, but I, I said the exact same thing in one sentence. We're not even living up to Plessy, right? Right. Um, what we have is separate and unequal, right? And um, there which are a book lot did of you? People, I just had a curiosity. Which book did you write that in? The the latest one. Oh, okay, I, black, I, I white space black hood. Right, right. 
I had a chapter on schools, and I say that we're not even living up to Plessy, right? Right. Um, Good. Uh, that makes me really. It doesn't make me happy right. that we're not living up to Plessy. It just makes me happy that even an idiot like me knows that. Go ahead. I don't I'm know sorry. why you're calling yourself an idiot, but anyway, you're speaking some truth here. So, and the, you know, the thing that I really want to emphasize with. Uh, your audience is, um, I mean, this is particularly true for black and brown kids trapped in high poverty schools, but increasingly a lot of white people find themselves in very impoverished situations and um, their schools aren't so great either. Um, So, you know, uh, yeah, I think anybody who's honest with themselves, um, you can just get in the car and drive and see the dramatic differences across neighborhoods. Right. And schools. Right. So what do we do about this? So I, I, I offer some hopeful stories of places that are, are, first of all, one of my favorite examples is Louisville, Kentucky, right? Louisville, Kentucky um, used to be hyper segregated in its in its neighborhoods. Now it's moderately segregated. Well, what what changed in Louisville? Um, they were they integrated their schools the same time a lot of other places did under a court order. But even after the court order was lifted, um, they developed this sort of civic infrastructure or civic culture in which people kind of liked their integrated schools and wanted to hold on to them. And what happened over time is um, as people had, people had more choice in what neighborhoods to live in because there were no apartheid schools, right? There were no extremes, you know, so people had more choice. And over time um, the neighborhoods became less segregated. So part of what is needed is, um, you know, there's more demand for integrated school and neighborhoods than there are um, places to fill that demand. But it takes a lot of kind of grassroots civic mobilization where people will show up at, at, you know, for example, school board meetings and say, you know, I really would like um, less extremes. I would like school integration. Or if you're not, if that's not your tip and you're not particularly enthusiastic about that, I would support spending more money, uh, giving, you know, smaller class sizes sizes to kids in apartheid schools, you know, one or the other. Right. More equity in spending. We're talking with Cheryl Cashin, Professor Cheryl Cashin. She teaches constitutional law, civil rights and social justice at Georgetown. Her new book, White Space. Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality. I would love you to come back. We're we're experiencing two technical problems at the same time. We can't uh, run our video and my one sheet is down. So I have no, all the notes I prepared have been erased. It's one of those days. Are, you must be. T- you do need a week off. I do. I do need a week off. I haven't had a week off since COVID, and even before. Uh, 
I know you're probably tired of talking about this, but you were law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Who was Thurgood Marshall? Why did Johnson pick him, right? Yes. Why did Johnson Johnson pick him? Well, Thurgood Marshall had... um, he wasn't just he, he the first African American to serve no, on the Supreme Court. He was he was, he was a giant uh, before he was named to the bench. He was the chief civil rights lawyer, the guy who named who argued not just Brown v. Board of Education, but he argued uh, something like thirty two cases before the Supreme Court and one twenty nine of them, and uh, many of the cases that he won were uh, struck down key planks in the regime of Jim Crow. So he, you know, it was him and his whole team, but, you know, he was probably one of the most influential lawyers in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, that's why Johnson named him. Uh, Would Would the closest analog we have to Thurgood Marshall be Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was uh, heavily responsible for making the equality, the equality guarantee in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, means something for women. So she's she's heavily associated with women gaining equality through the Constitution. Um, She didn't argue as many cases. Right. but yeah, yeah. In she's, terms of in um, terms of a radical, when it was a radical appointment on Bill Clinton's behalf, he was appointing somebody. No, I, I, well, by the I, I I would say that when Thurgood Marshall was nominated, that may have been perceived as radical. But oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been on the Court of Appeals for a long time, and by the, when she was named to the Supreme Court. The things she had fought for were no longer radical, you know, right. I mean, That's true. just equality. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't like a, a, a shocking appointment or anything like that. Right. You clerked for Supreme Court mm. Justice Thurgood Marshall. Uh, yes. What is it? What is it like to be a and then we'll wrap it up. And I know this is you're tired of talking about this, but. What is it like to be a Supreme Court, uh, a law clerk for the Supreme Court? What are the powers that a law clerk, law clerk has? And okay, what was Thurgood? So, um, how would you describe working for Thurgood Marshall? It it was the best year of my life before I got married and had children, bar none. And I never get tired of talking about Thurgood Marshall. I adore him. Um, as a person um, and revered him, you know, for, for, for his life, life's work. And in fact, I got to go to desegregated or integrated schools for 12 years in Huntsville, Alabama because of his work. So, but, you know, working as a Supreme court clerk, well, I have to, I was uh, with justice Marshall in his last active year on the court and just being in his presence and hearing all his stories uh, was tremendous. That in itself was a, a glorious experience. But being a clerk, uh, you know, it's 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 an amazing 
um, insular place, right? Uh, each justice has something like four, yeah, four clerks, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to, but I don't want to overstate the role right. of the clerk. After all, you know, the, the, the ju- each justice is the one who decides what he or she wants to say. Clerks help them draft their opinion, their, you know, that leaked opinion. A lot of people read that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure Justice Alito um, um, uh, had a lot of help from clerks, but it, it reflected him. So, you know, a lot of law clerks, um, I suppose, when I was there to, you know, think a lot of themselves. Right. But, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're basically helping the justice do their work, but it's heady. It's right. absolutely heady. You know, you see the internal workings. Um, you get to go to every oral argument. It's it is heady stuff. Right. I really wish you uh, will come back. There's so much I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about busing, but I also want to ask you about Huntsville because we just had Fred Hayes on the show, astronaut from Apollo 13, and mm-hmm. I'm a, an Apollo freak. Huntsville, mm-hmm. I just want to ask you about Huntsville for a second. That's where all the booster rockets are made. Uh, Absolutely. Well, that's that's I don't know if they're still made there, but the booster rockets that put the man on the moon were tested and and, and developed in Huntsville. Werner von Braun and all those rocket scientists. That's and what that was our uh, was in Huntsville's claim to fame. Yes. So mm-hmm. I I think I read somewhere and I think. Uh, and I want to ask you about Loving, which was a great movie. But I, I read somewhere that Huntsville, Alabama, had ex-Nazis who the OSS stole from from the Russians. We got our hands on these Nazis to build our rockets. Is it true that there was like a, a, a section of Huntsville that was filled with ex-Nazis? working for the space uh, program? That, this is news this is utter news to me okay. i don't I'm, I'm not aware <laughs> just, of that <laughs> i always thought it would make a great you movie me out of that one <laughs> I, I had heard that there were just you know families of ex-nazis living in huntsville alabama in the 60s at the height of the civil rights movement in huntsville alabama and i thought that's a that's a movie to uh, well yeah, yeah. But, but let's talk Ron, about busing a german scientist uh, uh, did and and other German scientists did come to Huntsville. I'm not aware of any of them being ex Nazis. I just I have no knowledge on that. Um, okay. Uh, last question about I was bust. I was bust to Dwight Morrow High mm-hmm. School. Best thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened uh, was being bust. Our vice president famously said to Joe Biden, that little girl was me during the debate. Do you remember that? Yeah. When she said, you know, you fought busing. Well, I was bust. And and when you when you were speaking out against busing, you were speaking. That little girl was me. I was being bust. What she didn't say was that she supports busing. I think if you asked our vice president today, do you support busing, she would say, well, not now. Does busing still exist? Is there still court-ordered busing? And is there any way to get the American people, give the American people an appetite for busing again? Or did they never had it? Um, but. 
Well, I I am not aware of widespread. I mean, the busing. There are kids who get on a bus every day. I see the yellow buses. I live in D.C. I see the yellow buses in in uh, Louisville, which I talked about. Um, there is some busing, but you know, you're using it. In how long was your 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 commute when you were bused? How how long were you on that bus? David, 20 when minutes. You were in school. 20 minutes. Okay. All right. So that's not a lot, right? Um, I mean, it's not as if you were like, you know, 40 minutes or 45 minutes. I think there are lots of kids who have, you know, 20 minute bus rides. My kids used to ride the bus. Um, so there's busing in that sense. Is there court ordered busing? to achieve school integration. There's not that much, you know, the, in the nineties, the Supreme court basically sent the message. It's time for courts to get out of the business of policing school desegregation. Let lo- local school districts decide how to run their school systems. But, you know, the main way that I believe <laughs> the districts that are still trying to achieve di- uh, integration they're doing like magnet programs or changing the, the school uh, attendance boundaries, things like that, because there isn't a lot of appetite among parents to have their kids on a bus for a long time. Right. right. Um, so we need to keep innovating and trying. Right. I hope you come back uh, and keep coming back. Professor Cheryl D. Cashin teaches civil rights and discrimination, housing law at Georgetown Law. Her new book, please go buy the book. I haven't read it yet, to be honest with you. It is called White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality. It's published by, oh, it was pu- it's published by Beacon, correct? Right. Right. I would love you to come back when my world is not falling apart around me. <laughs> okay. Let's, we'll try for that. <laughs> Thank you. How do people contact you? How do, how do people huh? contact you? Well, you can find me through uh, CherylCashin.com or on Twitter or, or Facebook or uh, Instagram. Great. Thank you so much. And sorry about uh, the screw ups today. I we're usually no not, it's, it usually doesn't go this way. Thank you, Professor Cashin. Thank you, and have a great day. Well, I don't think that's possible, but <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, uh, we all need to try. It's it's tough times right now. I know, I know. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com, and it is time for. A week off. Uh, everything is crashed. Uh, I have a script. I have a schedule that has been erased. Dan, are you aware that I cannot see my script? So the video situation has been fixed. Scott was on video a few minutes ago, and the one sheet just scrolled down. I just pasted an image in there to uh, show how I fixed the options. So, so it's, it's working. Yeah, it's all there. It's all there. I love you. And thank everybody. 
thank the crew. Thank we'll have a a post mortem, and we will thank everybody who came through for me. I appreciate it. Oh, there it is. There, yeah, there. There it is. Okay, my listeners, please indulge me for one minute because we. Okay, Scott. Uh, let me see if I can do this. Let me see if I can turn on his video. Uh, ask Alt. Oh, I see. Sorry. Hang on. Well, there's Scott. Hello. Okay. Well, I'll come back to learning. I guess now's not the best time to learn new technology in the middle of a live turn show. Turn this into a, a live training session. Yeah. Uh I need a week off, Scott. I've uh, COVID started more than two years ago, and we started doing the lot <laughs> the show live through Zoom and then on YouTube, and I never stopped. And uh, and I've hit a wall. And- you know, people's forgiveness for technical errors has ballooned in just the past year or two because everybody has them. It's a part of life now. It's it's no big deal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I can but, understand you being frazzled by the technology, but it's very common now, and nobody really bats an eye at it. But suppose I'm looking for a reason to get angry. Suppose I don't have enough. If you want a reason to get, boy, if you want a reason to get angry, I got a list. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you want to start? Where All do right. you want to start? Scott Dickers is the founder of The Onion and the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 books, including How to Write Funny. He is the recipient of the Thurber Prize for American Humor, a Peabody, and too many Webby Awards to count. He can be seen, he can be seen on his weekly comedy show, Scott Dickers Around. Welcome to the show, Scott Dickers. I finally get to meet you. Thank you, David. It's very nice to meet you as well. I, I love your voice. I've listened to your show in the past. I've never seen it, but I've listened to it. And you have a voice like, uh, the best way I can describe it is a sane Mark Levin. Thank you. A sane Mark Levin. I'll take that as a compliment. I need compliments yeah. today. The onion, the onion, the onion, the onion, the onion. <laughs> yeah. Now. Yeah. In my lifetime, there have been four seminal magazines that shaped a generation of comedy writers. They Mad are, Magazine? Yes. National Lampoon? Yes. Spy Magazine? Yes. And The Onion? And The Onion. He, and yeah, why great. is The Onion? I, I, why I is the so honored to be in that company. You can't even imagine because I grew up on Mad and I worshipped Spy. I came to the Lampoon late, but I see the genius in it now. Uh, so, yeah, to even be mentioned in the same breath as those publications is, uh, is great. The difference is The Onion never ran out of steam. It, ke- it keeps going. It keeps going. Gets better and better. Mad Magazine, Mad Magazine was always great. But you outgrew it. It was, it was for a, although I was always, when my kids got it, I would like, oh, this is pretty good. National <laughs> Lampoon ran out of steam. Yeah. Spy yeah. 
reinvented spy journalism. I was uh, the candle that burned so brightly and only uh, half as long. So as let's, Roy Batty. let's start, if you don't mind, and I'd love you to keep coming back because you write so well about something that's really important. But let's talk about The Onion. Where was The Onion founded? Who founded it? It used to be, a, it was a flyer for what, a pizza joint. You're, you're very close. Yeah, it actually started as a 17 by 11 sheet of paper with a calendar on it. And it had cartoons and ads around the border, the rim. And a cartoonist friend of mine, James Sturm, and this guy, Tim Keck, made like 200 bucks each on this thing. And Tim came from a newspaper family and he partnered with this guy named Chris Johnson after creating that 11 by 17 sheet of paper. What year are we talking about? Me. What year? This is 1988. 1988. 1988. He, was, he came to me and he was going to have me do my cartoons. Around and what there city are we talking about? This is Madison, Wisconsin. Right. Okay. And these are all University of Wisconsin dropouts that we're talking about. I think every single person that I've mentioned dropped out of school there. And so Tim had the idea that, well, we should just do a weekly newspaper. And they, Tim and Chris were the official founders and owners. They wanted me involved. So I became involved from issue one, drawing a bunch of different comic strips, coming up with ideas. And then after one year of, you know, making our printing costs every month by selling local advertising, they sold it to me and went off to Brazil. And later on, they went off to found other newspapers. Tim founded The Stranger in Seattle. And Chris went on to found the weekly alibi in New, in New Mexico, Albuquerque. And, but I was sitting there, owner editor of this new one-year-old newspaper and was tasked with filling all the pages, building a staff. And uh, that was it. I had a business partner who sold the ads and dealt with the money. My job was to try to make it funny. So it was a lot like a rock band, I guess you could say, because it was very organic the way that people in town who I knew, who I thought were kind of funny, I would go and I would solicit them. This guy, Todd Hansen worked at the grocery store and would crack up customers in line. And um, then he washed dishes at another restaurant. He'd always move job to job. You could never find him. But everybody knew he's one of the funniest people in town. He'd been in this arc improv theater troupe where Chris Farley started, where Brian Stack was, and Joan Cusack was in that. And he was a brilliant performer, but he was also just a brilliant comic mind. One example, there are a few other people like that. Richard Dom was a guy in the dorm. I know Richard Dom. Yeah. yeah. He came to us with a, a submission of an article in year two and it was pretty funny. So I was like, okay, you're hired. Let's see what you can do. And then that's how it, it sort of snowballed as people joined on and you develop this team and you develop this kind of group voice. And it all started with the fact that we had to print on newsprint because that was the cheapest way to print. We, there was we no internet back then, right? No internet. You know, I was inspired by National Lampoon and Mad and of course Spy to do a beautiful full color magazine. That's how humor was typically delivered in print in those days, periodical humor, but we couldn't afford that. So because it was a newspaper, it became a newspaper parody. And so we would put funny 
fake front page stories on the paper, fake news stories. We'd make up silly characters. And um, it took us a few years to kind of figure out what our voice was and to really home in on that AP style parody of being really straight and just delivering news. But then that was just a vehicle for delivering anything we wanted to talk about. Parameters and limits are the best thing in comedy. When you basically want to joke about whatever's on your mind, if you have a really strict format, it's nothing better than that because you know kind of where to start, how it's shaped, what it looks like, and you just plug in your, your subtext and you're good to go. And so about eight years in, maybe seven or eight, yeah, the internet was this new thing that came along and we were already doing all this writing for this weekly newspaper. It was doing pretty well. You know, we were starting to make a little more money selling ads and distributing the newspaper to other cities besides Madison. We started distributing in Boulder, Colorado and Chicago and Milwaukee. You know, it's very humble little expansion. And then we, one of our tech guys was like, Oh, you should do a website. And I'm like, what's a website. And he said, well, just let me handle it. I'll take all the stuff and I'll put it on a website. We, however, we did have to come up with $400 to get the domain, theonion.com. Not because somebody else owned it, but because that's how much it costs to get a domain in 1995, $400. Really? And my business partner didn't want to do it. He's like, what the, what the hell is this uh, internet website? He couldn't justify the expense. It eventually convinced him to do it and we went online and then suddenly our potential audience increased by like a billion fold. And that really helped us. Our print still remained like our main thing for the next maybe 10 or 15 years. The internet was really just an afterthought. It was only until the mid 20 teens that we started actually thinking of the internet as the first and foremost of the, the onion mediums, you know, Right. But that's the story in a nutshell of how it all came to be. Yeah, do you, I, I'd like to live there for a, a couple of minutes because it, to me it's fascinating. Is it fair to say that the same way the National Lampoon is a product of Harvard, that the Onion is a product of the University of Wisconsin-Madison? Yes. It's perhaps more broadly a product of the Midwest, and people who did not grow up in elite blue blood, well-educated families or people with connections, you know, everyone who was on staff at the onion was the son of a farmer or uh, a local Midwestern small town shopkeep preachers. You know, they had no connections. They never dreamed that they would ever be in any kind of entertainment business. So but they were smart and funny and they really had an ax to grind. So to have this soapbox was really powerful for them. They, they really had a lot to say right. and they didn't care what people on the coasts thought. Right. Whereas spy magazine, for example, was all about the New York high right. society culture. So it was very much kind of a, a comedic response to that, even though we revered spy magazine and could only dream of being that good. Right. I would have, it was you, definitely a different, there's a word, uh, there's a word that I, that I apologize for using, but to me, it sums up the comedic style of the onion. And I really apologize for using this word, verisimilitude. 
Oh, never apologize for that word. I love that word. But that is the onion. What, what, yeah, is verisimilitude, what does verisimilitude <laughs> yeah. mean? And, and is, that, is that how, that's how I define the onion. That's a big part of the humor. So there are jokes in the onion and there are different things being said in every article. But the onion is a different kind of humor publication than, say, Mad Magazine or The Lampoon or even Spy in that those weren't a parody format. They were just a magazine that had humor and you opened it up and you expected to see a funny article. The onion had this whole conceit of being a newspaper and the parody construct was the foundation of everything we did. So parody is funny. People love parody. And also beyond parody, the onion itself was a character. It was the character of the stuffy, know-it-all newsman or news empire that was telling you the truth because it knew the truth and it belittled you for being a a lowly commoner. (laughs) So you have this character, this character archetype, and you have this parody. So you already have two funny things happening before a single word of an article is written. But it looked like you you could pick it up. Exactly. Go ahead. Exactly. (laughs) So... That gave it two legs up on any other humor publication because it already had you laughing before you even started reading an article. And verisimilitude is what makes parody work. The closer you can look like the thing you're parodying, the funnier it's going to be. And I learned that from National Lampoon. They really raised the bar on that. Before them, and even after them, some people still did it kind of the, you know, the half-assed way where you're kind of sort of pretending to look like the thing you're parodying. SNL does this all the time when they parody a movie or a TV show, they get close enough. And that's funny for the audience. You know, they'll see a cast member who looks like, you know, Rachel Dratch will play Harry Potter and everybody will laugh because that's a funny pairing or whatever. But if you can make it look so authentic that it, for a second, people will wonder, is this really the thing just makes it so much funnier. The, the, the so style of writing that to the hill. Is, is it the AP style of writing, the inverted pyramid, where you, you tell your writers to write the comedy as though it's a news story? Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Put the exactly. most important stuff up front, the least important stuff all the way at the bottom. And yeah. that's what makes it that's even funnier. Par- that's, that's the format that you're parodying. But right. an Onion comedy article is different than the traditional comedy article prior to the onion in the traditional comedy article, you would start by setting people up and you would set up the joke. You would set up the joke. And at the end of the article, you would give a punchline of the joke. And then you would come up with some headline to put on that to make people want to read it. Totally the opposite with the onion. You come up with the headline first and you want to make it really funny. You want to make it a joke. And then it's an inverse pyramid. So it's the funny headline, and then it just gets funnier and funnier the more you expand on that world that the the headline introduces, or whatever illogic is expressed in that headline. This is incredible. This is so incredible. You're saying that the writers pitch headlines to the onion. You go with the headline, then assign a story to fit the headline. It's not journalism. It's comedy. (laughs) So, yeah. <laughs> so you say that comedy is great when, when when there's a puzzle when when you have to 
when there are limits and parameters. And Absolutely. so it is conceivable that one person could pitch a headline, somebody else will write, write the story associated with the headline. We will, yeah, we, we always would figure, you come up with a bunch, bunch of headlines, you pick the funniest ones. We're going to write the biggest, longest story about the funniest headline because that's the one that needs to go on the front page. If it's super funny and super accessible and it's going to have the widest possible audience, you want it to be in the biggest type and you want it to be the, the, the longest story. So it has the, the most engagement and the most like drill down and buy-in from readers. Okay. There are plenty of obscure articles that you could put on page 18, you know, that are this big or whatever. Those are fun too, but it was all about the hierarchy of information. Corporate America could never recreate the onion or, no. or, or something like it. You have to be away from New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. You have to be able to stumble into a style. When did you stumble into to a style? There were glimpses of it really early in, I think, year one there was a story, it was played very silly. It wasn't played very straight. It was a picture of a big mound of snow with a guy's legs sticking out of it. And the headline was dead guy found. <laughs> and so that was a very early attempt to try to do like straight news, like a really straight news story. And there were a few other glimpses of it like that, but it wasn't until we got a couple of key writers, Andy Salzberg was one and Robert Siegel was another uh, both a couple of New Yorkers and they really nailed the straight voice, like going super straight with a really funny idea in a way that was really up a level from what we had done before. And Robert was really the master of that style. And he was uh, my right-hand man for many years. And he was the editor after I uh, left for, I think the second or third time I left, he, he, he became the editor for two or three years some of the best years of writing in the onion. It was like the, uh, 2000 to 2002 or three, something like that. And he did the nine 11 issue, which is a classic issue. And yeah, that's, uh, that's how we did it. Right. So I've heard the national lamp, the Harvard lampoon, they have a castle and it was yes. all about the hang, uh, Whatever. I, I, I don't want to say anything about the Harvard, Harvard Lampoon. I, I love those kids. And I, I visited the castle and I, uh, I am just astonished that they can get anything done because they get, they get in that castle and they hang out and they drink and they play games. I don't know when they ever write or work. Right. They're, they're, <laughs> but they do it. Somehow they do it. What was the hang like at the Onion? What, what, what was your <laughs> office like? Did you have an office? Was it in a house? Yeah. What, what did it look like? For the first, yeah, for the first year, it was in a dorm and then an off-campus, like, rental unit. And then year two, it was in a basement office. And then we moved into, like, a, a fifth-floor office that had, like, several offices. That was in the early to mid-'90s. That's when we really felt like we had arrived. I had an office, but I shared my office with uh, the graphics editor and the graphics editor's assistant. So there were three people in a really small office. And... The hang was, there were sort of two different cultures. The writers were 
could afford to kind of be goofy and silly. And there was, there were so many antics and zany like pranks and like totally inappropriate office behavior happening within the ranks of the writers. And they kind of had their room and it was a mess and it kind of smelled like a barn and you would go in there and you would do the brainstorming meetings and the writer meetings in there. But then I would go back to my office to actually do the work, you know, like you'd have to rewrite a lot of stories. They wouldn't come in in good shape or whatever. That really changed when we moved to New York and we had our Soho office in a loft that looked like a real office (laughs) for a real company. Then writers started delivering news stories that were in pretty good shape and it really wouldn't take that much work to fix them or edit them or punch them up. Because once we got there, we started getting people with a little bit more comedy experience. I never liked to hire anyone with too much comedy experience. I always wanted the blank slate, but we would hire people who were ambitious and who went to NYU or Columbia or interned at one of the late night talk shows. And so they were much more hardworking than some of these kind of Midwestern schlubs like me who kind of fell into this. And so the culture became a little different then, but still the writer's culture was very much goofy and silly and a lot of joking around. At the end of the day, there was always like a handful of people, the editor, head writer, graphics people who actually had to do the work, the really time consuming work of fixing up the stories, getting them in good shape, proofing them, finalizing all the graphics and all, you know, all the work. The writers really had it good. They could just turn in kind of a crappy draft sometimes and then spend the rest of the week goofing around, you know? Right. Will you come back? We're, we've been talking with Scott Dickers. He is the founder of The Onion, and he is the number. He has uh, the number New York number one New York Times bestselling author of over thirty books, including How to Write Funny. He's the recipient of the Thurber Prize for American Humor, as well as a Peabody and too many Webby Awards to count. And you can see him on his weekly comedy show, Scott Dickers Around. <laughs> how do you, how do we watch you dicker around? I, oh, we have a question from, hang on, we have a question from question. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Hi, uh, um, nice to meet you. Was Hello. your story, did you, did you put around the story of the movement to make cows wear brasiers? Was that that story? was not my movement. No, I did not do okay. that. I will tell you that about that in like a second. It was, it was Alan Abel and Buck Henry. I'll tell you about that in a second. Okay. Okay, so that predates me. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's do this. Uh, today is one of those days that is shaping up to be okay. We got off to a tough start due to technical problems. Uh, I'd love to have you come back more often. And you're very generous in your writing because you teach people how to be funny. And you're good yeah, at teaching. that's been a really fun thing to do. And you're, and you're a great writer, obviously, and a great teacher. Everybody should go buy your latest book, How to Write Funny. Go to howtowritefunny.com. Please support this man. Go buy. Yeah, there's a lot of free resources there if anybody wants to learn how to, how to do comedy. Yeah. Will you come back, please? I would be pleased to. Yeah, absolutely. Now, should I mention that there is a certain evil empire where a lot of your books are on a certain reading device where they don't you have? You can. I, Does that help or hurt are, you if, if I mention? It's fine. No, it's totally fine. Uh, I, 
I wish I didn't have to be associated with that evil empire, but they make it impossible not to be. So, so if I, if I, my books are exclusive to Amazon, some of them aren't, you know, right. A lot. Here's the thing. Amazon is so smart because they, if you do your book through them, they'll sell it on the other retailers, but then they take a little cut. Right. This is why they're a monopoly, you know, because they really, and they make it so attractive to authors. They're paying 10 times what a publisher would pay in terms of royalties. It's just like, it's a no brainer for authors to do that. So it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. Right. Scott Dickers, go buy, please go to howtowritefunny.com. I promise you, you'll learn how to write funny. You're getting it from the source, the onion. There's nothing better than the onion. It's. Thank you, David, for saying that's very nice. It's it's a fact. I mean, it's just uh, there's nothing (laughs) funnier than the onion, period. And uh, they've and they're consistent. I when you come back, I want to find out why it never went bad as opposed to everything else. Thank you, Scott. We can talk about that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. Please come back. Well, it's time now for the author of Today Is Now, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. No, it's Ethan Hershenfeld, author of Today Is Now, written by his alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. And Do you want want to see versimilitude? I can't say the word. But you say it for me, David. Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. You want to see it? Read his book. Because one of my worries about his book is that some people are going to think this is a real self-help book (laughs) and and start living according to... I'm not kidding. Well, my my worry is that people will read it and won't start living according to it. (laughs) I'm trying to take over the world under the guise of comedy. All right. So, Dr. Dr. Freud, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, that was a real Freudian slip. That was was Freudian. Freudian. That was a a real. real, Coming coming from you, it's a compliment. That was that's that's a good Freudian slip, Dr. Philip. Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant, brilliant comedian. His special is Thug Thug Jew. It's streaming right now on YouTube. I want everybody to go to Amazon. You get special dispensation. Go to Amazon and buy Today Is Now, written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin, I will reimburse you if this book, this gets the Feldman stamp. If you buy this book oh, thank you. and it doesn't wow. change your life, let me know and I will reimburse you. Dr. Philip That's Hershenfeld. Right. Can I just, yeah, I go just ahead. wanted to add before you go on. It is guaranteed to change your life. Uh, not for the better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. Talking about verisimilitude in reading yeah. Dr. Samuel Benjamin's Today Is Now. Was there anything in the book where you thought, okay, this is dangerous because this is actually good advice? Was there anything you thought, hmm, that that actually works? I think the whole book is dangerous and subversive from page one right through to the end. Subversive for whom? For humanity. Or your and, profession? 
for the self-help industry, for sure. Is it is there some Oedipal conflict at play here? Because you are a Freudian, Freudian psychoanalyst, but you don't do self-help. You you help. If you, were, if you were in the same room with me, David, I would smack you right now. So <laughs> uh, the answer is no. Well, because you don't. You're not a practitioner of self-help. What is the difference between... No, hold on one second, baby. I turn off these. We're, uh, what is going on here? We're having one of those days. Oh, there we go. Okay. Is that an interloper? That was an interloper. We've had every, wow. mostly every technical problem that could happen has happened. So... You're you're not a Dr. Hershenfeld is not a practitioner of self-help. These people are your Dr. Dr. Benjamin is adamant in his rejection of the term self-help when applied to his methods and to his book. In fact, he's livid. Dr. Benjamin is livid with the Amazon empire for putting his book today is now in the self-help category <laughs> because to quote Dr. Benjamin, if it's self-help, then why are you telling me what to do? <laughs> <laughs> so by definition, it's not self-help unless you wrote the book. I mean, the book could be self-help for Dr. Benjamin helping himself. Right, right. Uh, it's a put-down. It's a put-down. Uh, he would rather have the book in philosophy, psychology, uh, metaphysics, physics, uh, massage therapy. It could be anywhere, but not in self-help. But that's where it is. And Dr. S- and geometry. And geometry. And geometry. Dr. Dr. Samuel Benjamin has come close to how many PhDs? Well, very close to two and uh, very not close in two others. Those mm-hmm. were abandoned uh, in the master's phase. But yeah, he is uh, what they call uh, ABD, uh, all but dissertation <laughs> in two fields. ABD. So it, it's Dr. Samuel Benjamin, ABD. And I mean, it would, it should be, but he, he, let's say he's a little bit, um, uh, liberal with, uh, the nomenclature when it comes to credentials. So he's liberal calling himself a doctor. But, is it fair, know. but is it fair to deny a man a, a PhD for one just because he never finished his dissertation. Is that fair? Look, in the case of one of the PhDs, it actually, he finished it. It's just he was driving the dissertation on his bicycle to the department just in advance of the 5 p.m. cutoff, and he was pulled over because he wasn't wearing a helmet. Mm. So he didn't get the dissertation in for that minor infraction. So it's not fair. That's, no. It's unfair. So how does he deal with this kind of setback? What is his advice? It's just like the way you deal if if you're uh, you know if your license is suspended, but you have to commute to work. You just commute to work. You know you don't let that 
piece of paper or that random uh, interference by by the bureaucracy and the powers that be. You can't let that get in the way of your life. Now, growing up with a father who is a psychiatrist. Yes. You are not attacking the psychoanalytic community. You are attacking people who tell people not to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Is that correct? I am not attacking anyone, nor is Dr. Benjamin. He's, He's attacking, attacking me personally, that's all. <laughs> I'm not attacking him. And that guy with that that guy with that knife outside of Kavanaugh's house, he wasn't attacking Kavanaugh. He was just it was a little bit of tourism. He he was attacking was the knife. Tourism. He was attacking the knife. Yeah. Because yeah. to put a um, knife there in Kavanaugh is insulting to, to I shouldn't say that. Uh, no, yeah. no, no, not at all. No, um, I shouldn't have even brought that up. But no, look, I'm lampooning the world of self-help and the world of therapy. I'm lampooning it. But at the same time, I do think that there's some real beneficial stuff in there. And there are laughs, more importantly, laughs, um, which don't hurt. Um, but am I... Am I, is it a, like that anxiety and influence thing? Is that what that Harold Bloom thing was? That kind of Oedipal thing? I, of course, there's got to be a little bit of that going on. Because I was also subjected to a lot of therapy as a kid. And as a teen and as a, in my 20s, and a little bit in my 30s. <laughs> I gave it up <laughs> about 20 years. It wasn't for me. But it, it took me a while to realize I'm immune to it, which is an interesting thing. Um, <laughs> No, really. It's, and it's not, I'm not attacking it because I really do think that it, it helps a lot of people. And I do think my father's probably, I've, I've never seen it up close, but I feel like he's good at his job. He's been at it a long time. He's an expert and he's, he's you know, he's got, you know, he's, he's done it and he knows how to do it. And it's effective. But weirdly, I think a lot of things are effective. And even though... Uh, a professional could dismiss other efficacious things as happenstance or as silly. Those things could be just as effective. Like the like this morning, I did this thing on the New York Times. There was this eight minute joy workout. Did you see this thing? No. They posted this eight minute, like it's like uh, sort of like dancing calisthenics, and it was it's this therapist and uh, physical trainer who developed this eight minute routine and it works it feels good and in eight minutes you get your heart rate up and you do we these should moves do that are supposed to correlate with we should have dr samuel benjamin in a speedo and a tight, leading it leading we should do an, a joy workout with dr samuel benjamin that would be really well, funny um, maybe in boxers but not a speedo. he's not an <laughs> exhibitionist but anyway, no, I think um, I'll also, look, I, I believe, honestly, that there are probably, and I think that the doctor would agree with me, although back in the day he wouldn't, that for certain things, other approaches are more effective. Like, probably, you might not agree with me, but I would say that, like, with addiction, like dangerous addiction, I think that behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy to intervene and to really get someone to stop hurting and potentially killing themselves with substances 
I think that that can be more effective than a long haul deep dive psychoanalysis. You don't even have time. The person could be dead after, before those seven years are up. Right. Do you agree or not? I agree to some degree. I agree because I have many years ago, I foolishly tried to treat a woman with a cocaine addiction by putting her on the couch and talking to her. And she never told me about this. I learned it later from her husband. She didn't stop for a day, even though she told, was telling me all the time how great she was doing. On the other hand, right about the same time, I started treating a, a, a severe alcoholic who was only 29 years old. And he was having um, a number of blackouts per week. And um, it worked because they were two different people. So I would this say some, the statement this, is correct some of the time and not all the time. This is one thing that distinguishes Dr. Benjamin from Dr. <laughs> Hirschman. Dr. Benjamin doesn't go in for these um, very moderate um, and judicious statements of, well, some people this, some people that. Dr. Benjamin is extremely confident that he knows exactly what it takes. In three um, sessions. Three sessions, yeah. One of which isn't even in the office. So it's, yeah. One, right. yeah, yeah, the famous second session, which happens in the field. Uh, or in the in the jungle, wherever the person is having their most acute symptoms. For example, like with that um, with that twenty nine year old who was drinking heavily. Like Doctor Benjamin would have gone with him to to a bar. Like that's where session two would have happened, sitting at a bar, and he could have worked through um, all of the the all of the multi valenced impulses and um, compulsions and uh, males, the maelstrom of emotions around that because the addict knows that they're an addict. And so they're, they're fighting two things at once. They're fighting the addiction, but they're also fighting the self-awareness and the guilt over the addiction. It's not like they're just blindly drinking and not aware that this is hurting themselves. They're, they're suffering from the initial hurt and then the knowledge that they're hurting themselves. And this is the kind of work that a Dr. Benjamin can really fix, whereas a Dr. Hirschenfeld... Eh. <laughs> No, no, well, no. let me ask Dr. Dr. Benjamin, Benjamin is just full of crap in a profound way, but he really means it. Go ahead. Let me ask Dr. Hershenfeld eh, a question. <laughs> Dr. Hershenfeld. Eh. Actually, you, you shortened it. Uh, the originally was Dr. Hershenfeld. Eh. Uh, let, let's get your take. And I have a serious question about self-destructive behavior. I yeah. was looking at, we all have self-destructive behavior. Is addiction a part of self? Can can addiction be a a facet of self destructive behavior? It can be yes. 
It can be, um, and it, it often is, I'm going to do this to myself as a way of getting back at some other person in my life who I hate. And what's the best way of getting back at them than by destroying my own life? It's, it's not always that, but sometimes it is. That, that uh, makes no sense to me and a lot of sense. Okay. To, I, mean, I, I, I under, like It doesn't make sense on the surface, but underneath, I'm going to hurt myself to hurt somebody else. Yeah. It, right. Now, yes. if that person, and I, I'm going to think mom and dad or an ex-spouse... For example, if that person is no longer alive, that behavior could, it doesn't matter. This is all in fantasy. Here, do you want a personal example of this? Yes, sir. I was about 11 years old. I was addicted to bringing stray animals home. That's how you got Ethan, right? What's that? That's how you found Ethan. There you go. Or he's not supposed and, to know uh, that. I'm sorry, Ethan. That was a family secret. That's okay. That's nice. And One of many. New, my do, new dog would be there in the backyard. And after a few weeks, it would mysteriously disappear. And my mother would say, oh, it ran away. <laughs> So one day I come home with this dog, cute dog. It was like a black cocker spaniel looking dog. Put it in the backyard. It was winter time in northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, Put it in the backyard, kept it as a pet for a few weeks. And then one day I come home, ran away. I said, oh, it it ran away, did it? Well, I'm going to go look for it. And I get on my bike and I start driving around the neighborhood and it's getting colder and colder and the snow is starting to fall and I'm enraged with my mother and I am in consciously going to get back at her by supposedly believing her story and looking for my dog and getting real sick. And that's exactly what happened. I I rode around for hours. And did you get the dog? You never found the dog. She had sent it far away. Yeah, it was, you know, wherever wherever the dogs went. Interesting. Well, uh, uh, Ethan Hershenfeld, as the, the... Sam, the Boswell, is it, are you the Boswell to Samuel Johnson or the Samuel Johnson to Boswell? I always confuse the two. Uh, you would be the Boswell to Samuel Benjamin. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. Let's <laughs> get that week. But as, as uh, Dr. Samuel Benjamin's Boswell, uh, how would Dr. Samuel Benjamin respond to that? I would say that a, a healthier a more well-adjusted 11-year-old than yourself 
would have done well. And in fact, I cover this territory in my book, which you claim to have read, but apparently. Um, I would say a more effective approach would have been to invite your mother out to the backyard and to have chained her up in the snow. <laughs> And say, I, I got to have someone back here. So if it's not the dog. Now, let me ask the doctor a question. When he said, chain your yes. mother in the backyard in the snow, I felt a tingle down my thigh. What was that about? <laughs> what about why, why would I? Why would that? Uh, he, he actually does have there is a chapter. There's a case study in. In today is now, just like in Freud's works, a lot of the works when you read them, there it, it's a case study that then illuminates the concept. Um, in in this particular case, it's a it's a guy who is in an unhappy marriage, and he's not particularly adept at being a father, um, and he's struggling with all of those family dynamics. But he has a very close relationship with his dog. That's um, reciprocated and it's 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 honest and it's satisfying and so in in the famous uh, second session the in the field session <laughs> dr benjamin take, takes the family to the park and he as as an experiment which ends up bearing fruit and solving the whole family dynamic um he gets the dog off leash but gets the entire family on leash <laughs> And he's then the, the the subject. He's able to then express just the way he does with his dog through through the leash and with that added modicum of control to express the affection and to receive the affection that otherwise he finds very difficult within the family unit. So that's just an example. Yeah, the leashing thing is something that Dr. Benjamin has employed. There are steps to not acting out after one feels an emotion. I've noticed as I get older, I can feel anger, rage. Uh, I, it's a physical feeling. And as I get older, I'm able to identify the urge to break something and go, wait a second, that... That would not. That thing does not have a warranty. The thing does not have a warranty. Uh, stop. It's it's not that bad. What do you want? Uh, wait wait a couple of seconds here, and this feeling will pass. Is that a function of aging? Is that cognitive therapy? I mean, you know, can people? Do you get there without cognitive therapy just by getting tired? Do people learn by themselves to identify the feeling of rage and not act on it? Can people learn that by themselves? Some people do. You have learned it, I think. Through, through, cognitive, through cognitive therapy and our work, yes. We've been working together yes. now for over two years. Right. So it's beginning to pay off. You're becoming a little more self-aware. I've only broken five computers since we started. Okay. Cool. 
over somebody's head. That's the that's the problem. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. So it depends who. Some people are naturally more self-aware. Other people, like you, David, don't have a clue, <laughs> and uh, they have to be, you know, educated. This is what you're feeling, and therefore I can choose whether or not I want to discharge that feeling by breaking my computer over somebody's head. Are people, I, I, I was in Nyack, New York, and I was actually happy. I was there having lunch, and I was calm in Nyack. And I was thinking about my anger issues, and I was thinking, are most people angry? Like, my anger and rage is not unique. What's unique is the individual's ability to govern the anger and rage. But everybody's... Oh, Dr. No. Samuel Benjamin, no. what would he say? No. I would just say no to everything that you've been saying. Just a big no. <laughs> um, no, 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 really. I think it, it, it is on a spectrum. People ex feel the emotions to different degrees, and people are able to control them to different degrees. Um, but I, I will say this about anger. It's When it comes to anger, a lot of times expressing it is healthier than not expressing it. People think that it's a dangerous emotion and that we shouldn't express it. A lot of times anger can be very creative. If you can learn how to channel it creatively, and you, the world is built on anger in a lot of ways. People were angry that they're, you know, the sun went down, now I can't read, I'm angry. Now, that's how the light bulb was invented. Well, first they set fire to some, I'm so angry, I'm gonna set fire to my neighbor's house. Hey, I can read yeah. off their, so I'm gonna start setting fire to people's homes so I can read. And then somebody said, wait a second, why don't you just light a candle? So the other thing about anger, sorry, doctor, go ahead. I just wanted to mention, nobody is angry in NIAC. This is a scientific fact. Nyack is an amazing place. You, wait a second. Do you have you? Did you ever live in Nyack? No. But have you visited? I took, I, I took tennis lessons in Bardonia, which is right next to Nyack. But that's a fictitious a town. I know Bardonia. It's next to Nyack. It looks. It sounds weird, but it's a real place. Wasn't Groucho? Wasn't Groucho the president of Bardonia in Duck Soup? I want to just say one more thing about expressing anger. If you do have to express it. And sometimes you do. I, uh, Dr. Benjamin, recommends instead of expressing it at home with your family or with, with your beloved or with your pet, it's much better to express it in the workplace. <laughs> if you have to express anger, the place to do it is the office. It, there, there's an <laughs> HR department. There are procedures in place. If you do it at home, it can just lead to all kinds of chaos. There's right. a structure in place. Yeah, for a, an office tantrum, there are security <laughs> guards. There's, there's, there's a cafeteria where you could go cool off. At home, don't do it at home. That's, That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. I have said uh, in, in the past, let's pretend this place is an office, shall we? If this were if if we were talking like this in an office situation, you would be fired. 
let's pretend right. this is an office. Yes. Well, do me a favor. Everybody go to the evil empire and buy Today Is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Seriously. Go, but let's make this a bestseller. Today is now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Benjamin, a couple of people in the chat room said they already bought it and they love oh, thank the you. book. Yes. And buy thank the book. Thank you very much for doing that. Buy the book. And also, I wanted to. Oh, David. Go, you go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to say the audio book coming soon. And then the real, the real uh, payoff the mockumentary about Dr. Benjamin, where you get to see him at work and at play. Uh, that's in production. So that will be out probably in the fall. Okay. If you love Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, if you love Ethan Hershenfeld, and we all do, right now, the best way to show that love is, I mean this, is love is transactional. But right, doctor? <laughs> Love costs money. <laughs> yeah, especially in Vegas. And <laughs> Who are we kidding? Love is transactional. I think that was the name of Dr. Samuel Benjamin's dissertation, if I'm not mistaken. Love is transactional. Uh, go by Today Is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. If you do not... Uh, laugh hysterically. Let me know and I'll reimburse you. Let's make this a bestseller, right? And Let's also, if you do buy it and you get a hard copy, either paperback or the hardcover, uh, then let's arrange. Uh, I would love to sign it for you. We can meet up in person and I'll do that. Or, or mail, mail, mail the first page of the book to you. You sign it and and then have some and then glue it back in. That'll work. I'll uh, I'll put my uh, I'll put a an address in the chat where you can mail if you want me to sign your book. Dr. Hershenfeld, in all seriousness, wow. Nyack, New York, is a perfect city. When is the last time you've been to Nyack? I used to bike up, up along Route 9 to Nyack, through Nyack, up to the bridge. I forget what that little town is called. Have a drink, turn around, and ride back. Every city should study Nyack. I want Nyack, New York, to adopt me. I want the keys to the city of Nyack. I want to be their favorite son. I want the town to adopt me. We've gone up there three times. This is why Nyack is it's a the, fa the family planning, the city planning is genius. They have gabled estates. They have these beautiful estates along the, the river, and they have parks, and it's gorgeous. And then they have modest, upper-middle-class housing, Victorians. And then they have some hideous homes, the kind that I grew up in, that were built in the that should never have been built in the 60s, that should be raised. That, you know, these, I don't know, I don't even know what they're, you know, these fake, I don't even know what they are. Uh, and then they have several low-income housing projects. Uh, I I, I'm sure the police are not kind 
it, to the low to the area that's low income housing. I'm I, I'm not a fool. That being said, when you have a city that has lots of low income housing, a lot, a lot of rich people, a lot of tacky middle class homes, a lot of nice upscale upper middle class homes, you have one of the most beautiful downtowns, one of the most, thr- even during COVID, the most, one of the most th- thriving downtowns, bereft of box, uh, big box stores and franchise. They have one Starbucks. Everything is mom and pop, locally owned. You know, they're struggling because of COVID, but I thought, this is a city. This is what every city should be like because they zone it in the interest of are the community. Are you getting paid for this endorsement? No, I'm auditioning. I'm nice. auditioning. Oh. I'm auditioning for somebody in Nyack to give me the keys of okay. the city. And I, because I would do the show law. I could see there were some buildings. I thought, man, I would move here, build out a studio, do the show live from Nyack, New York. It's, 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 it's it's for me. It's perfect. It has black. Me, I gotta run. You guys continue to your heart's content. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Doctor Philip Hershenfeld. Everybody, go by today is now by Doctor Samuel Benjamin. Well, we're running a little. Bye. Thank by, you. Bye, Ethan. We're running ten minutes behind, and we're, we've had major, major technical problems today that were solved. And joining us. There we go, is Emil Guillermo. He is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is also a columnist for the Asian American, ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And we are joined, I don't know if you know Kathy Guillermo. Do you know Kathy? I met her on that. What's that thing? You swipe left or you swipe right? I met her. Okay. I, I, I know this woman. Kathy Guillermo is senior vice president in the laboratory investigations department at PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And go donate to PETA because they're right about everything. <laughs> Thank you, David. Well, you are. You know, we all can't live up to your standards sometimes, but we need standards in life. And PETA is right. Just because we can't live up to some of your demands doesn't mean we shouldn't stop trying. Thank you for joining us. We can all do something. That is certainly true. How are you feeling? Cause you were, you didn't have COVID, right? No, you're right. The last time I was on, I had the flu. So I hid my picture and this time I'm, I'm on a trip. So this is a hotel room wall behind me. Okay. My home away from home. Okay. Yeah. We both went traveling this past week, David, and to back to normalcy. And then we split off. She went off somewhere else and I came home and I think I'm feeling normal again. I think I can maybe venture out to, uh, Nyack or maybe West Nyack, you know, West Nyack's in New Jersey, right? No, no. Nyack, I believe is New York. No, no. Nyack is New York state. 
Right, but there is a West Nyack in New Jersey. There's also a West New York in New Jersey. So Did you know I, that? I, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. That's yes. There's Great also idea. a Cambridge. You, there's a Cambridge, Massachusetts. Why is if Harvard is in Cambridge, is Cambridge in mm-hmm. Harvard? There is no Harvard. I mean, Harvard is the city of Harvard was somewhere else, yeah. but Harvard's in Cambridge. Hey, you know, but we were traveling together in, in Boston. I, I think what they've done to Boston in the last 30 years has been incredible. What an incredible city Boston is. You know, I've heard racists say the same thing. What they've done to Boston <laughs> in the past 30 years. <laughs> it's, harder, it's harder for the racists. But it's, it's pretty. It's pretty. But I swear, you know, I have this regular shirt. I always use that green plaid shirt. I call it my performance shirt. Right. And I saw a, a homeless Chinese man on the street. It doesn't appear as if he was part of any kind of Chinatown fringe festival. But he was there and I just instantly related to him and gave him money. He was wearing your shirts. That's yeah. I, I just, I, you know, I, I thought Boston was a great place. Now, Boston is not where Harvard is. So we actually had to leave the grounds and go to Boston and they have a, a with the townie, you got to go visit the townies. Here. Well, we, the we, Rubes. Went, we, we went out to the different counties there and uh, we, and we went to the Isabella Gardner museum, which is in Boston. I stole a painting then, from there. You were the one. Oh, oops! That was you. No, 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 no. So uh, we uh, and then we split up, and she's in New York for the Belmont, and I came back to California, where it's so quiet I can hear my tinnitus now. So it's so the the trick to you know what the trick to tonight tonight is it tinnitus or tinnitus? Well, I like one. I looked it up once. The trick is I got it. The trick to tinnitus. Is, I, just, I thought that's what you spray on your your feet. Yeah, they, don't itch. think about it. Okay, ignore it. I, you, I know. It's a, I, I tell myself it's a symphony. It's it's, and, and then yeah. I'm all right. And don't wear I, headphones I do. like we do. Let's talk about the Belmont since we have Kathy Guillermo here. Let's start off with a <clears throat> a Florida story. The live octopus. There, a Florida man attacked a live octopus. What's amazing about this story is that he was arrested. It turns out that this guy was out fishing. He accidentally caught an octopus, what they call bycatch of fishing. And instead of tossing the animal back into the water, he pulled it apart, pulled its what we would think of as a head, but really holds the organs of the animal, pulled that off, pulled the legs off, tossed it in a bucket. And a woman nearby happened to be videotaping on a phone, fortunately, and PETA filed a complaint about this and he was arrested and charged with the felony of animal abuse. So I don't know what will happen, but it's remarkable to see a fisherman charged with a felony. So you're saying you're saying he's black. (laughs) <laughs> I don't actually know what he is. I have no idea. I, I can't imagine. For colorblind, David, for colorblind. <laughs> I, no, I'm saying, I'm saying that's the only way somebody, I mean, to get it. I can't imagine the police arresting a white person for, don't people eat octopus? 
They do. And in some places, they eat them while they're alive, if you can believe it. These live eating restaurants that are popular in, in some countries and in a few places here. So, so, so how is it a crime? So shocking to see that. Right, well, and that's why I said he must have been black, because police look for any reason to arrest black men. How can you get arrested for torturing oh, something you're going to eat? David, I'm confirming that it was a, a black man because Benjamin Crump showed up to defend. No, in this Is case, it was not the police who arrested him. It was the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. So it was a law enforcement agency, but not the police department. And so that was kind of remarkable. Yeah, I, I just I hate to belabor this, but that's what I do on this show. Can you torture something you eat? I guess you can. You can't torture a cow or a chicken, right? Well, it's a weird divide, isn't it? I mean, it's a weird mindset that says there are ways you can torture the animal, even while you're raising that animal in horrible conditions and are going to hang him upside down and cut his throat. There are ways to do it. And it was actually one of our couple of our early investigations that brought about the first felony cruelty to animals charges, one against a pig farmer and one against Turkey, um, a Turkey slaughterhouse because of the things that they did, like stomping on the heads of turkeys, sexually assaulting turkeys inside the slaughterhouse and horrible things at this pig farm that just give me nightmares to this day, the kinds of things that they did to these animals just gratuitously. But yes, I take your point. It's a very weird right. thing that we are torturing animals to raise them for food, but I guess there's a bridge too far for some people. But you know, David, the other thing is, is that octopus or octopi feel pain. I mean, people don't understand that, but they, they do feel pain. There have been studies that suggest that even though most people would say octopuses don't, they do. Yes. They and, 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 and they're sentient. They are pets. They, when you leave and then come back, they recognize you. And is it fair to keep an octopus as a pet? I guess not. Probably not. But it is those situations where these animals have been inside buildings and in an aquarium or someplace where so much has been learned about what they are like, their personalities, how they've been able to change their shape and their color to blend in, how they've been able to squeeze out of the tiniest places to escape. So they're quite remarkable. And we do know some of that because they've been in these places. But once we know that information, we need to stop putting them in these places. Right. We're talking with Kathy Guillermo, senior vice president in the laboratory investigations department at PETA. And I'm thrilled to have you. I really am. And Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast and a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. I'm sort of thrilled, not as thrilled. I'm teasing. Emil's my oldest friend. So uh, uh, and I love him. uh, And I'm thrilled to have him. I asked her about the Belmont. The Belmont. The Belmont Stakes. What what are the I've heard of horse racing. Where are the Belmont stakes and why does the Belmont still exist considering all the horses who end up dead because of horse racing? 
Yeah, you know, in, in some ways it barely does exist. The Belmont Stakes is the race that is occurring this Saturday. It's the third leg, as they refer to it, of the Triple Crown. There's the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. So it's one of the three or four big races, the only ones people have heard of in this country, and it happens at Belmont Belmont Park here uh, on Long Island, where I am right now. And if uh, I had somebody who was at the park today, um, just checking out what was going on there. And there were so few people at Belmont that it was like COVID safe. You know, you Mm -hmm. want some alone time, go to the racetrack because so few people go to this park. And I'm here because there is somebody filming a documentary about some of our work to end the state subsidies that keep horse racing afloat in New York state. And there will be a big protest. Right. Is there an appetite for the Belmont stakes? I I know that you would watch it at a a casino. Do people watch it on television or is this just entirely propped up by the government? They do it, it. Well, I don't know if people will watch it, but it will be on TV this year. It will be on Fox Sports because Fox Sports has a new contract with the New York Racing Association and they've invested in their gambling. They're what they call their Naira bets, their online gambling. There's a small appetite for this kind of horse racing, ever shrinking and ever shrinking numbers of horses available to race. There was a race today that had two horses in it. Two, two horses. I mean, it's almost funny. Who they're, came they're in? Just, who came in third? Shortage of horses. Who came in third? David, this is the, how they're going to get people to get rehooked on racing. They show it on television, and then they let betters or people know that they can bet simultaneously, either on the computer or by phone. And when you have uh, a network like Fox in cahoots with all the different racing information channels, they're all trying to save uh, the sport by trying to say, hey, you can bet on even though most people don't understand how to pick a horse or or they don't understand the, the, the cruelty aspects of horse racing that you know, really should should make the sport uh, um, uh, be banned. So uh, this is a kind of crossroads and they're trying all the racing industry is trying all it can to save it. Whereas if left to, you know, its own devices, uh, the people would ignore racing and no one would show up. No one would show up to the Belmont during the regular season. And, you know, Kathy did a great thing uh, by getting uh, a, a big legislative thing uh, removed in New York State that would have given Belmont Park several uh, tens of millions of dollars to build a like essentially a cathedral to horse racing for for people who aren't even who don't even go to horse racing. So um, this is a kind of a funny a time for a sport that was once right up there with boxing, right? The, the sports of the 20s and 30s in America, boxing, uh, the, the Damon Runyon kind of uh, guys and dolls kind of sports. Right. Yeah. And Emil's talking about the, the bill that and it wasn't just PETA. We work with a huge coalition of human service and other organizations um, live on New York Alliance for Quality Education. New York Communities for Change, Worker Justice Center. And and it was a bill that would have provided $450 million in state-backed bonds to Belmont to build a fancy clubhouse because what they need to do is shrink the clubhouse they have now because there aren't enough people. So they want to make it nicer and better and smaller. Um, And it's the first time horse racing has ever been told no by the state of New York. So we're, we're really happy the legislators listened. 
Let me just take care of a little business here because we're a little behind. We're 10 minutes behind. We're also right now, if you're watching us live on YouTube or in our Zoom room, we're up against the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Their live hearings start in eight minutes. We will be giving you constant updates throughout the remainder of this show so that you can keep listening and watching and we will apprise you of uh, what is going on during these hearings. They start at 8 p.m. It's the first of six planned for June. Tonight, they will be focusing on the role that the Proud Boys played in orchestrating the insurrection, and we will keep you up to date uh, throughout the night. So please stay with us. Let's talk about the primaries. The big primaries were on Tuesday in California. Tell me who Bonta and the the Bowden, how do you pronounce it? Boudin? Uh, Boudin, yeah. I was surprised that they recalled Boudin. That is... That is San, what San Francisco truly is. Yeah, San Francisco isn't nearly as progressive as people think. And a lot of it is because there are, you know, in San Francisco, the the real Republicans are also known as moderate Democrats. So that would be the Pelosi's and the Feinstein's who live in Presidio Terrace, the richer parts of San Francisco, and they're joined by a lot of very wealthy Asian Americans. So it was a very strange mix of people that wanted Kesa Boudin out, um, even though a lot of his ideas are, you know, these are good ideas in the wrong city at the wrong time. They were progressive, but right now the city is... Uh, suffering from a lack of leadership. It's not necessarily the DA's office. It's it's uh, the mayor's office. It's, it's uh, up and down, but he happened to be targeted. I think he was scapegoated really for all the ills of the city from homelessness to uh, the kind of sna- uh, smash and grab kind of shoplifting right. and, that and goes on. The coverage in, is, my understanding yeah. of crime in San Francisco is they have a problem of optics that crime is not going up in San Francisco. It just feels like it's going up. And the people who are criticizing this DA who got recalled is he didn't make us feel safe, even though they were safe. This was a basic law and order kind of thing, right? I mean, uh, and it, it is all, like you said, optics, but it's the perception and a lot of the things, here's why Kesa Boudin is not the problem, even though he just got recalled this past week. He'll be replaced by Mayor London Breed, an African-American woman. She'll handpick her DA. And guess what? All the problems that people perceive are happening in San Francisco will still be there. They will not go away because Kesa Boudin went away. That's that's the, the first and foremost thing. It's not his fault, but... 
um, the the media elsewhere, you know, throughout the nation is going to look at this and say, oh, another recall in liberal San Francisco. They can't get it right. They recalled the Board of Education. Now they recall this uh, district attorney and they're going to show it as a kind of weakness in San Francisco. Well, San Francisco is weak right now. But not because of progressive politics. It's weak because of a general leadership issue there. And also because of conservative Asian Americans have decided to uh, create this coalition with the the rich, uh, let's say, I don't want to say call them rich white, but for the most part they are, um, the moderate Democrats who are really the, the Republicans of San Francisco. And they want everything to look nice in San Francisco, which, which it's not. So out goes Queso Boudin. And it, it's too bad because some of his ideas about um, incarceration and rehabilitation, they're needed. They're, they're, we need to talk about these things. And even, you know, some of his ideas in terms of, you know, fentanyl markets and open trade and that kind of thing are, are, are necessary to talk about. I don't know if, you know, the, the, they, they contribute to this feeling that the city isn't safe. And that's why people ganged up on him and booted him. He, he, he's out by a 60-40 vote. He was able to get the, the progressives who live around the Mission District and Noe Valley, sort of the heart of the city. But those conservative areas voted against him. So that was Queso Boudin, uh, Queso Boudin and, and his fate. I don't know what's going to happen afterwards, but believe me. Talk to me about Bonta. In, who is Bonta? Him, it's going to be the same thing. Bonta. Bonta, Rob Bonta, though, is the national name or the name that everyone who's following the California primary would have followed the California primary should should pay attention to. Rob Bonta is the attorney general. He was uh, selected by uh, Gavin Newsom to fill the the uh, vacated post of uh, Javier Becerra, who went on to became become HHS guy. Anyone who becomes the attorney general in California is on a, uh, you know, you're on a rocket ship, a political rocket ship. You can be like a Becerra, you could be, or you could be like Kamala Harris, uh, because that's what happens after you are an attorney general in California. And the significance of Bonta is he's a Filipino American, an Asian American uh, who grew up uh, not too far from Cesar Chavez in, in Kern County in California, um, has what I call the golden story. He has that background plus uh, the elite Ivy league credential Yale law school. He's his heart's in the right space. His wife's progressive and took over his spot in the assembly. The, the test was, did he have a poll statewide? Cause he was just a, uh, an assembly member from Alameda County where Oakland and, and Berkeley is. And this proves he did. He pulled more than almost 60% of the vote. He'll go into the top two race against a 19% Republican. He looks to, to win. And I think if you want to see the future, the long tail Asian American political story, Rob Bonta, attorney general of California, has got to be a name that you consider, not just for other, other roles in California, like maybe governor, maybe the Senate, maybe Congress, maybe even the presidency. And I say this, look, using a very long tail, but that's what happens in California. When we saw Gavin Newsom as a superintendent or county supervisor in San Francisco back in the 80s, could you, you know, 
foreseen his his ascension to uh, governor and then, you know, talk about, you know, vice president and, and, and the presidency. This is the way politics works. Democratic politics works in California. And I think you get someone like Bonta, Filipino American with that kind of pedigree as uh, education wise. It's a name that you're going to have to consider in the next five, 10, 15 years. We only we have limited time. We're running a little behind schedule. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is about to join us with Kate Vlach. She's a lawyer dedicating to uh, dedicated to fighting phony abortion counseling centers. This is a a, a, a problem in America. And what I'd like to do very quickly, however, is keep you here for five minutes and bring the Reverend Barry W. Lynn in. And just for five minutes, Reverend, uh, the hearings, the January 6th hearings are about to start. And it looks like you're sinking, Reverend. Did you did you shrink? California. He has risen. Hang on. I don't think I shrunk. Wait a minute. Can you can we get a full shot of you? Move, move your camera. Move, Look, yeah. I can I can shrink too. <laughs> I don't even see me here. Oh, but now we lost you. What is? Well, well, look. Start your video. Well, let's. By the okay. way, okay. And if you could, there you go. Tilt yeah. down. And now, if you could tilt down just a little. Oh, see. I don't see me at all. All right, so tilt the camera down just a little so we can frame you. There you go. How's that? I get a New York phone book. That's good. <laughs> so they still have phone books. I, I used to sit on like five counties in Washington, D.C. when I that. <laughs> All right. The, the, well, the, the January 6th hearings are prime time tonight. We're going to be hearing the involvement of the Proud Boys in this insurrection. This is being produced by one of the top documentarians, the former president of ABC News, has been brought in to sell the insurrection to the American people. All the evidence is out there. I know they've held hearings. This is a framing exercise there's there are going to be no perry mason moments are there reverend i don't think so Uh, i don't think there are going to be any perry mason moments but i do think if they do this right they're going to set a chronology that's going to be different than what most people think so that when my friend jamie raskin who i have tremendous respect for used to be my congressman um I think that he will do a very good job on setting the record of what happened when and who was responsible. I'd be very interested in uh, going back and watching parts of it, uh, particularly those that involve some of the yet unseen interviews with Trump family members. Agreed. Because although... Although they're, I don't think they're going to be landmines. I don't think it's going to be perfect, but I do think that we're going to learn more about the Trump family's involvement than we've ever seen before. 
You know, David, it's not a matter of Perry Mason moments. I think that most people, aside from just a few headlines here and there, we just need a one place where we get it all. And we know that here's a bipartisan committee. We know it's about the closest version to what actually happened. And it's, it's being put out there. And I, I, I just am glad it's happening because I think uh, this is like it's better than the Real Housewives of Washington. This is it, like the, the these are the the real occupants of Washington. This is the people who came to to, to steal the democracy. We need something like this. It, it, you say bipartisan, Jim Jordan. We're not going to hear this. Won't be like the impeachment hearings. You you well, won't we, have any. Not, no, you won't have any Republicans rattling their there. Cage. You have, but there's nobody rattling the cages and taking people. Well, we don't need that. We need people from from both perspectives who know who can agree on what the facts are and present it. And and what we need in America is sort of like some kind of anti gaslighting kind of thing, so that we know, oh, we can trust this. We can. I mean, there's still going to be people distrustful of of what's going to be presented, but these are facts. It's not opinion. It's not normal MSNBC, normal CNN stuff. It's the facts it's being presented and you know you just don't get this in one spot in one place like you'll get a little bits i mean unless you're watching non-stop from january 6th 7th 8th 9th and 10th you know you got a little bit of it and then throughout the you know weeks later people would put things together but i think this is a great disservice and like barry's saying maybe we'll be able to get a definitive timeline so we can know exactly what happened we can all agree on something but you know we're not I mean, there's a one network that that's not carrying this i think it should be un-american not to carry these you know, it should be un-American to not watch these, these, right. these, these hearings. So I, I encourage everyone to at least tape them and watch them again and again, because maybe we'll, we'll understand what really happened that day. Right. And tonight we're going to be hearing video testimony and seeing uh, video testimony from people who were close to the Trump president, the Trump White House. And we're going to see... Uh, I guess never before seen footage revealing the role of the Proud Boys in all this. Uh, Everybody, Reverend, who's watching, I would assume, believes that the Republicans are fascists, that Trump is a criminal. The 80 million people who voted for Biden will be watching this. So it, they will. And the 75 who voted for Trump won't be bothered. It, it'll just be. Uh, so what good will come from this? Uh, the history books. We have something for the history books. Are they going to make a criminal well, think, referral yeah, to Merrick Garland? Is Merrick Garland going to get off his ass? Is he going to take <laughs> the thumb out and prosecute? Or is this just for pop? political expediency. Yeah, well, Adam Schiff was just on CNN a couple of hours ago saying this has nothing to do with the midterms. It has nothing to do with the 2024 election. And once you get through laughing at that prospect, 
I do think that it has some relevance. If you have this going well, and luckily there won't be speeches by anybody, as I understand it, except for Benny Witten and Liz Cheney, there's not going to be everybody giving an opening five or ten minutes statement, which, of course, would put people to sleep immediately. But that's the way congressional hearings generally are. You have to suffer through every member. But you're right. There's no Jim Jordan. There's nobody to interrupt the flow of what's being discussed and making procedural motions. None of that nonsense is going to happen. So I do think that this, combined with what the Republicans refuse to do about reproductive justice, what they refuse to do about controlling guns, all of those three together might make a difference in some of these marginal uh, races. Right. So but, I but do it have is, some hope it is that em- this is going to make a difference. It is emblematic of everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party states the problem. They are willing to state the problem, but do nothing about it. We have a gun problem. They're willing to state it. They're even willing to say, we got to get the assault weapons off the streets. But they will do nothing about it. Joe Biden could do it tomorrow. He could sign executive orders tomorrow to get these guns off the streets, at least temporarily, until the courts overturn it. Right. Uh, But there are things he could do. There are other things I've talked about in my opening monologue. We already know that the Republican Party has been hijacked by crypto fascists who tried to overthrow the government of the United States on January 6th. We know who orchestrated it. We have a Justice Department right now that could save our democracy by locking these people up. But instead, it's more hearings, more stating of the problem than solving it. All these hearings are going to do, all they're going to accomplish is reinforcing what we already knew. We have a chicken shit attorney general and a chicken shit president who is too chicken shit to prosecute the, the Congress people who gave tours to the insurrectionists. Yep. And, and they're going to wring their hands all the way up until the midterms saying, look how dangerous the Republicans are. Please, you got to vote for us as if your democracy depends on it, because it does. You know what our democracy depends on? A president and an attorney general who aren't chicken shit and will enforce the laws that are already on the books and lock these people up. Hey, hey David, I think, though, the uh, the amount of chicken shittedness on the part of the president and the and the attorney general is based on the level of ignorance of the American public and what the American public doesn't know. I mean, there are some people who know. You're the saying that they don't have. Saying. You're saying that the Justice Department needs the political capital to enforce no, the laws. I, I think there's a the public. There's a lot in the public who don't understand what's really going on, and you know they're saying, "Oh, we're going to reveal first time stuff." Okay, let's. Who cares let's see, what the public know? A crime is a crime. You're either well, guilty or you're not, and you take. I, I'm sorry to raise my voice, but well, who, the, political you, courage. Look, it's tough these days, you know. Well, I mean, then, then don't run for office. Know. There well, are laws. 
you, you either committed sedition or you didn't. Sedition is against the law. You either attempted to overthrow the government of the United States or you didn't. You don't need popular opinion to enforce laws that are already on the books. Look, I, I agree with you that it shouldn't be that before you do anything, you stick your finger in your mouth and you take and then you put your finger up and you, you, you test and you poll and you only do anything if the polls are with you. Because that that's that's politics oh, in the last we, we have to wrap, years. We have to wrap, we have to wrap and, it up. And, but I think this is good for the people. Having a hearing like this is good for regular Medicare for all Medicare for all Medicare for all is good for the people. Well, I agree. That, Look, that's that's Medicare. more important. I, I agree. That's, that's more important. I, I would like to have, I'd like to share my Medicare for them. Thank you, Emil <laughs> Guillermo. Uh, support PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and read Emil Guillermo over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and listen to the PETA podcast. Thank you, Emil Guillermo. Come back uh, with Kathy. Uh, you're listening sure. to the David Feldman Show. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Uh, office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I'm there for the first 90 minutes to take your calls and your suggestions, and then we turn it over to the community. As always, Reverend Barry W. Lynn is an attorney as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And for nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And we are going to talk about phony abortion counseling centers with our guest, Kate Vlatch. There she is. Hello, Kate. Thank you for doing this. Hi, good to be here. Terrific. Thank you for coming, Uh, David. Let me just tell you a little bit about Kate. Uh, I first met Kate when she was a policy advocate for NARAL Pro-Choice America. And uh, then she, I think, went to law school, became an attorney, worked briefly for the American Civil Liberties Union's Reproductive Justice Project. And most importantly, she was the person who introduced me to something called the DC Abortion Fund. These are people who raise money to provide funding for people to come to D.C., stay here, get a safe and legal abortion. And these groups now have proliferated and we're going to need them more than ever in the coming years around the country. And it's uh, become a I'm much more likely to give funds to places that actually provide help for women and money for women to obtain abortions than for the constant stream of people who are advocates for reproductive justice, although I give to those as well. Kate, it's good to see you again. Hi, Barry. Good to see you, too. And you left out probably my most important experience, which was working with you for a summer at Americans United for Separation of Church and State. That is absolutely right. Well, let's start. Let's start with what could happen in the next couple of weeks uh, in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health uh, system lawsuit. Um, Everybody by now, I think, knows that there was a leaked document, a 
a Sam Alito draft of what would happen. And in it, it literally does eliminate all the constitutional underpinnings for Roe versus Wade back in 1973. The, the important thing, I hear this all the time, a little less these days than I did four to six weeks ago, people would say, it's just a draft. It's, it's going to be changed. And I would like to believe that, but I don't. I think that's a kind of whistling past the graveyard uh, mentality. There might be some things that are changed. I'm curious to your effect on this. Um, nine times in this draft, Alito cites Sir Matthew Hale, who, of course, was anti-abortion back in the 17th century. But he was also a man who claimed that there were witches around and, in fact, uh, executed back in, I think, the 1630s, at least two women for witchcraft. And when asked why did he think these were witches, he said there are laws against witchcraft. There wouldn't be laws against it if there weren't people really doing it. So the kind of a Ted Cruz way to argue. And um, but he was also a person who believed that women uh, were essentially chattel. They belonged to their husband. Husbands could not rape their wives. These, this is the mentality. Nine times it's cited. Now, I could see even Alito saying, well, maybe that's overkill. Let's just cite it four times. But are you as negative as I am about the long term likelihood that this draft document is going to be close to the decision that we see in four or six weeks? You know, Barry, I do tend to try to see the glass half full on many things, but on this particular opinion, advocates have been saying for years that a conservative Supreme Court will overturn the right to abortion, and folks said we were overreacting. Um, And so I'm not optimistic in this instance. And I am as concerned or perhaps even more concerned, um, given that I have spent my entire professional career, as well as my personal volunteer time, as you mentioned, trying to help people who need abortion care get that care. And the leaked opinion that we saw is going to be devastating for people across the country. And, um, I just don't hold out a lot of hope that we'll see much change between the leaked opinion and the official one when it's issued later this month, as as we expect it to be. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on this show, I interviewed Bill Baird, who brought the Eisenstadt versus Baird case. And he's, he's an astonishing person to talk to. And, uh, of course, it was that case, even more than Griswold versus Connecticut, that made it possible for married couples in Connecticut and around the country to get abortion, uh, to get uh, contraception. This one really moved the idea out of a privacy right under the 14th Amendment to make these very important and intimate personal decisions. I think he is right in fearing that if Roe goes this year, there will be efforts to get rid of contraception, at least for unmarried people. I don't think it's a stretch. I think that once you eliminate 
the possibility of having a privacy right enshrined in the Constitution, that you risk all of that. I think that's very much a possibility. Um, we have seen attempts to undermine access to contraception for many years, even when the right to privacy was still securely enshrined um, in our jurisprudence. And so now with the drawing into question of the foundation for the right to abortion, um, we could see things like access to contraception, the ability to choose um, whom we marry and build a life with, all of the fundamental um, building blocks of, of our modern lives um, that hinge on the right to privacy could very much be in jeopardy. Let's dig into pregnancy counseling centers. This is a kind of, to, to me, this is one of the worst institutions that has been created in the United States, possibly ranking well, I think ranking even above reparative therapy, which is centers of this phony idea that you can turn a person from gay to straight. And um, but let's dig into this. My, my understanding is there are at this point at least twenty five hundred of these abortion counseling centers that are really just anti-abortion centers in the United States. But it sounds good. Oh, we just got, we're going to talk to women. We're going to talk to them about their options. But none of that is true, is it? None of it is true. That's right. Um, the deception is the business model for these um, crisis pregnancy centers, uh, which are really anti-abortion fronts that are set up to resemble real healthcare clinics. Um, but all they peddle is lies and trickery. And you're right that there's this fundamental undermining of the dignity and the humanity and the autonomy of the people who become their, their unwitting victims, people who are looking for help when facing an unplanned pregnancy. Um, and I, I would be happy to talk to you about some of the forms of lies and deception that the business model operates on, um, but it really runs from the places that these centers are located, the, the way they name and market themselves, all the way through the experiences of women when they, when they walk in the door. Yeah, let's talk about some of the lies they tell. Um, when Emil was, was on with us a few minutes ago, we t when, I, when I couldn't figure out where my head was, uh, he talked about sitting, sitting on yellow pages in Washington when he was a journalist here. Um, I remember when I lived in Boston for a while and living here in Washington now, this, this background is, is fake, of course. I don't really live on the ocean. But you used to pick up a, a yellow pages from a city and you would go to abortion counseling and most of the entries would be these phony clinics established by Birthright or a number of other major national organizations. So it was really uh, deluding people into thinking if you call those numbers, you were going to get comprehensive support. But it's much worse than that. It's not just that they fib a little bit. It's that they fundamentally lie about what they do. So what are a couple of the big lies they tell? 
Sure. So I think the most um, troubling set of lies that you would experience when looking for help um, starts with the names of these centers. They often will choose neutral names or names that are very similar to legitimate um, healthcare providers, things like first choice or options for women. Um, and so people will come to them without any true understanding of what they're getting into. Um, and then once women are in the door, they are subject to a, a whole slew of lies that are designed to trick them about their bodies, trick them about legal and medical realities, and ultimately those lies end up costing them their right to choose an abortion. Um, a couple of those lies that I have uncovered and written about in some of my research include um, lies about whether a woman is pregnant at all. Um, women will take pregnancy tests at these centers and be told that they're not pregnant when in fact they are. And then weeks or months later, when they visit a legitimate healthcare center, they learn that they may be 15, 19, 24 weeks into a pregnancy when it may be too late to do anything about it. Um, women may know that they're pregnant and be told that they're pregnant, but be informed that they're only four or six weeks along and that they have plenty of time to decide what they want to do. When in fact, they are quite close to the gestational cutoff where abortion services are no longer available. And the, these centers know that full well and, and lie about the medical realities that are happening. And then also, one other example, I'll, I'll just give you one sure. more, is um, lies about the legal context, that there are plenty of instances where women have been told abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy. And so you really should just take your time, come back and visit us a, a few more times and, and we'll figure this out together. Um, when in fact, abortion access has been curtailed and limited um, and, and rolled back so much that abortion in some states, as we know in Texas, right, is available only until the fifth week of pregnancy. Right. And so these are just not differences of opinion. These are not sort of perspectives where reasonable minds may differ. These are fundamental realities that these centers lie about. They also lie about the medical consequences of having an abortion. There was a long uh, study done by, of all people, C. Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan, and a person I used to have fights with about this and many other issues. Um, and he was asked during the Reagan administration to do a study on the psychological negative consequences. And he looked at all the research, did a meta-analysis of everything, and reached the conclusion there was no evidence of any serious psychological problems. And of course, he was pilloried by the so-called right to life community. But he looked at the data and to his credit, which he also got a little credit for at least focusing on the AIDS crisis for a while, albeit a bit late. But um, there is no there is no consequence. The other side, though, hauls out particular individuals as if one individual who had some negative action reaction was a justification for denying abortion rights 
and abortion care to everyone. They lie. They don't. They, they say abortions cause breast cancer. Totally debunked. Again, as you say, it's not an opinion. It's simply factually incorrect. There is no data to support it. But they do it and they say it. And nobody is nobody able to say, wait a minute, that's not true. You can't say that. Don't we have a federal trade commission that says you have to advertise honestly about your product and your services? Yes. So you make a good point there. Um, There actually have been efforts to rein in these kinds of lies um, based on some fair trade practice requirements. And um, that's also something that I've written about is the use of consumer protection laws to try to curb the kinds of flat out lies and false advertising that these crisis pregnancy centers engage in. Um, From about the 1980s through the late 1990s, a number of states attorneys general brought um, enforcement actions against these centers using consumer protection and and fair trade laws. Um, And and it was in actually a number of states that you might not expect. There were the usual characters, the New Yorks and the Californias, but attorneys general in Texas, Ohio, and North Dakota also brought um, investigations and enforcement suits And ultimately, the courts agreed with them and found that these centers were violating fundamental consumer protection laws that prohibit institutions and and businesses from lying to consumers about the services that they offer. The the services that they are, if you walk into one of these so-called clinics, you're going to see people dressed like they're nurses and doctors. They are wearing scrubs. They have medical equipment. They have ultrasound machines. Now they may not want to use them because they don't want you to know too soon that you're pregnant, but it has all the croppings of, it's kind of a a movie version of what to expect. And, uh, but it's highly, highly insulting and highly inflammatory in terms of what they're actually offering. Now, the one thing they might offer, and there are some, some articles over the last few years that have been written about this, they offer women diapers. They offer them baby clothes, maybe even baby formula, which sounds like a good deal now that we're having a crisis in delivering baby formula. But it comes at a cost. They don't give you those things for nothing. What's the cost if you take a diaper from them or some baby formula? What do you have to do in exchange for that? Yeah, so many of these centers have a program where parents or or pregnant people can earn uh, the types of supplies that you mentioned. And often they earn those supplies by attending Bible study classes or um, joining in protests at abortion clinics. So participating in the indoctrination and the inculcation of, of views that the center may hold. Not all of these centers are, are religiously affiliated, but a majority are. Um, and so a person who needs help has to trade her 
values um, or her her worldview, whether it may be secular or of a different religion, um, for the, the material assistance that's offered. If a woman walks into one of these clinics and flatly says, I'm not sure if I want to have an abortion, but I want that to be an option. Do you provide that? What would they say? So there's actually um, a manual that many of these centers use that's provided by one of the national umbrella organizations that, that run these centers that coaches um, these counselors on how to provide evasive answers and how to keep someone within the center for as long as possible. And so some of the options may be, oh, we offer information about all of your choices. Um, or there's actually a documentary called 12th in Delaware that was nice. put out by um, two very accomplished documentarians about 10 or 15 years ago at this point that shows a, a training for these counselors where um, the trainer advises, if someone calls me on the phone and says, I'm trying to schedule an abortion. Do you do abortions? Rather than saying no, the trainer advises saying, are you calling for yourself or are you calling for a friend? And keeping the person on the line long enough to convince her to come into the center where more of these kind of acts of deceit, the, the, um, the lab coats and the, keepsake ultrasounds that are not really um, medically diagnostic, all of those um, props continue this, this sort of um, trickery until ultimately the person has been robbed of, of her real choices. One of the things that uh, I know you've taken a look at is in the event that Roe is overturned, and which I, I think most of the people who listen to this would be sad if that happens, but I think they're probably where you and I are, which is to say it looks almost inevitable. So if it's overturned and then someone goes to these crisis pregnancy centers and gives information like where they live, what's their name? Do they... Do you have a husband? All that data that's being collected, then we'll use to go back to the law in Texas, will be used in theory to rat on people who have an abortion or who might be thinking about it. So if they said Barry Lynn with an IE instead of a Y, Barry Lynn came in and I think we talked him out of having an abortion, but you might want to check two weeks from now. Is that a real, and that's a fear I have. Is it a realistic fear? It's it's not just something we have to fear in the future. It's something that's happening now. Um, there are no laws that bar these centers from using personal information that women may offer um, from following up with them, um, having prayer circle meetings at their church to pray for Kate Blatt, nice. who came in abortion minded is, is that their term of art and circulating, you know, my name on a prayer list serve. Nice. Um, HIPAA does not attach to these centers unless they are medicalized, which some are, some are increasingly, um, having this kind of cloak of legitimacy by, by medicalizing, but, but most of them are not bound by any kind of confidentiality requirements. So that's happening now. 
<laughs> my um, whole interest in separation of church and state, it didn't become uh, an issue because of prayer in schools or funding religious Catholic high schools with tax money. It came because of this issue. It came because I realized when talking to a friend of mine who was about to take his then girlfriend to London over spring break in order to obtain an abortion. And I said, why don't you just go to Massachusetts? You know, you, you, you live close to New York. Why don't you just go there? And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that the extraordinary power of the Roman Catholic Church in those two states, and in fact, in most states, was overwhelming. If the hierarchy of the church didn't think anyone should have an abortion, then the state legislatures would not permit it. And I believe that when I first met you, the first night I saw you, we were at a Politics and Prose, which for people who don't live in Washington is one of the best bookstores, independent bookstores around. And there was a woman who had written a book about her efforts to bring choice to New York State. People forget all of that. They forget how difficult it was prior to Roe to get any movement, even in state legislatures and otherwise reasonably liberal states, to allow a woman the right to choose. That's right. Um, we had to learn these lessons uh, the hard way um, almost 50 years ago, and we're going to have to learn them again. Um, it was the experiences of, so my, let me tell you a story. My aunt was a pediatric intensivist. She was one of the sort of early wave of women who were allowed to train in emergency medicine, but it had to be with a connection to children. Um, that was what was considered appropriate. And some of her patients um, in, in the late 60s and early 70s were young girls in Tennessee um, who were coming in septic from having had illegal abortions. And nowadays, uh, there are other safer ways for people to self-manage and, and control um, ending their pregnancies, including taking medications, which are much, much safer than, you know, the coat hangers of, of the past. But it was doctors and clergy like yourself and others who saw um, what happened when abortion was not safely available, um, who helped advocate for change. And I'm worried that we're going to have to start to relearn those lessons from scratch now um, and, and go through that entire painful uh, fight to win back and rebuild uh, the right to abortion. Do you believe that in the event that Roe is overturned, is there a clear way to fix the statutes of federal law or state legislative actions that would start to bring this right back, at least in some states? Or do you do what I fear, that if you remove the underpinning of privacy as a constitutional right, and then you try to say, well, Abortion is legal now in Massachusetts. Uh, people go, no, 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 we, we don't, you can't do that. Because if a fetus is a person, that's the next step in the right to life movement. 
if it's a person, you can't legalize murder. And then, of course, as we know from the infamous Hobby Lobby case, when the Hobby Lobby case was argued at the Supreme Court, I was there and Justice Scalia mentioned that, well, most forms of contraception and induce abortions are just abortifacients. And the guy arguing for the government, I think it was in the uh, Obama administration, didn't even bother to challenge that. That's how you get in. You say, no, 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 it's 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 just like an abortion. And if abortion is a murder, you can't legalize murder in the state of New York. You think I'm maybe a little over the top on this one? Or would you worry about the same thing? You know, I do think that there's a lot that states can do and that states are already doing and are hyper motivated to do because of the urgency, because of this looming reality of the loss of the federal constitutional right to, to abortion. And so states are picking up the slack, at least the, the blue states and, and maybe even some of the purple states are adding to their own constitutions um, amendments that enshrine the right to reproductive choice. Or they are passing statutes that um, protect patients and providers and helpers who bring folks in from from other states so that they can safely get abortions within sort of the sanctuary of of that blue state um i am not certain how effective those types of measures will be now that there are these sort of previously unconscionable um seemingly unconstitutional efforts in the red states to reach into the confines of the massachusetts's and the new york's in the District of Columbia to say, be that as it may within your own state, you may think abortion is legal, but because that person came from my state where abortion is murder, where abortion is banned, we wanna extradite you. We want you to come to Texas or Missouri or wherever it is and face charges. Again, that kind of overreach would have been unthinkable and and maybe laughable a few years ago, but it's not clear now how we're going to hold these firm boundaries and make sure that there are at least some places in the states where where these rights are protected. But we're trying. Yeah. Um, One of the other people I used to have fights with all the time was Senator Rick Santorum a perennial Republican candidate for the presidency. Uh, But uh, Rick Santorum, of course, is from Pennsylvania. Uh, In looking at some articles the last couple of days, in Pennsylvania, there is one of these uh, counseling counseling sessions uh, to get $6 million in government funds. Under what stretch of what laws is it possible to give these lying, corrupt organizations funding, even even if they're purely secular? I have a little trouble believing there are such arguments when people say, but there are secular people who are against abortion. And I go, I knew one, Nat Hentoff, the columnist for The Village Voice. And I said, you know, I knew Nat there wouldn't be an anti-choice movement in this country if it depended on people like Matt Hentoff organizing the public because he couldn't do that worth a damn. 
But the church does. The church is good at organizing and bringing busloads of high school students from Catholic schools around the country for that infamous March for Life every January. Yeah, the, you're right that a number of states do fund these crisis pregnancy centers and even some federal dollars flow to them. For those that have medicalized, um, some of them do bill Medicaid um, for some of the services they provide. Very few of them provide any real legitimate medical services, but but the few that do may get federal Medicaid dollars. Um, also, sex ed grants if you can believe it, go to these centers. Um, Many of them teach an abstinence-only curriculum um, that is rife with the kind of misinformation that you mentioned, um, distortions about um, the harms of abortion, um, undermining the reliability or or credibility of, of birth control methods, telling folks, you know, that condoms aren't effective, hormonal birth control is not effective. So there are actually a number of governmental funding streams at both the federal and state levels that that go to these centers. And so that's going to be a really important place um, for advocates and members of the public to to be watchful and to demand that government dollars not support this kind of misinformation. Are all of these entities nonprofits? Because if you're a nonprofit, you have a extensive reporting requirements. Where do you get your money? Where does the money go? But if you're set up as a for-profit organization, the public has no right to see those internal records. So are most of these nonprofits, are some of them, are is it split half and half? My understanding is that they are almost all nonprofits. I don't know that definitively. And in fact, some of the most informal ones that are run in church basements, for instance, um, may not be incorporated as nonprofits, but are acting under the auspices of of the church's, you know, innate tax exemption. Um, But there may be some for-profits. I'm not aware of them, but my understanding is they are largely incorporated as nonprofits. Um, I I may have told this story. uh, We also interviewed a couple of weeks ago, Rob Schenck, Pastor Rob Schenck. If you went to Supreme Court arguments on the separation of church and state or on LBGT rights or choice, he would be out there with a collar on, with a cross, or with a pulpit. But he's come around dramatically on this issue. And when he talked to us a couple of weeks ago, he said he was in jail, I think in the D.C. jail. And in another wing of the jail, he could hear this African-American woman screaming all night. She was pregnant. She wanted to have an abortion. She didn't know how to have it. And this was a kind of genuine come to Jesus moment for Rob Shank. And it changed his entire outlook on all of these issues. And on the show, he he apologized to me and he said, you know, um, 30 years ago, I I used to have this thought, maybe Barry's right about these things, but it took him 30 years to reach a conclusion that he too is pro-choice. So those people, can they're out there and they can change. And even in the Catholic Church, um, 
I taught for a couple of years at Cardinal Cushing Central High School for girls in South Boston, the most Catholic place outside of uh, parts of Ireland. And um, I taught a class with a woman who was recently divorced, a kind of sex education class. One day I got a note in my mailbox, my teacher mailbox from the principal and said, Barry, uh, could you come to see me later today? So I went in, I sat down. She said, are you bringing people from Planned Parenthood in here to talk to our students? And I figured I had to be honest. I had to say yes. And then I figured the next thing I'd be doing is cleaning out my locker. But she, but it wasn't. She She said, you know, our girls need to learn this stuff somehow. And having met many of their boyfriends, I, their boyfriends ought to be learning the same thing, too. But even within that Catholic community, there are people who, whatever they might think about the theology of reproductive choice, when push comes to shove, they have to protect the integrity and moral judgment of their own students. Those are kind of, uh, my, that was one of my come to Jesus moments. <laughs> Tell me about this. During the Trump years, uh, there was a regulation passed or adopted that said that any funds that came in on any government programs that went to discussions of family planning could not talk about abortion. You couldn't send someone to another place to get it. You couldn't counsel about where it's available. Has that regulation been repealed in the Biden administration? Yes, it has. So we called that restriction the domestic gag rule. You might be familiar with or your listeners might know about the global gag rule, which imposed similar kinds of restrictions on international aid programs. Um, and that has sort of been an on-off switch between um, Republican and Democratic presidents. Usually one of the first executive actions a, a new president will take is either to lift the gag rule on international aid or reimpose it, depending on the politics of, of the president. And this was a domestic version of that, which reached in and told family planning clinics that received government support that, as you said, they, they could not counsel for abortion. What they could do, though, was send people on sort of an Easter egg hunt. They could give them a list of some clinics that provided abortion care and some that didn't, but not indicate which was which. And that was the furthest that they could go towards providing an answer to the question, okay, and I think I'm pregnant, what can I do if I need an abortion? Um, so that was quite um, a subversion of the idea of informed consent and right. medical ethics. And yes, that restriction has been lifted under the Biden administration. Good. When you look at the future of all of this and you look at what might happen, let's forget what happens in the Mississippi case. But when you look further down the road, what are the remedies to prevent, to make sure that abortion is safe and legal? When people say, well, if, if Roe is overturned, there'll be no abortion. Oh, there'll be plenty of abortions, but they won't be safe abortions. 
I don't think people fully understand what happens when abortion is illegal. Many of the doctors, and I'm sure you know some of them that I spoke to over decades, would talk to me about women coming to them pleading with them to have a safe abortion. And in some states, they could get it if they went to the right doctor. But are we going to be in a position again where we're going to have to have things like the underground railway, you know, that Howard Moody at the Judson Memorial Church in, in Greenwich Village was such instrumental in helping men and women get to other countries in most cases to obtain safe and legal abortions abortion ain't going away but safe abortion is going to be seriously seriously curtailed that's right and sort of the network that you refer to um, of old the underground railroad that you you mentioned we have that network now you you referred to it in your opening remarks the network of abortion funds that have been doing the work to help pay for abortion care and help people travel from abortion care deserts to cities and states where care is more readily available, that network is going to be such a central player in helping people move between states. Um, At the moment, they're already helping people get out of Texas and get to surrounding states. But now pregnant women in Texas are going to have to travel much further and far fewer of them will be able to navigate all the barriers, the logistical, the financial, the emotional barriers to get that care. And so we will need all the helpers that we can get. Mm -hmm. And um, even with their committed dedicated work, there are still going to be people who can't get to safe abortion care. When you look at what would happen the day after Roe is overturned, as again, for people who just joined us, we think it will. We hope it won't. We hope something changes. But um, how many states are immediately going to be back on the books with serious curtailments or complete elimination of the possibility of abortion? How many states right away? So I am forgetting whether the figure is 24 or 26, but that somewhere around half the states will either immediately trigger abortion bans that are sitting on the book, spring loaded and ready to go into effect as as soon as um, Roe is overturned, or they have these sort of dormant pre-Roe bans um, on the books that will again be enforceable without this federal protection. And so it's about half the states where we will lose access to safe and legal abortion. When you come across people in the anti-choice movement, how many of them are true believers? How many of them honestly believe that abortion kills a baby and they're going to be pro-life? You know, I spent a lot of time on the radio with Oliver North, who's one of the few people who, uh, although I wouldn't want to 
agree with the parallel completely, but he was totally against the death penalty. And he said to me, and he used to make calls to governors who were about to execute someone. And he would say, I, you know, it can't be anti-abortion and pro-death penalty. But I don't know too many people that have that level of, if you can call it consistency, have that consistency. But the, the March for Life people, the governors who say, we're going to make Oklahoma the most pro-life state in the union. Do they really believe this or are they talking to a base of people, 20 or 25 percent of the electorate who honestly do believe it? And they're just floating down that road on a raft of ignorance. Well, when you talk about consistency and having sort of a so-called pro-life viewpoint, um, when I was at NARAL, we had a, a metric that we would use to look at how extreme restrictions were on abortion in a particular state and how children and moms were faring in that state, nice. right? And there was an inverse relationship. The, the more restrictive the laws on abortion were, the worse supports there were available. The, the fewest um, preschool programs that were publicly funded, the, the shortest period of um, eligibility for Medicaid for pregnant women, um, the lowest cap on TANF funding, on, on welfare support. And so I don't think there's a lot of consistency um, in, in the so-called pro-life viewpoint. The, it just, as we wrap this up, talk about TANF a little bit, because my understanding is that TANF funds also occasionally are used in these pregnancy counseling centers. Is that right? Yes, I don't understand all the mechanics of it. I do have to confess that up front, but my cursory understanding is that some states can take certain portions of funds that are meant to support families um, and pregnant women and kind of grant those to these pregnancy centers to provide services. And as we've heard, you know, the services that, that they may provide are severely lacking and really not an effective use of, of dollars that are really meant to help support needy moms and kids. Would it make a difference if we expanded the size of the Supreme Court so that we don't have these clowns appointed by the Trump administration? And how, uh, I mean, I've been talking about this on shows for two years. How does anybody look at the record of Amy Coney Barrett, realize that two years before she's nominated, she writes, she signs onto an advertisement in a newspaper that calls the act of abortion barbaric. Why do you have to wonder where is she going to stand on Roe versus Wade? She told you publicly. And then why did so many Democrats just kind of hope she might change her mind. If I had the answer to that, <laughs> I feel like I would be, um, I would be in high demand, um, <laughs> higher demand than a, a show that's competing with the, with the house um, investigation committee tonight. <laughs> um, but you're right that 
Amy Coney Barrett showed her true colors well in advance of her confirmation to the court. And a handful of other justices who pledged to uphold precedent have now been revealed to have been lying. Um, And so we really do need to think carefully about the reforms um, that would be appropriate on the court. It might also be worth thinking about term limits and doing away with, um, with lifetime appointments. Yeah, I say um, I must get uh, 25 solicitations and email every day for doing something like ending term limits, which, of course, might require a constitutional amendment, I think. But uh, but it's uh, it's the procedural things. I mean, I do wish at the time I was at Americans United those 25 years, I had spent more time focused on structural governance issues, not in the institution of Americans United, but in the country as a whole, because maybe, just maybe, we'd have gotten a little bit further on the road to guaranteeing the right to reproductive justice. Let me see if David has some thoughts or questions here. As well, we wrap thank you up. so much, Kate, for doing this. It's, uh, I, I, I think about all the gains that were made by the time Roe v. Wade was passed. And back then, I would assume a lot of people decided, well, we can relax now. All gains, everything we gain, we are in danger of losing, aren't we? How do we remember to hold on to what we have because they're they're coming for it. They are they will take everything away. Our right for contraception, our right to premarital sex, uh, our right to any kind of sex we want as long as it involves adults. They are coming for all of it. It doesn't stop with abortion, does it? No, it doesn't. And I think the way that we hold on to what we have is to recognize that and to link arms and to lean on the support of um, our colleagues in the in the gay rights community and um, in the trans community and recognizing that these things are linked together and it's not just women who have abortions, who need to be out there clamoring in the streets and paying attention to the policy positions of of folks up and down the ballot in local elections and state level elections, that it's all of the people um, who we share values with who need to show up and, and be aware that it's not just abortion that's on the line. It's it's all of the the rights and and pleasures in our lives that you've mentioned. What is their end game? What what do they want? What does the and I consider them the enemy. They consider me the enemy. I consider them the enemy. Do they have an end game or they just want to keep stripping and stripping and stripping? What what will make them stop? What what can you give to them? 
that will sate their appetite to strip us. If you gave them abortion, if you outlawed abortion and said, now leave us alone, would that be enough? I don't think it will be um, because the leaked opinion portended, right? It laid out the roadmap for what's next on the chopping block, contraception, and what's next after that gay marriage, and what's next after that gay sex, and so on and so forth. It all starts to collapse um, when you take out the the linchpin around privacy rights and, and individual autonomy. I don't, I can't purport to be inside the minds of the folks who are so dead set on on taking us backwards but um i sure hope that we don't have to see what they what the the final end game is i sure hope that we can kind of create a bulwark and, and stop the erosion reverend barry and kate maybe you can help me with this we are left on this show we're leftists most of us filter issues through the prism of class struggle. Some of us sometimes believe that the right doesn't want to outlaw abortion. They just use it as a cudgel to keep the religious fundamentalists on their side of the ledger. Is that true? Or when you get into the higher echelons of the right wing, the moneyed class, the the DeVos, the people who are subsidizing these candidates. Are they true believers? Do they truly want to get rid of abortion? Do they truly want to take away our right to contraception? Or are they just playing to the religious rubes? I, I think they are playing to their base religious and other wise rubes. I, I don't think for a moment that they care deeply about fetuses. I don't think they care that much about who marries whom. I just think they know that this is a core of 25% or 30% in some states of the votes, and they need to get those votes. Rick Santorum okay. is a true believer. He's not part of the ruling class. He's a flunky. But Rick Santorum believes this nonsense, doesn't he? I think Rick Santorum does, but I think most of the people that you see bloviating about this on television are politicians who want their power more than they care about what happens to fetuses or gay people. That's just the talking points that they're told by all their consultants. That's what you need to get a base of people so that you can just work on another 10 or 15% to guarantee that you'll be elected next time. Kate? Kate I'll just share that one of the jokes that we had in inside the pro-choice movement was about the exceptions to abortion bans the permissible exceptions were life, rape, and me, right? So that idea that I'm opposed to abortion unless someone's life is on the line, unless it was an, an instance of rape, or if it's me. 
And so I think that that tells you what you need to know about whether folks are true believers. Okay. Do you mind if we change the subject and get a quick update on the January 6 hearings? And I please. I, yeah, I sure. think I think that uh, you haven't I, I don't think I know you're brilliant, but I don't think you can multi multitask to the point where you could also be paying attention to uh, the hearings that are opposite. I suspect the, the the big takeaway so far from what I can tell is that Liz Cheney revealed that Republican Congressperson Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, as well as several other congressional Republicans after the January 6th riot, approached Donald Trump for a presidential pardon. They refused to testify or provide any information to the committee. But why would Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania approach Donald Trump for a pardon after January 6. That seems to, so far, seems to me to be the big story. An important story. You don't ask for a pardon unless no. you broke the law. That's pretty much true. Right. Pretty much true. I hope there's more to it than that, though, over the course of the next hour and a half or however long it lasts. Right. That's important, but uh, I'd like to get a little more information on what the Trump children thought. Right. What they did. Maybe we'll get that in the next hour. And we will be finding out that Republican Congress people helped plan that it was an inside job. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a fringe element to the Republican Party who in, in the House of Representatives who assisted in this insurrection. There is no doubt. And there is also no doubt in my mind that Merrick Garland lacks the temerity to prosecute them. No matter what evidence is presented to Merrick Garland. He will not prosecute a, a sitting United States congressperson for sedition. Will not do it. Afraid you're right. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you, Kate. Please come back. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And again, Barry, it was great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, great job as always. Every time you bring a, a guest on the show, it's it's fantastic. Kate Vlach is a lawyer. She has spent more than a decade fighting to advance reproductive rights and health. And she exposed tonight the these fake abortion clinics. And uh, we have to be careful. And uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn ran Americans United for separation of church and state for nearly a quarter of a century. He is a lawyer, a barrister, a counselor, an attorney, as well as a member of the Supreme Court Bar. 
as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Thank you, Reverend. Great job. Thank you thank, for this. Thank you. Stay out of See trouble. You next week. Stay out of trouble. Oh, only good trouble. Only okay. good trouble. Thank you, Reverend. Well, <laughs> it is time for the professors and Mary Ann. I don't think we have Professor Mary Ann, but we have Professor Ann Lee. So that's great news. And yay, Professor Ann Lee. And we also have Professor Adnan Hussein. I'm not going to embarrass him or uh, reveal anything uh, uh, about your family, but somebody has a really handsome uh, son. Oh, thank you very much, David. I, I He's saw. a lovely boy. Yes. And let me, uh, there we go. Uh, Reverend Barry, would you like to stick around since we don't have Professor Marianne? Reverend? Oh, Reverend, let uh, I I have got to deal with a small family matter. So you know I what? I've changed my, you know what? You. Uh, I, 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 I changed my mind. I don't want you to participate. Yeah, don't. Okay. I don't think I want to. No, I want to, but. But you're not I invited. Tonight. You're not invited. <laughs> Good. Well, then I'm just going to stay on and just talk constantly until I, I get everybody upset. Look, look, I'm, I've got a, I think Ann Lee's already upset. I've changed my mind. I've rescinded the invitation. On second thought. <laughs> Thank you, Reverend. All right. Well, I will. Uh, I'll see you next week thank if I decide to show up. Okay. Thank you. Please come back. Uh, okay. So, bye. Thank you, <laughs> Professor Ann Lee is with us. Thank God, Professor Jonathan Bick is with us, and we also have Joe in Norway. I did some defensive eating, Joe. Uh oh. Can you? So. Can you I. I went and grabbed something to eat because you torture us. I can't see you, though. My video is not on. Oh, no, no, it is on. It looked like it was a still. Yeah, it looked fake. It, it looked, by the way, there you go. It looked like the web page for Rahima.org. It has all the healthy food that Rahima.org provides to refugees in the Bay Area. Everybody should go to Rahima.org, find out more about what Professor Adnan Hussein's parents are doing for people in need. It's a great organization. What are you cooking? What are you preparing for us on the tortilla cam? Well, I've got a friend of the show, Beans, I'll be cooking up, a pot of beans to go with fresh tortillas. I have some masa here, corn masa. It's a, a special corn flour that um, goes through a process called nixtamalization, where they transform the, the uh, protein with a uh, alkaline solution that makes it in combination with the protein from the beans and the corn, you have a complete protein, vegetarian protein. Uh, this let, let's a, uh, oh, hang on for one second. When when after the professors and Marianne, I want you to uh, to explain that to me because beans okay. are a major part of my diet. And I, I and how are you going to cook beans in an hour? Pressure cooker? A pressure cooker, of course. 
So they take about 25 minutes, and I'll be nice and firm. They go 30 minutes, they'll be creamier. So within a half hour, you can cook beans. Um, These have been soaked overnight, so about eight hours. And in a pressure cooker, they take a third of the time of normal beans. And I'll also be making a uh, salad of chahote, which is a squash, funky, crunchy squash. And Yeah, uh, I don't show the squash there. Let me see the squash again. Yeah, don't show that. There are kids watching. Oh, how dare you do that? I apologize to the, the parents who are watching right now. This is a, I'm certainly not going to let my son take a look at any of this. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I apologize. I keep him away from this uh, image on this show. I apologize, it Professor. Masquerades is a pear, but it's, it's a very versatile vegetable. It's I, I know. <laughs> Listen, I, I have to confiscate that vegetable. You have to mail that to me ASAP. <laughs> I think I'm in love. <laughs> <laughs> That is the most, okay, don't belabor it, Feldman. Move on. Get to work, Joe. Yes. Thank you. And I have questions to ask you about a pressure cooker. Well, let's start with Professor Ann Lee, who you can read every day over at the Daily Co's. Her handle is Annie Lee. I'm so glad to see you. What would you like to talk about? Well, there's plenty to talk about. Uh, The... The January 6th uh, committee is, uh, you know, doing their thing. I, I, it's uh, actually quite, quite interesting. Well, maybe only for those of us who really obsess about it. And they managed to compress a lot of information in a very short amount of time and um, showed enough explicit content, I think, to grab people's attention. Um, That's good to know. Otherwise, Yeah. yeah. Well, let's come back. We'll come back to that. Let me find out what Professor Jonathan Bick would like to talk about. Well, David, I'm going to be talking about the um, importance of uh, Social Security for people of all ages. Uh, A report was issued last week uh, by the Social Security Administration uh, on the uh, condition of Social Security. And uh, I think it's worth uh, looking at that and also looking into a bill that was introduced by uh, Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren today um, to enhance Social Security. Okay, great. January 6th, Social Security and Professor Adnan Hussein, what would you like to talk about? Well, I was interested perhaps in talking a little bit about uh, the effect of sanctions, um, both on Iran and latest developments in the Iran nuclear deal not being uh, brought back into effect. And possibly also, although it's a little bit out of date, perhaps, but there was a lot about a week or so ago of discussion about the consequences of the sanctions against Russia, whether they were working to actually really... um, compel Russia to suffer economic harm that might induce it uh, to come to the table um, for negotiations um, or the other side of it, um, what are the consequences and effects on food shortage and uh, debt crises? We've already seen Sri Lanka uh, default on its debt and um, 
there's increasing indications that, uh, you know, even the UN and uh, governments, NATO governments are recognizing that the sanctions are going to have a terrible effect uh, on food prices uh, and possibly hunger in the global south. Okay, let's start off, Professor Annalee, with the January 6th hearings. They're in recess right now. We're learning so far that it was Mike Pence, not Donald Trump, who ordered the National Guard uh, to respond to the January 6th riot. That's kind of interesting. We're learning that Representative Scott Perry and a few other GOP Congress people sought pardons from Trump after January 6th. And that we witnessed, if we were watching it, a series of videos making it very clear that Donald Trump was told he lost, that Bill Barr, the attorney general, said it was bullshit, quote unquote, any uh, attempts to uh, challenge this uh, election. Ivanka Trump testified that she says there was no fraud sufficient to overturn the election. And Trump ignored his advisors, or most of them, and soldiered on to reverse the, the election. Uh, what, what is your impression from what you've been able to see? Well, I was multitasking, but it's sort of interesting to see uh, Jared Kushner as uh, being much more animated, I think, in a uh, deposition than we've ever seen him before. I, I've never seen him as animated. He, there's, there was a whole bunch of gesticulation and hand movements, and it, that was pretty amusing to me. Um, is that because you think, is that because he was nervous or that he's used to being deposed and he has a little routine that he does? Uh, perhaps a little of both, but I think uh, he's just much more animated than, than I think he's really in, in any other instance, he's just been incredibly stiff. Um, it could be that he just ignored the, the fact that there was a camera there and he was being recorded, but I'm, I'm sure he's been uh, deposed uh, a bunch of times. Uh, what was more interesting today uh, actually was something that didn't make the news very, very much, but it has a lot to do with our ability to um, defend or uh, enforce law. And that is uh, today's uh, SCOTUS decision uh, to uh, 63 vote to essentially allow the Border Patrol to uh, uh, engage in warrantless searches uh, to uh, anywhere, anyhow, under the guise ostensibly of um, national security. And this hasn't gotten a lot of play, but it is a, uh, the, the dissenting opinion was by Sotomayor, who said that this was just, you know, essentially said it was a lot of BS and essentially insulted uh, <laughs> Alito, uh, among other people. Uh, that they were being incredibly arbitrary and capricious. Um, it comes from a case, uh, it's the application of Bivens, uh, which is about uh, due process and uh, involved a case in uh, Blaine, Washington, uh, a, 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 a bed and breakfast that's on the Canadian border. And uh, it, apparently people routinely go back and forth. And this, the very specific case, what 
was uh, this bed and breakfast owner was a, a confidential informant um, uh, for uh, Customs Border Patrol. And uh, he he usually tipped off the, the CBP about uh, people trafficking either themselves or others across the border. In one particular case, however, uh, a uh, one agent overstepped his bounds and uh, beat up uh, this uh, confidential informant. The informant was suing and um, saying that his rights had been violated in the Fourth Amendment. And uh, uh, essentially, the Supreme Supreme Court decided, well, no, <laughs> we can do what we like within a, a hundred uh, a hundred mile border uh, for the United States. And uh, what was interesting, of course, is that uh, uh, it also includes the, the, the kinds of issues that we have with uh, Uvalde, um, Texas, because it's within the 100-mile uh, boundary. It's 70 miles inland and has a border patrol uh, station in town. And the issue, of course, being that uh, as uh, forceful as uh, entities like Bortac, the uh, attack, the uh, SWAT team for the Border Patrol is, uh, they obviously not not well organized. The whole, the whole issue of uh, who's the whole question of whether rights are being protected, regardless of who you are, uh, are being uh, incredibly violated, and um, it, it's just. Actually, quite surprising that they would move in this direction because this uh, ruling also covers things like uh, uh, the uh, uh, border, uh, the BORTAC units going to Portland, Oregon, uh, and during the the demonstrations uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, abducting people, throwing them into vans, and uh, carting them away and then letting people go and, and no, no accountability was being made uh, at these kinds of things uh, other than, you know, uh, the usual kinds of violence that occurs, uh, repressive violence occurring. So I, I, I just, these are all sort of of a piece, um, including the fact that uh, now the uh, embedded, uh, I think he's a Brit, uh, a British uh, documentarian who's embedded with the, uh, the Proud Boys is now uh, testifying, and um, there's it's it's showing a lot more collusive interrelationship between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. So there's there's a lot of uh, law enforcement stuff going on that is happening a little bit more sub rosa. Uh, but as I say, I think this uh, Supreme Court ruling is is going to be incredibly problematic as we move forward, uh, just because. Uh, uh, there's just going to be have to be more cases uh, that need to test this this proposition because otherwise it's going to be broadly applied. And when you actually look at the 100 mile uh, border patrol uh, um, um, zone of jurisdiction, remember it's 100 miles not just at the ocean coastal borders of the Gulf of Mexico. But it's 100 miles from the Canadian border as well. And when you actually measure it out, it includes all of Michigan is within the Border Patrol uh, territory. So, uh, it, and, and it also includes, of course, all ports of entry. Like, uh, um, I guess there's direct, there used to be direct flights from Cincinnati to London. So, technically, the Border Patrol could be applied in the middle of Ohio. So, <laughs> 
we're bordered there. Uh, and when you say border patrol, matter, you're talking about ICE. No, I'm talking about CP, CBP, but of course, ICE uses uh, CBP as uh, its sort of uh, uh, muscle, as it were. Yeah. But no, it's it's about customs and border patrol, uh, border enforcement. Um, so anyway, that was uh, an interesting observation. And, and people like Ellie Mistal got real pissed off and 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 uh, did a, a little Twitter Twitter rant about it, uh, saying this is like this is like a really bad thing and no one's noticing it. Right. And, and I sort of trust uh, Ellie Mistal. Right. The case was brought Can by uh, the case was the, the name of the bed and breakfast, ironically. Smugglers in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Professor Bick. I, I just wanted to underscore a larger point that that this Supreme Court decision and others by a conservative court, uh, uh, you know, shows in, in good relief here. I think that uh, conservatives uh, do not value freedom. Right. They. They, they value the police powers of the state. You know, they constantly talk about they want a smaller government, but not when it comes to the coercive powers of the state. Not when it comes to police power and military power. They want that to be as strong as possible. They want the government to be able to kill you with the death penalty. They, they do not protect the, the Fourth Amendment, which is, which is what it is issue with this, this case. Uh, you know, prohibitions against uh, unlawful search and seizures, that you have to have a warrant in order to do that. No, they want to give the government as much leeway as possible to infringe upon your right to be secure in your persons, in your house, in your papers, and, and, uh, and you know, all the rest of it. So it's just a lie when conservatives say they want freedom. What they mean by freedom is for the powerful, the wealthy, and corporations to be able to do whatever they want to do to the majority of Americans. That's what freedom is to conservatives. And, right. so, you know, it's important to underscore this. Don't let them get away with saying they care about freedom. It's a lie. And anyone's... You know, understanding of that term, other than the the top five percent, that's what that means. Professor Lee, this is an unfair question, but Burke is the they get the conservatives get their ideology from Burke, who wrote uh, against the French Revolution. Uh, is that correct? That conservative thought stems from. Uh, the idea of conserving the the French monarchy is that fair? Well, it, 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 that's that's part of it, but I think it it fits in a much broader framework. It's not simply about the law itself, but it's the law in the context of of a kind of evolving evolving liberal notion of what counts as to to go back to what John was talking about is this idea of liberty. Uh, some kind of, on the one hand, a protection of certain rights, but a sort of ignorance of the asymmetry of it. Right, right. But 
conservatism has, froze up there. Conservatism okay? is, has its roots as uh, an idea. Hello? Can you hear Hello? me? Oh, I think I think it got frozen or something. Oh, you're there. No, we idea. can hear you. Please continue. Yeah, I, uh, Burke is cer- certainly. Burke is certainly a foundation, but I think it's it's also this idea of a much more uh, pervasive sort of emerging sense of what counts as state power. That is that is uh, that governance is not one that ensures individual rights so much as it it has a kind of uh, accumulative effect, and uh, that's. It, it's similar to the, this idea of a kind of current, the current sense of, of libertarianism where, you know, it, 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 people might have individual rights, but the asymmetry of wealth is, uh, depends. And it makes it uh, quite, quite different. But yeah, I, I think it does go back to Burke in that sense. But um, Adnan or Jonathan may have a, a different sense of that. At least in the, in the Anglo-American sense, I think that's where it comes from. So its roots are I in think the it goes back. It goes back even further to Thomas Hobbes, uh, who saw human beings as uh, so dangerous and so vile uh, that their natural state would be uh, of uh, a war against all. You know uh, that. You know, you know, he just made this up in his head, you know, the natural state of human beings. Um, and his solution was a all powerful uh, sovereign that was, uh, you know, entrusted to use a significant amount of uh, force to keep people in line. And, um, I, you know, I think that is a, a foundational part of conservatism as well. Via fund. So they, fascism, basically, a totalitarian, authoritarian monarch, one leader, I decide. Well, well and Hobbes is off. I'm sorry. Hobbes is often uh, cited as the first liberal, which is a bit uh, odd. <laughs> given why big what government his philosophy was, but because well, of big as it unfolds, for example, in public policy, Hamiltonian. I find it always ironic that we, we identify Hamilton with hip hop when, in fact, Hamiltonian democracy is quite uh, asymmetric and uh, centralized it indulges centralized power. Um, it is one of those sort of iron triangle of, of kind of the way in which we configure our democracy. This is not a democracy of equals, but a, a much more centralized, uh, powerful. And, and it, it always bugs me when, you, uh, you know, Hamilton is actually there were wagers on Twitter, whether someone was going to quote from, from Hamilton tonight in the hearing. Yeah. So anyway, but I can understand uh, a Hamiltonian view of government through the hindsight of the Civil War and states' rights, I can understand why liberals, people to the left of center, people who are against slavery would see Hamilton as their savior. Because it was yeah, Hamilton's a complex guy. Um, I, I think he did, uh, you know, 
lean in the direction of, uh, of monarchy, um, uh, which was impossible in the context of the American Revolution. But he had you know, proposed that the president serve for life. Um, and um, on the other hand, uh, his uh, approach to economics uh, I think was probably the right one in some regards. Uh, that is, uh, you know, erecting tariffs uh, that would protect American industry against the British and, and other developed economies. And uh, to have, an, in a sense, a, an industrial plan. Uh, and that served the, the United States well for uh, just about two centuries until we decided to get rid of those things and to um, to allow a corporate-led globalization, right, right, which has deindustrialized uh, the United States to a significant degree. Right. Let's talk about Iran and sanctions. First off, where are we with the Iran nuclear deal? Our president said he wanted back in. Uh, he announced we're going back into the Iran nuclear deal. Did we ever go back in? Uh, no, we haven't, uh, David. Uh, there's been a complete stalling on returning to the original provisions of the JCPOA, the agreement that Obama negotiated that arrested the uh, enrichment of, of uranium um, by Iran and kept uh, sort of surveillance and monitoring over their facilities um, by the uh, IAEA. Um, uh, according to this kind of agreement that was underwritten by a number of parties, including Russia, China, and um, several European countries and the United States, so like Britain, France, Germany. Um, and despite so Joe Biden's uh, declaration that he would uh, re-enter after Donald Trump uh, pulled out of that uh, deal, um, he has not um, done so, and he, more importantly, he has also not um, rolled back or lessened in severity the extreme sanction regime that uh, Donald Trump uh, put under the so-called maximum pressure policy uh, uh, against Iran. And so Iran has been suffering for the last several years under uh, an incredible uh, controlling regime that stifles its economy and its ability to sell oil. So, for example, for all the talk about Russian sanctions, I mean, more, more recently, uh, there was uh, in the Mediterranean an Iranian oil tanker that was interdicted uh, by the U.S. with the assistance. It was off the coast of, of uh, Greek islands. And so it was with the Greek um Greek government's uh, assistance. Um, so they are being prevented from selling their oil uh, during this period. So even as we are in this period where uh, Venezuela was being approached, Biden is going hat in hand to uh, visit uh, Saudi Arabia and curry favor with MBS, who is a well-known tyrant and even to the liberal establishment in the United States is anathema because of the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist, in brutal fashion. Uh, but when it comes to Iran, they are maintaining this very strict sanctions regime that is suffocating their economy. So Iran has 
um, asked that, uh, you know, that good faith steps be, you know, made to, you know, if they are to re-enter the deal, they need uh, the sanctions to be lifted. And they are asking, perhaps trying to negotiate for more than they're likely to get. But rightfully, they have a point that they have suffered, despite the fact that for about a, I'm not sure of the exact timetable, but for at least a year, they continued to abide by the agreement, despite Donald Trump's withdrawal, and hoped that they would get the European countries to intervene to reestablish the deal, uh, break the sanctions regime, and so on by showing that, well, we will continue to abide by the original provisions and we won't enrich uranium. But step by step, seeing cowardice, really, from uh, the Europeans, um, they've started uh, enriching uranium and taking steps to ratchet up their noncompliance with the deal that had been broken by the Trump administration in hopes subsequently to get the Biden administration to come back into fruitful negotiations and take off these sanctions. Um, so I'm very interested in this problem, really, of uh, sanctions and sanctions as war. Um, and there's a new book that is coming. Uh, I think it's just out. I haven't had a chance to read it, but um, it is um, called Sanctions as War, Anti-Imperialist Perspectives on American Geoeconomic Strategy. And it's a collection of essays co-edited by Stuart Davis and Emmanuel Ness, who has been a frequent guest on Guerrilla History. Um, and we're planning a series, in fact, actually, about this important topic over the summer um, on guerrilla history of looking at sanctions, the sanctions regime, first, more broadly, theoretically, whether uh, how it's being used, particularly by the United States, uh, um, what its consequences are, and then looking at actual case studies and subsequent episodes. And um, what we're learning, you know, is even with the example of the Russia sanctions that were, you know, kind of trumpeted as being extremely fulsome and um, uh you know, effective, it was going to stifle Russia's economy, what we're finding out is that it isn't having the effect. Maybe over the longer term it might, but certainly in the short and medium term, the ruble's value has increased. Um, current accounts uh, trade balance for Russia is the healthiest it's been in, you know, recent memory decades um, because of the high price of uh, energy. So they're still finding ways to sell their energy and they're doing so despite various restrictions at such a high rate that even if there's less production, even if it's harder for them to find, you know, markets and so on, uh, nonetheless, they're, they're making plenty of money by even selling us at a discount to places like China and so on. Um, so, so is there another uh, you know, reason? Of- so is there another reason we have sanctions on Russia? Well, clearly oh. they're, yeah, go ahead, Anne. Well, it's it's a kind of Potemkin thing where uh, ship ship uh, transported uh, uh, fossil fuel will be embargoed, but the pipes are still running. I mean, I think that that's the the deal. It's all PR in that sense. And on the grain issue, you know, where you look at at where most of the the grain is going to, mm-hmm. it's going to some very specific countries with whom they 
the Russians and the Ukrainians have had had contracts, but also it affects a significant. I think that there's going to be a famine effect at some you know moment mid down the road. I think that's an incredible problem. Oh, absolutely. And also in the case of the uh, Iranians, they're their, their militarization proceeds along. There's a, a current report that they have enough material for mm-hmm. uh, a nuclear weapon, and they're um, they're ready to launch a refurbished uh, uh, support ship that you could actually launch a ton of helicopters off of. Uh, so God knows what they're going to be using that well, for. In fact, they trialed um, aspects of their new military uh, strategy, uh, just like there are trials going on. Israel is like doing uh, various kind of training uh, runs over Cyprus uh, that are thought to be uh, preparation for, you know, attacks on nuclear facilities and so on in, in Iran, direct bombing attacks. Likewise, the Iranians are um, ramping up their, uh, f- you know, forward uh, attack with these sort of helicopters off of off of ships in the Gulf uh, and as a retaliation to Greek uh, collaboration with the U.S. in interdicting the Iranian tanker that I just mentioned in the Mediterranean Sea, they uh, seized two uh, Greek tankers in, in the Gulf. And so what we're seeing is uh, a ratcheting up of tensions, of military preparedness. And it's actually, I think, a very dangerous situation. The IAEA experts uh, confirmed just what uh, Anne said, that if they don't yet have uh, the amount of enriched uranium that could be turned into a, a, a nuclear weapon, they're weeks away from it. I mean, we're talking about a matter of a month or something if they you know, choose to continue at the rate or increase uh, the rate of uh, uranium enrichment. Um, so I think uh, I would say that, you know, on top of uh, those tensions uh, that are going somewhat unnoticed, though I think now because of um, it achieving, a, you know, a, a real, uh, that it's very a near thing at this point that, that Iran could go beyond um uh, re-entry, according to the IAEA, into the deal. If they actually develop a nuclear weapon at that point, then, of course, there's not going to be any Iran nuclear deal. The, the whole purpose of the deal is to prevent the development of is the deal proliferation. Does the deal still exist without the United States? Uh, no, it doesn't, because the U.S. has uh, imposed unilaterally this, uh, extre- when Trump pulled out of the deal, a unilateral extreme sanctions regime that punishes countries, third-party countries, that choose to do business with Iran. So you only end up having those who are either too strong or outside or also part of the sanctions. You know, there are like 20 or 30 countries. I forget the exact number that are under varying levels of sanctions. What is the economy like and what is is Iran suffering? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Iran is suffering uh, a great deal. I mean, this is like the Iraq sanctions that were responsible for a lot of disease and death, you know, prenatal and uh, early childhood uh, deaths to uh, diseases that are easily treatable and so on. Uh, uh, It's definitely having a a major effect on Iran because it is so extreme and they're a smaller country that is very dependent, uh, you know, on um, being able to uh, sell their oil. They're not, um, uh, 
you know, they can't, they've, they've managed to uh, survive. I mean, look, Cuba has managed to survive sanctions. Right. Um, North but Korea. it is obviously having a massive uh, effect on, on the economy of Iran. So the right wing or the neoliberals would say, if you don't want your children to die, stop making nuclear weapons. That doesn't seem, the economic sanctions don't seem to bend these regime, these governments to our will, do they? They don't. They do manage to impose suffering on the general populace, but usually the elites manage to find, you know, there's still some black market, uh, uh, you know, sales of oil and, you know, corrupt uh, people in positions of power are able still to acquire resources and, you know, things that they need. But, you know, the common people will suffer infrastructure investment in, you know, the broader context for a healthy economy, education, healthcare, these kinds of things suffer on a population scale. But in the governing and ruling elite do find ways, you know, within this you know, within the system to survive. And they don't see, I think in this, this is the the real uh, problem is that there's no logic to, um, uh, you know, how do you create a good faith uh, relationship for negotiations when there's no incentive to Iran? Uh, you know, they were abiding by the agreement according to all the international agencies, you know, nobody alleged that Iran had violated the agreement, right. really. Um, when Trump pulled out of it, he just pulled out of it because it was a bad deal. You know, he he wanted to put pressure on Iran. Uh, Israel's kind of right-wing government has been very suspicious of the JCPOA. Uh, that was one of the reasons they were most upset with, uh, with Obama's administration was really um, this agreement. And, um, you know, uh, for, from Iran's perspective, why would you re-enter the deal if you're not going to get anything out of it? I mean, the Biden position has been, you have to re-enter and abide by it, then we'll consider whether we remove the sanctions. And in addition, of course, there is the matter of other issues are also part of U.S. policy against encountering Iran, by, like declaring, for example, the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps um, uh, as a terrorist organization, which means then that it specifically, you know, can be uh, put under even further interdict um, um, and under greater uh, sorts of pressure. It has real world uh, consequences by defining it in that in that context uh, under that category. And so Iran wants to, you know, have it removed from the from that list. And um, none of these things are moving forward at this at this point. And the Biden administration has not uh, recognized that you have as the new government still have to pay some consequences and are responsible for the actions of the previous administration. Um, you can't just say, well, we're different, uh, but we're not going to do anything different. Um, you actually have to make these first steps and give some guarantees to Iran because already there were many hardliners who thought you can't trust the United States to honor it. This is just a, you know, a, a mechanism to prevent uh, Iran from achieving security and energy, you know, uh, subsistence, uh, self-sufficiency for the long term. Uh, there already was that uh, sort of pressure and everything the U.S. has done has confirmed those most hardline stances in the Iranian government. 
What happens if Iran gets a nuclear weapon? Israel and Saudi Arabia have become allies. Is it based on a fear? Not well, sort of. They're getting closer than they were before. Are Israel and Saudi Arabia bonding over a fear of Iran? And who should fear Iran more, Israel or Saudi Arabia? Actually, to be honest, in some ways, I think uh, Saudi Arabia should, uh, because, um, you know, I, I, of course, uh, Iran c- would continues to support uh, resistance forces, as they would call it, in Lebanon and in Palestine. Uh, but those don't really pose really a dramatic military threat to uh, Israel. You know, there's some threat and, uh, and, and not to be completely discounted. But I think Saudi Arabia is in a rather kind of weak position, I think. Yemen is a proxy war. Yemen is a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Well, that's how it's often often how they attempt to portray it. I don't really think that's the best way to think about it. I think about it as more a case of Saudi Arabia trying to dominate its region on the peninsula uh, and have a decisive, um, you know, uh, and preeminent position in the region, uh, which is as only as a result of, uh, you know, its oil resources and the U.S. military security guarantees and insanely high levels of military hardware sales uh, to them. Um, the, Iran is really the natural kind of regional uh, power, uh, population-wise, resource-wise, it has a, you know, couple thousand-year history of statecraft, of diplomacy, of uh, being a major uh, world empire. You know, uh, before uh, before our Cold War, you might say that the Great Cold War in the Middle East was between the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire and the Sasanian Empire. I mean, these were. Um, two great world kind of empires uh, that faced one another for control in the Fertile Crescent region. And um, so that history is part of Iran's kind of cultural and historical and uh, diplomatic um, heritage that makes it, you know, I think a natural power in, in, in the region. And so I think Saudi Arabia, if Iran were to have a nuclear, a nuclear weapon would um be very I, I'm not sure exactly what their response would be. I mean, I think, uh, however, they would see themselves very much uh, threatened, threatened by um, the uh, uh, political power and military power of Iran. I mean, it was the Gulf states that were really behind Iraq and, of course, the U.S., but behind Iraq's long, devastating war under Saddam Hussein with the Islamic Republic of Iran in the, you know, 1980s um, before the U.S. Gulf War. Um, So that is a longstanding kind of geopolitical conflict. And after the Iranian revolution, Iran sort of allied itself with this kind of anti-imperialist stance, and that put them in a conflict with the, um, you know, uh, U.S. allies in the region, like the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, uh, and for a time, Iraq and Egypt. Those are essentially the fundamental, and of course, Israel, but I mean, fundamentally in terms of the Arab states, um, with that alignment. Professor Lee? Well, it would seem that uh, 
there could be some sort of balance of terror in the sense that uh, Iran has developed a two-stage ballistic missile technology to uh, for considerable distance. So, you know, you could have a situation where there's a lot of armament, but uh, in some ways they cancel each other out with all due respect. Professor Bick. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, Adnan is, is has more expertise in this area than I do. Uh, but what, uh, how would you assess Iran's aggressiveness? And is it actually a threat to uh, its neighbors in, in terms of, uh, you know, territorial expansion? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I have not seen Iran as the aggressor. I mean, in that case of the Iran-Iraq war, that was something that was you know, uh, Iraq was goaded into this for its own reasons and with um, encouragement from the other Gulf states and Gulf monarchies. Um, what about Syria and Be- and Beirut and Le- Lebanon and Hezbollah? Yeah, I mean, that's not territorial expansion um, by Iran. However, they have regional, you know, allies and, you um, you know, they call it the so-called Shi'i Crescent. Um, but I think that's more about uh, these fears of Egypt and um, uh, Saudi Arabia and Jordan um, that, um, you know, oppose Iran and Iran's orientation in the Middle East, which is of, I mean, this is all rhetoric at this point, but if you look at the Islamic Republic, you know, it was populist. It was about ridding, you know, corruption from the Middle East and returning the ill-gotten, you know, gains uh, taken by these, um, you know, elite um, monarchies uh, away from the people and having a different kind of system within the Middle East that would be sharing the oil resources to encourage development, human development, social development, and so on. It was kind of populist. It was anti-imperialist. And, um, you know, that was threatening, I think, um, to you have to understand that these, you know, a place like Bahrain, for example, it's a Sunni uh, monarchy that is a minority, uh, you know, governing a Shi'i population. Um, another point is that it's odd, but it seems to be the case that wherever you go in the Gulf, the oil-rich regions, the oil-producing regions are all, you know, Shi, actually, populations. Shi populations in Saudi Arabia, in southern Iraq, uh, in Bahrain, as I mentioned, and of course, Iran. Um, And they are natural allies who would look to, you know, the cultural and religious leadership of Iran. And if they were turned to an anti-imperialist, populist, uh, kind of orientation politically that does not serve U.S. interests at all in the region. That is all has, has been about supporting a small oligarchic uh, elite to do the behest of, you know, Europe and 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 the U.S. economically. What's really um, interesting. So I don't. I don't. I don't see Iran as a particular threat or danger unless you are a corrupt, you know, uh, a corrupt monarchy that intends to, you know, steal all of the resources of the region um, and spend them in casinos in Monaco uh, and on super yachts and uh, an extravagant lifestyle. What's really interesting is we fought two wars in the past 20 years, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, 
Iraq and Afghanistan would be contiguous, but for Iran. The only thing separating Iraq from Afghanistan is Iran. And we never really, during that 20-year global war on terror, we never really heard about Iran. Uh, well, that's interesting is because, well, Iran obviously felt a little concerned and threatened that two <laughs> borders on either side, you know, countries that were being invaded by the United States, this was clearly very threatening uh, to them and of great concern, as it happens. Um, you know, Iran has achieved uh, through the U.S. war in Iraq a pretty stable and reliable ally, um, you know, in, in Iraq, the Iraqi government. Um, uh, and um, But also they were actually very helpful because they also opposed this extreme Sunni orientation of Wahhabi jihadism and combat it, were combating it in Afghanistan themselves, you know, through allies and groups like the Hazara and, and others who are uh, Shi'i and ethnic people who, who are Shi'i in orientation. And um, so they were actually quite helpful in many ways. And so the, the covert story is that um, Iran was actually something of a, a ally in a, maybe in an implicit rather than an explicit and overt way with um, U.S. confrontation with the uh, jihadist groups. However, that was a departure from normal U.S. policy normal U.S. policy for most of the Cold War through the 1980s, uh, you know, has been support of these jihadist groups, in fact, uh, against leftist regimes, militant nationalist, socialist regimes in the region and beyond. And in some ways, perhaps the withdrawal, this is something that I said when we were talking about Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, is that, you know, perhaps the idea here is to go back to the historic position that the U.S. has had, which is promote some of these groups or at least let them be unleashed upon the region and oppose neighboring regimes that are unfriendly to the U.S., also have some relationship with the East Turkestan, i.e. Uyghur situation, and let China deal with jihadist groups groups on its border, you know, um, having a kind of transnational network uh, to undermine China in in the region. Uh, That's actually the historic pattern of the U.S. to exploit religious fundamentalism in the region for its own geopolitical aims. It's just a curious twist of fate that, you know, you unleash these groups and they can also turn on you. And that's what happened with Al-Qaeda. So in Saudi Arabia, it's it's Sunni. It's a special branch of Sunni, the Wahhabism, which is very strict. And in Iran, it's Shia. Iraq is a combination of Shia and yes, Sunni, but majority Shi'i dominated. Right. And that's why the U.S. invasion and toppling of Saddam's regime 
uh, ended up creating an opportunity for a great deal of Iranian influence. Now, I wouldn't say that they are just merely puppets of, you know, Iraqi, uh, Iraqi Arab Shis, you know, have their own views and ideas, but they are much more sympathetic and have received a lot more support from Iran. And, um, you know, and Saddam Hussein was Sunni, Iran right? than they are with the U.S. in some ways. Saddam Hussein, when he was in charge, he really represented the Sunni. Yes, the Sunni minority. Yes. And yet right. and yet he was a threat to Saudi Arabia. Which is well, he became a threat to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait because um, he waged a massive war that was devastating for his country as well. Huge, incredible numbers of losses. You know, one of the largest military conflicts in the, of the 20th century. And we're talking World War One, World War Two. Then you might consider Vietnam and the Iran-Iraq War, basically. And so it was extremely costly. And um, he, he needed uh, oil prices um, and oil production to uh, maximize uh, revenues for the state that had spent all this money, you know, on military uh, hardware and prosecuting this war against Iran on behalf of Bahrain and Qatar and the UAE and the Saudis and the Kuwaitis. And in particular, Kuwait was a province uh, of or part of uh uh, a pro- an Ottoman province that became Iraq, but the British, uh, during their colonial uh, domination of various parts of the Middle East, had, you know, uh, occupied and created uh, an enclave that then became a separate uh, state. And um, so Iraq had claims in some ways historically on Kuwait and Kuwait was stealing, essentially, this is what the the story is, stealing Iraqi oil. Drinking their milkshake. uh, They were drinking an angle. I drink your milkshake. Right. Exactly. They they had a straw and they were they were stealing, you know, the the milkshake. Exactly. And they were also being very unhelpful about policy and setting the price of oil and levels of production that would allow Iraq to maximize its revenues and recover. And so Saddam Hussein said, hey, I did all this for you. You're not cooperating with me. Hey, Kuwait belongs to Iraq. It was part of the Ottoman province of Basra. I'm taking it back. And that's what started the war. And of course, um, that was cons- considered also a threat to Saudi Arabia. And so they became enemies. But, if, you know, if you look earlier in history, you know, the Saddam's regime uh, was, you know, acting on behalf, you might say, of the interests of the Sunni Arab uh, uh, oil producers of the region. Fascinating. Last question. I'm sorry, this is just Afghanistan, the Taliban are Sunni. Well, it's a mixed society. Again, there is a small uh, ethnic minority population called the Hazaras that has its own language and also, um, you know, are, are, are Shi'is. But the vast majority of the Patans and the Tajiks and the Uzbeks, who are the other main ethnic, there's many ethnic groups, but those are some of the main ethnic populations of Afghanistan, are uh, typically Sunni. Yes. And Pakistan? Pakistan has a Shi'i uh, minority, but it's, uh, sm- uh, you know, again, it's a minority and it is a majority uh, Sunni. And the Uyghurs? The Uyghurs are, are Sunni, Sunni Muslims, yeah. Interesting. 
I mean, to label them, you know, there's great right. diversity within each of these categories. Um, so it doesn't always describe too much. And I think in some ways this uh, division between Shi and Sunni is something Reductive. that is uh, an identity uh, of religious sectarianism that has grown in significance and importance because of geopolitical conflict. Right. So, for example, people in Iraq did not, you know, they had... Uh, Shi or Sunni, there was a lot of intermarriage, you know, it wasn't quite so divided and people didn't necessarily assert their religious identity uh, in kind of uh, political terms in Iraqi society, you know, Saddam and, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, but that is something that became increasingly relevant after the end of the Iraqi uh, regime, the dismemberment of the state. And then suddenly U.S. policy was promoting you know, political advantages to those who are apart from the natural uh, kind of support base of Saddam and his regime, which happened to be Shi'is, and it became a kind of polarized situation as a result. It became Sunni resistance against Shi'i domination supported by Iran and the U.S. And so politics in Iraq, for example, became what we might think of as sectarian or confessionalized and that also affected other relationships throughout the region. Right. Wow. Uh, I could listen to that all night. Let, let, let's. T uh, it is striking that Iran is right between Afghanistan and Iraq. Very interesting. Professor Jonathan Bick, uh, Social Security. Um. Do we have time for that? Yes, we do. Takes yes, we do. probably a good 10 minutes. With that. Okay. Uh, Professor K isn't here yet, so. Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah, so I just wanted to point out uh, a couple of things that are happening with Social Security. Uh, first of all, it's a very important program. It's what well, First of all, I think it's the most a popular program in the United States in terms of, uh, you know, popular support and um, young people should recognize how important it is to their lives. Uh, not only does it uh, provide disability insurance if they were to become disabled, uh, like I had a friend in college who uh, at the age of 20 fell off a balcony, uh, broke his back, and he is forever, uh, you know, uh, unable to walk. So he's, he's in a wheelchair. Uh, and Social Security uh, is paying him uh, disability benefits for the rest of his life. Uh, but uh, beyond that, um, also, it um, at some point in a young person's life, they're going to want to retire. And Social Security is the most important source of income for most people in the United States. Uh, and also, your parents are going to want to retire, and they will need a source of income in order to do that. And you do not want to be that source of income. Right? The you want your parents want to, to be, be. You want your parents to be a source. Parents. No, you want your parents to support you. That's the natural <laughs> right. order of things. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you want them to be able to retire at some point, and you want them to be able to uh, live in dignity and have their own resources. And um, Social Security is absolutely critical to that. Um, this year's report, every every year, the Board of Trustees uh, of Social Security uh, releases a report, and it said that uh, Social Security has an accumulated surplus of approximately $2.85 trillion dollars. It projects that even if Congress took no action at all, Social Security can pay all benefits and associated administrative costs until 2035. 2035. It is 90% funded for the next quarter of a century. So for the next 25 years, Social Security can pay 90% of what it's paying now. And 84% for the next half century. Social Security is not in crisis. It never Social was. Social Security. They borrow from, so the government borrows from Social Security. There's never been yeah, a crisis. That, that's correct. Uh, and I'd like to ask, uh, how much of a surplus does the military budget have, David? How much of a surplus, uh, you know, uh, are the, uh, do the subsidies for fossil fuels have in the federal government? What 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 does their uh, trust fund look like? Right. The percentage of seniors who say they rely heavily on Social Security has been consistently high for over uh, 21 years, according to Gallup data. So the Gallup poll is a respected uh, public opinion poll. And they do these questions, a battery of questions about Social Security for over 20 years now. And. Um, the percentage who say that uh, Social Security will be a major source of the retirement income uh, has ranged between 50 and 61 percent. It averages 56 percent over the last 21 years. Only nine to 13 percent of seniors say it is not a source of income for their retirement. You know, these may be state workers who don't have to participate in Social Security or they right. may be uh, people who didn't work if they, you know, lived on their spouse's uh, income or what have you. Um, so what, the question is, wh how much do you rely on Social Security today? Is it a major source of income, a minor source of income or not at all a source of income? Eighty five percent as of twenty twenty two say it is either a major or a minor source of the retirement income. That's among non-retirees. When you bring in retirees, you, look how the numbers change. 57% say it's a major source of retirement income, of retirees, because they're actually living in that situation. And um, only 10% say it's not a source of retirement income. Now, if you ask, do you think Social Security will be able to pay a benefit when you retire? If you ask this of non-retirees, younger people, um, a majority says no. And I think that has been, re been the result of fear-mongering among uh, Republicans and conservatives that want to destroy Social Security, destroy it either uh, by uh, making making it completely means tested or by privatizing it. Right. 
if you ask the American people, how do you think you, you, we should um, shore up the Social Security Trust Fund? Over two-thirds say that requiring higher income workers to pay Social Security taxes on all of their wages is what we should do. Other solutions like increasing the age of retirement, uh, reducing benefits, or uh, reducing retirement benefits for people who are currently under the age of 55 are all in the 30s in terms of support. You know, about two thirds, you know, between uh, half and two thirds oppose those measures. Now, when you hear discussion of this, those are the measures that are mentioned. You know, they usually don't talk about increasing uh, or just having higher income people pay Social Security taxes on their entire income because it stops at one hundred and forty seven thousand dollars. After your income goes above $147,000, you don't pay any social security tax on the amount above that. So somebody making a million dollars a year and somebody making $147,000 a year pay exactly the same amount into the social security fund. And what do they get when they retire? Uh, so the average benefit is $1,500, $1,540 a year, I'm sorry, a month, uh, which comes out to about uh, just under $19,000 a year, which is basically poverty, uh, to a high of, I believe it's around $40,000 a year is the maximum benefit you could get. Which is what? $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000, $3,000,
And the way they do this is getting rid of the cap. So, you know, you, you people should pay Social Security on um, all of their income. Actually, it's uh, it's over um, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. So they would they would raise it. You know, there would be essentially be a donut hole where you, you wouldn't pay additional Social Security between one forty seven and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. And so that would raise taxes on about 7% of U.S. households. If you raise taxes modestly on 7% of U.S. households, you could ex- increase Social Security benefits and, and do that for at least 75 years. Not a lot to ask. No. Right? This is the, one of the most important programs in the history of this country. Um. And it would also tax capital gains. Right now, only wages are taxed. So you, this change would, would include capital gains. That is, m- people making money for money. So if you're a landlord, you would pay Social Security tax on the money you get from uh, charging people rent. If uh, you, know, you, you make a, a killing in the stock market, you would pay 6% on the... Uh, on, on the gains in the stocks that you sold. Uh, so this is, um, this, this is a very uh, important bill that is in uh, the Congress at this time. And I, I recommend that people um, uh, support it because the Republicans also have a solution. And their solutions involve either privatizing Social Security, raising the retirement age, cutting benefits, or eliminating Social Security entirely. Uh, Senator Rick Scott of uh, Florida um, has released a plan that would give Congress the power to terminate Social Security and Medicare every five years. Polls show that uh, voters, both Republicans and Democrats, support plans to expand Social Security, not to cut it, and strongly oppose Rick Scott's plan. Okay. Great job. Thank Great you. Great job. Thank you. Uh, to be continued. This was great. Professor Ann Lee, reader over Daily Co's. Her handle is Annie Lee. Always great to see Professor Ann Lee. Always great to see Professor Adnan Hussein. And uh, that was really interesting. Uh, uh, Thank you for that. Uh, Read uh, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein's two podcasts are Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. Thank you for that. And Professor Jonathan Bick, always great to see you, sir. I'll see you tomorrow night for office hours. You'll be teaching okay. The Twilight Zone and Star Trek. You have a new That's convert true. on Star Trek. A, a new what? A new convert, a new Star Trek convert. Did a, you? Oh, good. A close friend of mine said... Oh, a friend of yours. Okay. A close friend of mine said... You know, I always found the acting stilted, over the top, but for some reason you made it uh, brilliant. She finally got Star Trek. She grew up, her mother used to watch it all the time, and she thought it was foolish, and you, you brought it 
you, brought, you have a new convert. So thank you. Cool. All right. I just wanted to say, David, you're going to be on vacation next week, but we will have office hours next week. Yes, we correct? office hours we have, but I, oh, but, but I am taking a week off. Uh, it became very apparent at the top of the show that I need some time off. Well deserved. Thank Thanks, you. David. Thank you. Thank you for all your help. And thank you to everybody who uh, bailed the show out today. We had some technical problems and uh, everybody stepped up. Well, Professor K is here. Alan Minsky is here. Dave and PA and Chad are here. Uh, let me ask Dave and PA or Chad, uh, what will you be making, Dave and PA? Hi, Dave. Good to be back. Good. We uh, missed yeah, you. Chad's been uh, to the orthopedic surgeon. Um, yeah. We still haven't found his hand, but okay. Oh, did he lose his hand? We're going to... A hand? Did he lose his hand? Yeah. When did that happen? Yeah. But uh, a few weeks ago, on the lathe, ironically, yeah. He lost his but, hand. Uh, on at the least lathe. he doesn't. At least he doesn't need carpal tunnel sin, uh, surgery anymore. <laughs> See, there it is. There's your carpal tunnel. There's your anatomy. Right Sorry, there. Chad. He has one yeah, less limp. That, Chad but, has yeah. one less limp wrist. <laughs> Are you impugning masculinity? I'm sorry? Are you impugning his masculinity or something? No, not at all. But uh, what do you, what are you, you in He's ripped. <laughs> sorry. What are you and Chad uh, going to be making? I got the, Harvey might remember, I was messing around with this uh, turning design. I finally got the green light to make a dozen of these. So I'm going to get started now. Okay. Uh, this is a, the drawing I got from the maple. Anyway, that's it. We'll, we'll be watching, and you're better than all of us. Seriously. <laughs> Professor Harvey J.K. joins us. He is the author of FDR and Democracy, Take Hold of Our History. You look great, Professor. You have a new camera or something? You look like you have to unmute. Hang on. And Alan Minsky is the executive director mm -hmm. of Progressive Democrats of America. And he's coming to us from Los Angeles. Where are you? Yeah, I'm in the middle of my street here in Los Angeles. But uh, am I, do I look very dark on the screen or is it regular? Or does it look regular? You look saturated. Saturated. Good. I, I feel very fulfilled, actually. Good. Mm. I have <laughs> a lot of questions. And by the way, I, I'm sorry to keep everybody waiting. We had severe technical problems so uh i, I was gonna ask really bad problems at the top of the show and uh so i apologize and joe in norway very can um let me I, i've been keeping everybody waiting very quickly what did you make there look how look i love watching the pressure cook the beans and then make some fresh tortillas i know and then a, a little uh, salsa with uh, chajote, squash, red onion, and pear. Delicious. And a friend of mine makes apple syrup, or Dutch-style apple syrup, and I just drizzled that on top. So we can have a nice little breakfast. Fantastic. Is that legal to make that stuff in Norway? Is it legal to make that stuff in Norway? <laughs> That's why he's doing it at Barely. night. <laughs> And this is a little party favor melon bait with uh, salt, cayenne, 
and a mint. Fantastic. That looks good. I'll see you at office hours. I have many, many questions about the pressure cooker, especially when it comes to beans. So I will see you at office. Yeah. Thank you. Great job, Joe. Joe, we can't do office hours without Joe. So thank you for for everything. Let's figure we have a strong 30 minutes, okay? Uh, Yes, yes. The hearings and Tuesday. I was just watching. Should we start with the hearings? But I would like to get to Tuesday and the primaries. But let's talk about the hearings, Professor Kay. What what is your big takeaway so far? Well, I, I've only seen this evening. And in fact, stupidly, I didn't even know they were on this evening. And, and Alan sent a note to me asking, was I watching? And I wasn't, but I quickly turned over and I raced through it. And, you know, in one sense, it's, I, I felt like I was thrown back to a year ago. Well, a year, well, year and a half ago, almost. Um, it's astounding to me that that Trump is still able to walk the streets or still able to appear at rallies that, you know, that old lock him, lock her up. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we could say lock him up in any case, he should, there must be some means by which he can be excluded from American public life. That's all. I mean, it's pretty evident. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, you know, when I, I just jumped over PDA was one of the groups that hosted a, a town hall, public citizen spearheaded an effort to have town halls um, in person where people would watch them together. And we hosted a few of those around the country, but we did a national zoom one and I emceed it. I jumped over here. It ended. I thought I was going to have to leave hand off to somebody else, but it ended promptly at uh, 10 PM Eastern. And um, they implied this is going to be going for a while, but the first hour that Harvey missed was, was more powerful than the second. The second focused on, I thought it was just sort of a, handpicked, uh, you know, Capitol police officer who, yeah. I mean, I don't mean to be cynical, but someone I was thinking she was selected because she'd uh, get a lot of public sympathy. Um, and, um, uh, and then a guy who was a British filmmaker who had been embedded with the proud boys and, uh, he had to be subpoenaed to be there. And sometimes I found his, uh, his testimony a little cagey. I don't know if you thought that Harvey. Yeah. Um, I sense that was what I was thinking. Yeah, but the first hour was much better. Where just Benny Thompson, who's the chair of the committee, by the way, Jamie Raskin, I was expecting him to play a lead role. He, he was sitting there, but he didn't. He didn't. They didn't get to him. And Lynn Cheney and Benny Thompson were the star of the event. They both uh, Thompson really sort of laid out a broad constitutional <coughs> case and did so quite eloquently to open interspersing little moments of footage like, you know, Attorney General William Barr basically saying straight up and then recorded testimony when he was subpoenaed by the committee uh, saying that, you know, there was no evidence of election fraud. And he told the president that and all that kind of stuff. Jared Kirchner came off like a complete ass in his little quip. Yeah, he did. I fully yeah, agree. You, know, you saw that. Yeah. And then, um, but then Lynch Cheney um, really Liz, was Liz. Liz, right now, Lynn's the mom of, yeah. uh, of, of her and the, the wife of uh, Dick. And um, so Liz Cheney, she, was really the, in fact, trending on Twitter, uh, the hearings were number one, number two was, was Liz Cheney. I know it's about six of the top 10 USA Twitter 
trends were all on the hearing. So it must have been getting a lot of attention and a large audience. But she was really the star of the proceedings. And of course, what's charged about it is that she's the one Republican up there. Yeah. And um, she really called out her fellow Republicans and did so in a very powerful way. You know, I imagine both her and Thompson are, have law degrees and they are clearly experienced uh, in terms of uh, organizing the way they deliver this kind of presentation with the, uh, by the way, there's the high school nearby is having this graduation. That's the sound in the background. Um, nice little civic moment here. But um, the thing, the thing about Cheney and I think the whole thing too, from the perspective of somebody on the, on the left of American electoral politics does to me recall um, the mistakes of the radical left um, in the Weimar Republic. And um, the whole event shows that we do, we do still need to be in alliance in this country with um, the constitutional liberals, constitutionalist liberals um, at this hour, that that's essential. Um, and, uh, and, and as progressives, we need to make a case to these people and to appeal what is decent about them in terms of this. I mean, of course, their politicians, the elected politicians are are completely bought and sold by corporate America, by the wealthy Americans, by their donors. They're completely locked into that political ideology. But when it comes to defending the Republic, we have to win. When we don't have working majorities that are progressive or left progressive, we have to, which we don't have almost anywhere, we have to ally with them against what is an anti-democratic force that's very vibrant in this society. It's very real. And by the way, in the um, elections that are taking place in France this weekend, and next weekend, we see almost the exact same political formations uh, are there where you have the um, reactionary, racist, um, pro-fascist right is one third of the electorate. You have Macron as one third of the electorate representing the neoliberal center. And then you have Mélenchon representing the progressive left and the Bernie left. And uh, and that's that's not replicated here, except we have a two party system and the way that money operates uh, marginalizes the success of the most popular faction, in my opinion, which is the progressive left faction. And so we have to overcome those barriers, which are extremely real. But in terms of this thing today, um, you know, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to be sitting with that person who's going to sit here and praise um, Liz Cheney too much. But just on a human level, you have to appreciate that you know, obviously she's throwing away her elected position. I'm sure she'll not get reelected in Wyoming and probably take some courage. I'm sure she has to travel with an armed entourage to protect her at this point as the sole Republican doing it. And uh, you know, I think that should just be Kenzie. What about Kenzie? Oh, there's one or two other Republicans I know, but basically she's, she's up there right besides Thompson and she's the one who's cared. She, they brought her back twice. And I think she spoke um, probably of the two hours they were on. They took a 10 minute break. They were on there for about an hour, 50 minutes. I think she held center stage. Do you get a sense? 50 minutes of that. Did you get a sense that this is heavily produced? They brought in the former president of ABC News, the executive producer. Yes. Good morning, America. Yes. As you know, David, I've I've hosted uh, a few, uh, more than a few national. uh, radio broadcasts uh, and that are hearings. I've produced many more. And of course, there's dead time, there's downtime, there's air where, you know, Mr. Jesuich or whoever gets it, or me, if I was doing it, would jump in and give play by play and updates on what's going on. No space for that whatsoever except the 10 minute break in the middle. Did it feel rehearsed? It was absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, very rehearsed, very well put together. They, they even, you know, when they queued the video clips and here's a clip, they had them. Eh, they could have been a little sharper, but hey, it's not Hollywood. It was about a second before they'd get it going. So as opposed to what on TV, you know, when they throw to it, it's instantaneous or it feels instantaneous. In this case, it's probably about a one second pause every time they did it. But yeah, for the Congress, yes. Could that backfire? Could that backfire? 
The whole thing could fucking backfire because the Democratic Party doesn't mean shit to anybody because it can't do anything for anyone. And there's no doubt that the reactionary Trump is right in our two-party system have a grip on the uh, disproportionate number of the elected Republicans now around the country. And in our two-party system, when nobody's going to turn out for the Democrats because they don't do shit from Shiola because not too few progressives are elected, yeah, we have a very real risk, a very real risk of these guys continuing to win elections, including this round of national elections and the next round of national elections. Do you think it will backfire for the Republicans by not having somebody like Jim Jordan rattling the cages? giving, allowing the, the Democrats and Cheney to make their case uninterrupted. Tucker Carlson, Fox News, of course, famously didn't broadcast it. It was broadcast, I think, on three networks and CNN, right? Yeah. Plus, right. Um, and then C-SPAN. So all across the board. And, um, and Tucker Carlson, according to what I read on Twitter, was saying that this is meaningless. This is nothing. That wasn't much of what happened. He called it propaganda. He called it propaganda. He called it propaganda. Professor K, 75 million people voted for Joe Biden. You get 75 million people watching that. Those are good numbers. 70 million people voted for Trump, I think. Do you think any of the 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump are interested in these hearings, are going to watch it? 75 and 81. That's yeah, right. Well, I mean, when you've got 70 million, I'm sure that there are millions among those who will. But I I don't think they are, they're watching it for the uh, to become educated in any fashion. OK, I mean, they'll storm their television sets. Right. Uh but they're not going to change anybody's mind, are they? I know I, I, I don't I, I don't imagine they'll change people's minds these hearings, but they may actually they may actually encourage more Democrats to vote. And that's and right now the Democrats are not going to win votes from the from Republicans who voted previously for Trump. The question is, can the Democrats turn out? the folks who voted for Biden and the Democrats. So this could serve, in pure political terms, it could serve that purpose. Right. So these are political hearings in the end. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what in the end they can do as a consequence of the hearings of a constitutional sort. Well, they could make a criminal. Actually, I, I, they can make a criminal referral to Merrick Garland and say, why aren't you prosecuting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are they going to do that? Yeah, they, they, they were they were trumping. They were they were cornering. They were cornering Trump on this. But it does yeah. beg the question why Pence isn't Pence isn't called to testify as well as Trump. Um, and they should be. And um, that definitely serve a political purpose. Look, I do think there are millions upon millions of people who vote Republican who don't like Donald Trump or don't want him to lead the party, but they're going to continue voting for the Republicans because. Uh, yeah, we're you know, coming, that's, exactly. We're coming up to midterm elections, not presidential elections. Mm-hmm. They're not going to change their vote on the con- congressional folk because of what happened. Right. Well, I mean, there's a, there's certainly a class of Republicans, right? And they're the substantial financial base of the party still, for the most part, who, whatever they are, are small business owners. You know, there's that good article that was done in the Atlantic about the power base of the Republican Party out across the country with the sort of local country club sets. Um, and, um, 
you know, I think they're more invested in making sure that they don't pay higher taxes. They don't uh, do have to worry about supporting the things that they believe the Democratic Party would force them to, um, you know, foot the bill for or just make a stronger part of American society. They don't want to see those things. And the way that they prevent that is by voting for a Republican Party. And if it comes with the brouhaha of Donald Trump, that's something they're willing to take. They Would they rather have, you know, Kevin McCarthy or Mitt Romney leading their party? Yeah, and that's probably about a third of the party. But right now, the Republican Party has a national coalition, as these two parties are, national coalitions in this two-party system. They are now reliant upon an alliance with a base that is motivated by people like Trump. And social resentment, white supremacy. Look, there's a lot of white supremacy in that country clubs. That that's true too. But I think their primary motivation is blocking uh, progressive social policy. And um, the paradox being that there's a significant portion of the Trumpian working class base that would embrace progressive social policy. I, I certainly believe that. And I think that was part of what drew them to Trump in the first place. Is he promised to something along the lines again in the way that Le Pen does too for her base promises some kind of material gain it's usually pretty just hollow as we've seen from history in terms of you know right-wing proto-fascist political formations but that certainly is part of the equation that they're presenting to their working class bases no what they're presenting to the working class base for this election is going to be seriously it's going to be the inflation (laughs) yeah that's true too professor that goes with that well that but then this is outside of trump The, the way they'll run this time will not be I don't think it'll be hyper-Trumpian, except in the cases where there's certain local or statewide candidates who are hyper-Trumpian. And, but those might be states where it's true that the way the Republicans win is by having those kind of characters lead. Professor Kay, what do you say to people who voted for Biden, who voted for the Democrats, but are thinking to themselves... January 6th was a year and a half ago. You already impeached the president over this. We've seen all the evidence. Nothing is going to change. Why are you wasting your political capital on primetime hearings when nobody cares about what happened on January 6th? It was a year and a half ago. We have an eviction crisis. We have a climate crisis. We have a gun crisis. Why are you wallowing in the past? Do you really think this is going to help you make your case to voters in the midterms or create a tsunami of uh, Americans saying, you know, lock up Donald Trump? Do you see what do I say? What, what can one say? I mean, you've already said it for me. I mean, what, well, that's what some is, people say. Do you agree with that? And by some people, I mean me. Well, I mean, I, I, I actually welcome these hearings. I, I, I welcome them. But the point is for entertainment. It's entered. You're a historian. So it's it's as a historian. This is one for the books. But in terms um, of moving the. You're, no, being, I, you're, you're being you're being too cynical, David. Right? Yeah, yeah you really are. And um, someone like someone like Jamie, yeah, Jamie Raskin has. I, I I think I know him well enough. He's a kid of a guy who comes out of the Institute for Policy Studies, very close to our former political director Steve Cobble. Um, he's somebody who wants to put a Thomas Paine monument on the Mall in Washington, and I think he 
and he's been a big motivating force behind these. Uh, I think he sincerely believes it is historical obligation to put these things forward. Um, that the laws that I mean that the transgressions that occurred are so outrageous, and they are. They make they they make Watergate seem quaint, you know. Um, and um, and in terms of impacting the domestic, uh, I mean, you could argue that Nixon was probably more of an affront to the domestic order than Reagan was. But to the domestic order, they're more of an affront than Iran Contra. This is the most extreme activity we've seen from an American president in American history. Yeah. In terms of the passing off of power from one president to the next, which is supposed to be you know, an absolute foundation of our political system and social order. Were laws broken? Um, I think it, were, were, when the story, but when even now, the history that's being written right now at the very same time is, as you say, a Democratic Party that right now can do nothing. It's not even clear to me they, they want to. I mean, seriously speaking, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't realize that the, these hearings were going to be on in the evening and I might've been better prepared to talk about that, but well, you, watch day, them. you know, all day, all week I've been thinking about, I'm still burning from the fact that the speaker of the house, right. Did robocalls apparently for Cuellar versus Cisneros. Okay. I mean, it's not as if, look, I mean, it's not like Cuellar is a centrist Democrat. The guy is an A rating from the NRA, okay, in the pocket of the fossil fuels companies, as I understand it, and, you know, anti-choice. I mean, how is it possible that in this year, given everything that's been happening, most recently been happening, Nancy Pelosi has not budged, has not budged on this. So it's pretty telling, right? that the, the Democratic le- the leadership of the Democratic Party in the House and the Senate doesn't seem to matter either very much, um, is, is so willing to sustain the status quo. And then when you look back over the past year, the failure of this party to do what needs doing, even with the fact that they, they may not be able to enact all of the things they wanted to, that the president hasn't pursued with his executive pen, something that would make a dramatic difference in a congressional election year. And that is the reduction, if not abolition of student debt. I mean, it is astounding. I mean, what we see, it's like, you know, it's Shakespearean in many ways, absolutely Shakespearean, not in terms of the drama, but in terms of what, you know, tragedy is written in the stars almost. It is, or I know, what, what, I, I, you know, Marx had that great quote about tragedy and farce. But what's what is it when it's the third time and it's past far? Right, because that's what you're getting at. Right, right? it's just banal, yeah. banal to them. Well, max, if you, you know? combine tragedy <laughs> with farce, you get fart, which is what <laughs> Biden is. He's a fart. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean the threesome. You know, the threesome: Schumer, Biden, and Pelosi are. It's just. But, you know, it's also incredible to imagine that the that that the so-called progressive caucus has been so completely, completely marginalized in, in the public mind. I mean, just irrelevant, basically. And a few of them may not even win re-election. Seems to me. Well, we hope not. Well, who are you referring to? You mean, I hope Omar, Tlaib and Corey do. And they're going to face tough elections, by the way, those three. Yeah, really that's it. right. That's what I'm getting at. Okay. So yeah, you would have thought they're, 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 they're not. They're not. They're not. But they yeah, didn't. Alan, they didn't yeah. endorse. They're they're better. Yeah. But they didn't endorse. Not, wait, they didn't I'm endorse uh, Jessica Cisneros. 
they're they're I mean, if the Democrats can't do anything, then then the then the then the true progressives among them may well have wanted to make more noise than ever right now. Yeah, good point. point. They they didn't endorse Nina Turner. Our hands are tied. We can't do it. It's the policy we only endorse incumbents. That's the Progressive Caucus's policy. It's like when you're talking to the bank to reverse. We can't reverse the fee. It's in the system. I, our hands are tied. It's in the system. Yeah. That's what Joe yeah, Biden. Touché, you're, yeah, no. Well, we certainly we certainly endorse Nina over and over again and all that crap. But uh, I mean, and it's not crap. She's fantastic. But all this crap that you're referring to. Yeah, it is a little sadly too real. Why isn't but the good news? The good news, the good news. And, and, and if Alan and I pursue this properly, along with PDA and maybe our revolution coming on board and others, Massachusetts Democratic Party. Economic Bill of Rights. Economic Bill of Rights, which I can tell you came as a a wonderful surprise to me last week. Alan and I were on a radio show together and I was on the first half with John Nichols and not very happy given what was transpiring in the world. And all of a sudden Alan comes on to and announces that Massachusetts Democratic Party has voted to uh, embrace. And by the way, 97 percent of the delegates, 97 percent of the folks voting voted for the Economic Bill of Rights. And I'm assured, I hope I'm not being lied to by a, a veteran Senate, state senator in Massachusetts that they're going to do what they can in the Democratic Party Policy Committee to promote that. That's fantastic. That really yeah, is I mean, amazing. It's a breakthrough. I mean, it's, to my mind, it's, 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 you know, I don't know, it'll be historic if we can make it more, all the more of it, but it's decidedly a breakthrough I don't know if Alan felt I, I can tell you that it would not have occurred to me to get any party at the state level to actually embrace it. I figured there would be Democrats in every state who would advance it as they've been doing here in Wisconsin. And there are people I've talked to in other states who want to pursue similar kinds of actions as my state assembly person here in Wisconsin has. But to think that they that this fellow, if I can use his name, I hope he doesn't get upset. Russell Free, Friedman, right, is his name, Alan, it in Massachusetts. Indeed, yeah put this manifesto, this one-page manifesto together, okay, sent it around, passed it by the eyes, by the way, of, of Jamie Raskin and Jim McGovern, the, the two, two, two mm-hmm. congressmen, one of whom is from Massachusetts, the other's not, and is getting this really phenomenal reading. I tried to get Raskin to read it and respond to it by way of one of his aides, and I didn't get any kind of response. It should be read so at least on the floor. Wonderful the, surprise. should be read on both the floor of the Senate and the floor of the House. Yeah, the Democrat. Think about what they could do. You know, I mean, as the second of our three pieces in Common Dreams indicated, there is individual pieces of legislation which represent and articulate each of these rights. But more important, what? It's the second of our three articles, not the third of our. What did I did I say? I thought I said second of three. I thought you said third of three. Okay. Okay. The second of the three. We we should ask our listeners. I thought I said second, but here's what we should do. Next week, is there a website? Well, next week, right? I'm you're, off next week. In two, in, next two, week. in two weeks, we should have uh, uh, on the web an, an ability to download a PDF of the Economic Bill of Rights, and we invite the listeners to mail it to their congressman demanding it be read on the floor of the House and the Senate that you get copies of the Economic Bill of Rights and 
you get the PDF, you mail it, either print it out and mail it to your senator, your congressman, your mayor, your state assembly person, your governor, and demand that this be read on the floor of the individual chambers. Can we and, get and be adopted by every state Democratic Party in the country? There's how do we get PD? How do how do we by in two weeks? Is, will there be a website for us to download a PDF? We will. We will well, it'll probably be a subpage of the PDA website. There already is one, and we can create another. Good idea, Professor K. Absolutely, absolutely. And I already got on the phone with your friend Norman Lear. He's interested in the movie rights to the economic bill of rights. <laughs> we're going to be rich. I'm the middleman in all this. We're, well, we're, I can tell you that my friend. No, I go Feldman. I heard go you say. David. I heard you say with an N, and I thought you were going to tell me that Nomiki Kans has entered, you know, announced her candidacy, and on her, on her most recent. Uh, announcement is listed the economic bill of rights as one of her campaign uh, ambitions and i i didn't want to i spoke to nathan lane economic bill of rights the musical think about it (laughs) yeah i can't give you a cut yeah i can't give you a cut quite yet We, we, we i have to make my money back uh that i didn't invest but that's Broadway for you. Well, what yeah. happened on Tuesday? Get those rhymes together. Hey, we got to get some rhymes together for that. You know, yes. to get a good counting song, one through ten, with some rhymes. Talk to me about Tuesday. Give me some good news about Tuesday. <laughs> In California? Yeah. Good news. I mean, some some there are some Caruso is not going to be the is Caruso going to be the mayor of there's no way Rick Caruso is going to be the mayor of Los Angeles. Right. Oh, no, that's very possible. Uh huh. Yeah. And then and then, uh, yeah, he's sitting at about 42, 43 percent and um, double that in millions of dollars. It'll spend in the general uh, double what he did this time. And it was saturation this time, and, and he'll just pour his own money into it. I'm sure, he's looking for a return on the investment somehow. Uh, maybe he just wants to be supposedly worth like four point three billion or something. So um, that's jump change, and um, so that's a possibility. I, you know, there's some there's some good progressives who. Um, uh, by the way, we're going to have some fireworks right here in the street. Um, and, uh, actually, I'm, guys, I'm on a, a live uh, national podcast. If you guys want to shoot some fireworks off, I can get them on the podcast. <laughs> there's, I told, I told them that there's a high school graduation going on next door. So, which is the, what, what's the name it. of the high school? Okay, so just guys, look out for that. Franklin High. Franklin High. Park. And uh, I'm not very good at inverting this camera here. On see, there's right up there. You see, in the middle of the street. This is a beautiful neighborhood for fireworks. Is that named after Dodgers ben Franklin or Joe Franklin? Joe Franklin. You remember, you remember Joe Franklin, right? Of course, Joe Franklin. No, I'm not sure that I do. David, you remember? Who was Joe Franklin? Joe Franklin. Who was Joe Franklin? He's he said that TV show. He was on Channel 9, WOR. Joe Franklin yeah. here when movies were movies. My guest yeah. is Morty Gunty, the star of That Girl. Tell me about Marlo Thomas. Brilliant, right? That was on like 3 in the morning. Uh, 
So, mm. okay. Uh, congressional races on Tuesday. How did the progressives do? Well, no, okay. Here's the truth. Okay. Quite want some honest analysis of this. Um, it, look, what we're discovering in California, a state that Bernie Sanders won by a significant margin in 2020 in the Democratic primaries, that that Sanders and Warren combined got over 50%. Okay. Um, that it's very difficult uh, to break through in the jungle primary structure for progressives. That is proving to be a sort of machine yeah. defense structure. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we got, you know, we ran six very, we, we supported six very young federal candidates, two of whom got into the runoffs, Derek Marshall and Helica Duenas. And, um, you know, and then there are other promising progressives who we didn't endorse who did get into runoffs across the state. But in general, um, right now, the moderate centrist, maybe marginally left uh, of center Democrats are absolutely dominant uh, within California across the board. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And that's enough to be cracked because it's not reflective of the embrace of the ideology. It's an inability right now, the progressive left, to be organized well enough in California to... Um, to create a strategy to overcome this jungle primary structure because we haven't done that yet. So we have to take a serious hard look at it and to achieve better on those fronts. Now down, down ballot, we got some better results. Um, and uh, two friends of mine, for instance, were first in there. They're going to have to face runoffs one for city controller and another for the West side city council in Los Angeles. Uh, so there's some good results down ballot and those are true across the state. What happened with Chase of Boudin is really ugly ton of money came pouring into it very effective at making a cartoon villain out APAC? Of was, oh, was APAC behind Chase is just a did APAC me? stick its nose into Chase Boudin? no I don't believe so no that was uh, it was it was right wing Silicon Valley money and GOP donors who funded that uh, there was no need APAC probably looked at that and thought they had that covered so there was no need for them to get involved right. with that but that was you know that's not really it's a lot of APAC orbit. Probably, you know, APAC for what it's worth, they're sort of immune to negative press, but um, they're not, why would they bother with a San Francisco DA race? It would seem to be so right, exactly. You know, right. So they, right. they didn't get involved in that. Um, but um, there were a few, there weren't many races that they did weigh in on DMFI or APAC because, because of the jungle primary structure, they probably just held on to their money. And I heard that they were involved in one here in Los Angeles. You broke um, up what? I'm sorry. But um, I heard they were involved in one race here in Los Angeles, but I haven't verified that to be the case. But, you know, just one of the house races here. For the most part, they haven't been actively involved because of the jungle primary structure. They just hold on to their money until the general. And how did Shahid do? Oh, he's uh, he lost to the Republican. He's not in the runoff. He's not yeah, in the right. runoff. He's, he came in. He came in third. He came in third. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do I have a deranged Pelosi syndrome? Do um, I have an irrational sure Do I have an irrational contempt for Nancy Pelosi? Is it irrational? I don't think so. I, guess. I think well, I mean yeah. I mean I don't know why but, well, I mean there's other there are other political figures to focus upon. Look, I I don't I'm not going to sit here and get involved in defending Nancy Pelosi, but I'll say that um, Hawking Jeffries is so terrible that we may end up uh, uh, ruining the day that we lost Nancy Pelosi to Hawking Jeffries. I mean, look into Jeffries, uh, David. 
he is uh, he's poised to be the next head of the um, House Democratic Caucus. Uh, he's the anointed. It's insane. The party's so stupid. They go from San Francisco to Brooklyn. I mean, how the hell do they ever think they're going to get popularity out across the country right. with going from San Francisco to Brooklyn for, for uh, party leadership? And he has formed a pact with Josh Gottheimer, and he claims to be a member of the Progressive Caucus. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff to unpack yeah. there. Yeah. 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 I mean, there we go. Oh, sorry, I missed the I missed the visual for you. Yeah. It's fun to live in Highland Park. It's a great neighborhood, by the way. It it may be time place. for somebody like me to leave the Democratic Party. I, I I've been saying uh, we have to we have to kick these people out. I think they're. They're too entrenched, and uh, I've I've been fighting this and saying I'm going to stay, but it it may be time, Professor K. I don't I don't see an alternative. I, I that to me is part of the ongoing tragedy. Yeah, we just got we just got we just got Summer Lee. We're gonna get this great guy Maxwell Alejandro Frosten from Massachusetts. By the way, Jonathan Jackson, Jesse Jackson's kid in Illinois, one very promising guy. Um, so again, why leave the party when we actually are building the? Okay, you base? changed my mind. There you go. You won the argument. Thank you. Seriously, uh, thank you. Yeah. I'm taking a vacation, and I uh, and we'll end on you winning an argument. We're gonna kick. Are you leaving town for your vacation? I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. for the hearings with Triumph, the insult comic dog. (laughs) That's awesome. And I thought. That that is a peaceful vacation. I love it. That is. I'll go to Washington, pick up a little COVID and uh, see what happens. Leave the COVID on the side. And let me ask this question. Why are your vacations more fun for me than my vacations? Well, it's not really a vacation. I'm working. I know, but still, it's more fun for me than my vacation. Okay, sorry. Oh, you actually are going to D.C.? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, hear, I thought you were joking. No, Triumph is covering, all I can tell you is Triumph, right now I can't go into specifics, but he's covering the, uh, the hearings. And where the dog goes, I follow. So the dog is, <laughs> I, I, I answer to Triumph, the insult comic dog. So, uh so I'll be in Washington, D.C. And uh, OK, we'll have a very good time. I'll hope the heat isn't too much there. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Professor Harvey J.K., sorry to keep you waiting. Go read FDR and Democracy. Thank you so much. And follow Professor K on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Alan Minsky, Progressive Democrats of America. Give money to the Progressive Democrats of America. Both of you, great job. Congratulations on the Economic Bill of Rights being adopted by the Democratic Party of Massachusetts. We're Thank gonna, you. We'll make more noise here again in two weeks. In two weeks, let's get a downloadable PDF. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Rodrigo. How are you, sir? Rodrigo in Mexico. Yes. How are you? Uh, Good. Uh, Can I go? Yes, you're on. You're up. So why are there so many people in prison? 
I know what you're thinking. He's going to start ranting about racism. And it's true that black men are twice as likely and five times more likely to be sentenced to at least one year in prison than white men, despite the rate of black incarceration falling a lot more than Hispanic and white since 2006, but that means that white inmates are 30% to blacks at 33% and Hispanics at 23%. Why are there so many inmates? Part of the drop on black inmates is a steep drop in crime. 50% in violent crime and 54% in property crime between 1993 and 2018. You may have heard that prison populations dropped during the pandemic, but this was because they were kept in jail for procedural delays rather than because anyone released prisoners early. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, there's almost 2 million people incarcerated in the United States Half a million which, of which are in pre-trial detention because their bail is set on average at $10,000 or 8 months of salary for people who can't afford bail. Another 2.9 million are out of probation and another 820,000 out on parole. 8% of people in jail are held in private prisons. Less than 1% are employed in factories, only 1 in 5 are incarcerated for drug offenses. Violent and non-violent offenses are pretty useless labels because they often don't mean what you think they mean. People convicted of violent and sexual offenses are the least likely to be rearrested, and those convicted of rape or sexual assault are 20% less likely to be rearrested than the other categories combined partly because people age out of the likelihood to commit these types of crimes. We're told that harsh sentences give the victims peace of mind, but they would much rather prefer violence prevention than incarceration. We hear that people need to go to jail to get the help they need, but many people go in and out of jail without actually getting that help. Suicide is the leading cause of death in jail because those with mental health issues are often put in solitary and left alone due to understaffing. Two-thirds of people in jail have substance abuse disorders, but most of them are simply forced to, to quit cold turkey. The conditions of community supervision set people up to fail, often getting sent to jail for breaking curfew or fees they can't afford. 79 million people have a criminal record that keeps them, if not from breaking the cycle of going back to jail, certainly from rising up in society to middle-class levels. Stephen Donziger, the picture of a low-risk inmate made flesh, lost 25 pounds in less than two months in prison. I'm not here to give you real solutions. I want to point out that while most white-collar criminals will not get caught, and when they do get caught, they rarely go to prison, while most sexual violence is committed by people who abuse their wives and sometimes husbands, 
the current system has far more people in jail that are necessary, and most criminals aren't even caught. When people try to talk seriously about the structural changes necessary to fix the system, conservatives will start talking about this or that person who was sexually assaulted. I don't call this a distraction because their pain doesn't matter. I call this a distraction because conservatives want to force the people they have in jail to stay more years inside, not to catch the people who will never go to jail in the current system. Like the cops who hit their wives, or the politicians of the 12 states who refuse to take free federal money for the Medicaid expansion, or the judges in the Supreme Court that in 2012 forced the compromise position that states cannot be punished for not taking free federal money. There are people from bureaucrats in local jails all the way to the Supreme Court that refuse to ask if the current system can be improved. Cops from local counties all the way to the FBI, Homeland, the NSA and CIA who refuse to ask how to get more guilty people in jail. Politicians from local counties all the way to Congress, the Senate and the President who refuse to ask the crucial question, how do we make sure more dangerous people go to jail and less dangerous people receive help before committing crimes? A silver lining in these bleak times for leftists is that the impatient leftists will have to choose between AOC and Christian Gonzalez or Nomiki. They only need to sit back and watch us destroy ourselves, but they're not known for having impulse control. And finally, a quick reminder that Elvis jokes give bad people permission to punch down. Thank you. What kind of jokes? Elvis jokes, like... Ableist jokes? One of people for having OCD or being hoarders or being fat, etc. Right. But if I can't stop making those jokes, doesn't that make doesn't that give me permission to make the jokes? If I have a compulsion to doesn't make, if I have a compulsion, to, hang on for one second, Rodrigo, hang on. To make fun of conservatives that aren't hang on, Rodrigo, Rodrigo, you come on this show and you always try to get me canceled. I'm at, you're saying that I can't, that, that making fun of people with OCD is punching down. And I'm telling you, if I have a compulsion to make fun of people with OCD, then don't I have permission to make OCD jokes. In what universe? What? It, it, because if you're, if you're one of the people that you're making fun of, it's okay. You're saying I should stop making fun of people with OCD. And if I can't stop doing that, that means I have OCD, which in turn gives me permission to make those jokes. I think you've lost the argument, Rodrigo. No, that means you're making fun not only of yourself, but of an entire class of people. Right. Did I make any, did I make any OCD? Did I make OCD jokes? 
you make fun of lots of people who happen to be one thing on top of being horrible conservatives. Right. And don't you think, because I know how cruel conservatives are. I've worked for a couple. They hit below the belt. They never think we'll go as low as they do. And when you do go as low as they do, they really get upset. Why shouldn't you go after right-wing conservatives? Why shouldn't you fat shame Chris Christie? Why shouldn't you out... It helps to fat shame Chris Christie when he's a horrible politician. He... But if it hurts his feelings, if I make a joke, I say something, uh, Chris Christie should worry less about gun control and more about pastry gun control. If he hears that joke and it hurts his feelings, because that's the joke he would make at a fat person's expense if he weren't morbidly obese. So why wouldn't I want to hurt Chris Christie's feelings? What's wrong with that? Why can't you... Court Chris Christie's feelings without making everyone who is overweight feel bad about themselves. Well, that shouldn't make everyone feel bad about themselves. My purpose is to hurt Chris Christie's feelings. Aren't you supposed to be a great comedic writer? Yes. Can't you find ways to make fun of Chris Christie without making fun of entire classes of people? But I'm not making fun of an entire class of people. I'm weaponizing my humor to try to make Chris Christie cry. Am I making fun of... I'm not making fun of fat people. I'm, making, I'm trying to hurt Chris Christie. I'm trying to give him shame and embarrassment so he'll never show his face in public again. Uh, am I make, is it wrong to, make, to point out that Lindsey Graham is a closeted homosexual? Am I making fun of closeted homosexuals? Or am I, am I making fun of... Republican men who can't deal with their sexuality and are therefore dangerous to the community. Is it wrong to make fun of Lindsey Graham for being a closeted homosexual? It might help your point when he's trying to grow to legislate gay or trans people out of existence, but you bring it up in regards to things like gun control, which I don't see the relevance or how The relevance helps. is that Lindsey Graham is psychotic. He's living a lie. He's lying to his voters. He's lying to himself about his sexuality. And that destroys a man's brain. And he's a Republican. And people who are Republican are psychotic. Chris Christie is living a lie. He's morbidly obese, and he tells ordinary Americans to control 
their appetite to live within their means when he himself can't live within his means. When he himself cannot practice self-restraint, he says to others, do what I can't do. His obesity is germane to the conversation. Chris Christie is a, a pile of rage. He is a pile of rage. He had uh, a bariatric surgery and he's eaten through it. He is consumed by anger and rage. And when he's not taking it out on his children, you know he's verbally abusive towards his wife and children. He takes it out on the weak. He takes it out on teachers' unions. He takes it out on people on the left who want Medicare for all. A man who eats through his bariatric surgery is filled, is consumed with self-loathing, with hatred for others. He is stuffing his face to punish himself. Chris Christie's obesity is germane to the conversation. What he does to his body, he's doing to the rest of us. To, to pretend that nobody farted in the elevator is a disservice to everybody on the elevator. Is it really that hard to make fun of how horrible uh, Chris Christie and Lindsey Graham are? Uh, and beyond, before I get distracted again, uh, this kind of thing gets people... Uh, Used to asking, hey, what's this guy's deal? Aside from being a horrible politician, does he have OCD? Is he a hoarder? And then you have to provide an explanation for why 400 Congress people and almost a hundred senators are also horrible people. Like, uh, for example, Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins, uh, are you going to explain what's wrong with them aside from having horrible politics? If you are a despicable person, verbally all gloves are off. I've been around these despicable people enough. They think we won't go low. Michelle Obama is wrong when she says when they go low, we go high. I say when, or at least on this show, when they go low, I go lower. Verbally. For example, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, is a paraplegic. And I've talked about this on the show. Now, I haven't made fun of his being paraplegic. I wouldn't do that. But I have pointed out that you cannot separate his condition from his politics. It is important to talk about the fact that Greg Abbott is a paraplegic who can't control his own body, but is trying to control the bodies of all the women in Texas. It is, it is germane to the conversation that Greg Abbott is a paraplegic whose back was snapped by a, a tree branch when he was jogging 
in the early 80s. He's against tort reform. However, he wasn't against tort reform when it came to suing the people who owned the tree that fell on his back, and he's collected $6 million so far because of tort law. Greg Abbott is a paraplegic who, as attorney general, fought tooth and nail to block uh, implementation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Greg Abbott is a paraplegic who has passed laws that make it harder, not easier, for people in wheelchairs to vote. So his being in a wheelchair is germane to the conversation. Okay. Uh, Dead Santis, or as his friends know him, Ron DeSantis, has basically the same politics. Uh, and he's getting, and, and Ron DeSantis is getting fat. Ron DeSantis is getting fat, and if it will hurt his feelings, calling him fat, I will do that. I'm not making fun of fat people. I'm trying to hurt the feelings of bullies, of bullies who think our side won't go as low as they do. You know what? I'm not running for office. I have a small little podcast. I'm not important. But there has to be some people on the left who are as vile as everybody on the right. I think you, 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 I don't think you need to be polite to fascists. Hitler had one testicle. He woke up every morning and said, he woke up every morning and said, spectacle, testicle, wallet, and watch. Because he had one testicle. Uh, Am I making fun of people who have one testicle or am I trying to humiliate? Yes. That's 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 making fun of people who've had testicular cancer. Also, yes, it is. It is. It's making fun of Adolf Hitler. It's hitting him literally below the belt. Can't you figure out how to make Hitler jokes? Without talking about his testicles. Here's the point. You're absolutely right, and I'm wrong. I mean that. You're right. But I want to hurt bullies, and I think that's the best way. I think sometimes with bullies, you give them, you get, you go, you give them right back what they put out. Chris Christie, if he were thin would torture fat people. And you know why Chris Christie became Trump's lapdog? And you know why Lindsey Graham became Trump's lapdog? Because they were terrified that Donald Trump, Chris, uh, Chris Christie is terrified that Donald Trump would call him a fatty. And Lindsey Graham is terrified that Donald Trump would make fun of Lindsey Graham for being gay. 
That's how Donald Trump controls these people. He gave out Lindsey Graham's home phone number on the campaign trail in 2016. And that was a message to to Lindsey Graham. You want me to tell more about you? I will. And Lindsey Graham crawled into his lap. And Chris Christie would have crawled into Trump's lap, but he would have crushed him. You're right. You're absolutely right. I'm probably hurting the feelings of uh, the morbidly obese. You're probably right. But it's more important that I really hurt the feelings of Chris Christie and Lindsey Graham. What about making fun of Donald Trump's toupee? Am I, is, 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 people is, is, in your audience more likely to be morbidly obese or have OCD or is Chris Christie more likely to be listening to you? Chris Christie isn't going to listen to me. He's not listening. I'm not, I have, I don't have an audience, but, but, you know, I want to, I want to lash out at him. What about making fun of Trump's uh, toupee? Is that fair? What about making fun of Joe Biden's hair transplants? Can you, for example, make fun of cowardly, always for sale, Mike Pence without uh, personal attacks? That he's a clo- that Mike Pence is a closeted homosexual. We got it. I was working on a show, and some people objected to our wanting to do a sketch that portrayed Mike Pence as a closeted homosexual. They said it was unfair to closeted homosexuals. I said, I have nothing against closeted homosexuals. I have something against closeted homosexuals who beat up gay people. Can you accept the challenge of making fun of conservatives without making fun of how they look? You know what? I will stop. Here's the challenge. Chris Christie, I know you're watching. I will stop calling you fat. That will be my challenge. If you can meet my challenge, and that is to live on food stamps for a month. If if Chris Christie, who wants to cut food stamps, uh, if he could live uh, for a month on what uh, a man his age would be given in food stamps, if he can live a month on food stamps without ch- uh, cheating, I, I will stop uh, making fun of his... Uh, planetary obesity. Is that fair? No, because <laughs> you're talking about, hey, I'll stop making fun, making jokes about fat people if this one fat guy survives on food stands for a month. It's not, uh, it's apples and oranges. 
that's apples and oranges are two things that have never touched Chris Christie's lips. He probably eats them for photo ops or something. All right. I have a little podcast. You can't get me canceled because there's nothing to cancel me from. It's over for me, Rodrigo. Each week you come on here and try to get me canceled. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares. You can't cancel somebody who nobody cares about. I've seen leftists with smaller audiences than yours get canceled. Uh, Who? How many people does uh, Matt Binder have? Has he been canceled? He monetized for a month because of right-wing complaints a few months ago. What did he say? He didn't say anything. There was a coordinated campaign to try to get rid of him. How can you get rid of somebody? Because many leftists uh, depend on their streaming income to survive and not get a different job. Right. So, so people try to get him. Someone who does DoorDash who was raising money for a tooth extraction a few months ago. Who was raising money for a tooth extraction? A leftist who works for a living, uh, driving people and doing DoorDash. He, uh, streaming was his second job, but he was still trying to fundraise for a tooth extraction. Right. And what's wrong with that? If he got canceled, he would have to get a fair job instead of doing podcasting. I see, but but oh, I thought he got canceled because he was raising money for a tooth extraction. No, no, no. no. What what was their complaint? What did he say that was so cancelable? There doesn't have to be something cancelable for uh, right-wingers or Destiny fans to send complaints, thousands of complaints at the same time. Did you say Destiny fans? Yes, they do it often in Twitch. They try to get people cancelled. Yes. I thought Destiny was a, a liberal, a lefty. I mean, he's a liberal in the same way that Rob Canna is a liberal. Like who's a, who? Who's a liberal? Like who? Rob Canna. Rob Canna. All right. All right. What little I've seen of Destiny, I thought I was very impressed. Very. Very articulate, very smart. Am I wrong? 
history left of neo-nazis but he's uh, where would I put him uh, he's probably to the right of uh, Rokana right I don't know these guys who can play video games and host the show at the same time I, I watch a little of that and I go Wow, that's a whole other skill set. Uh, interesting. All right, Rod, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm taking the week off. I heard. Yeah, but we'll still do, we'll still do uh, office hours. Hey, now let me ask you a question, because you're so hypercritical of the United States. Uh, if, you, if you hate America so much, why don't you leave? I'm already not there. Oh, that's right. You live in Mexico. Uh, you were going over American prison numbers. Uh, I have a question for you down in Mexico. I read somewhere okay. that 100% of prisoners in Mexico are Mexican. Is that correct? We probably have a few... 100,000 South and Central Americans. But but most of your prisoners are Mexican. And you're complaining about American prisons? We don't have as nearly as many Mexican prisoners as Mexico. Huh? Uh, I've heard something similar said about... Uh, Ireland, but Mexico is pretty big. I won the argument, and I'm canceling you. Now you get canceled. How do you like that? Didn't you cancel me last episode when you said, hey, I'm too sleepy, and then you rambled on for a few minutes? Yeah, I, I was, uh, I, yeah, I was sleepy. Yeah. All right, Rod. I'll see you uh, tomorrow night for office hours. Are you teaching? I'm not, but our friend uh, Godcat at 3.30 p.m. is talking about land back and indigenous rights, I believe. Good. On Saturday. All right. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you. Poor Chad lost his left hand. That's too bad. Safety first, folks. Well, Dave and PA, thank you. And Chad? Thank you, Dave. How do people stay at your bed and breakfast? Oh, they can go to uh, Birdie's Country Cottage, uh, Tiny URL. Birdie's Country Cottage, or just go to uh, Airbnb, look up uh, Small Farm Retreat. It's in Millerton, Pennsylvania. Uh, two bedrooms, queen beds, beautiful view. Uh, you'll have the valley to yourself. It's beautiful. Beautiful time of year here. Wow. All right. Thank you, Dave. I'll see you tomorrow night. Thank you.
Chad, yeah, you will. we're going to get you a hook. Chad needs a hook. I think we need a hook for Chad. And a peg leg while we're at it. And a peg leg. It's not, e- it's not I'm telling you, this is a dangerous job. That's our show. I am going to take a week off. Let me just talk about this for a second. I haven't had a week off from this show in years, it, way before we started doing it on office hours. Uh, the show changed during COVID. We started doing it live on Zoom, and then we started doing it live on YouTube in September of 2020. This show has been produced twice a week since COVID started, and I haven't missed a single episode, and I haven't uh, missed any of office hours. I will never miss office hours. There's a fly. But I, I really need to take a week off because I have to go to Washington, D.C. and make some money. There's a fly buzzing around me. Uh, and I think I might hurt someone if I don't take some time off. Uh, I don't know how to take time off. I don't know how to relax. I don't know how to do anything other than uh, write bad jokes, read, get angry, and uh, do do this show and just be angry. So uh, I'm going to try to take a couple of days where I, I do nothing. And it's not going to be easy. I don't wish that on anybody. This is not a work ethic. It's total inability to deal with anything other than work. You find solace in work. Uh, it's not healthy. And, uh, and I'm a limited, I'm limited as a human being because of that. Uh, so, uh, and as a leftist, uh, I owe it to the movement not to be a workaholic. Uh, Arbecht is not Fry. Arbecht mock Fry. Work is not freedom. So uh, I'm going to work at actually doing something that has nothing to do with work. Uh, so that that's what I'm going to try to do. Although I'll be working a little in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm neurotic. I'm going to say this at the end of the show. Uh, I fear that I take a week off and I will lose my entire audience that I've built. That's my fear that I'm going to go away for a week and you won't be here when I come back. That is, uh, so but I'm going to risk it. I, uh, I'm going to take a week off. There'll be no best ofs. I considered guest hosts, uh, but we don't have the equipment yet to have people hosting the show in different cities and live streaming it and turning it into a podcast. 
I'm going to be spending a lot of time and a lot of money between now and September on improving the the uh, the, the technical parts of this show. Uh, I want to make this look and sound a little bit better. That is my goal for the next three months when I come back. New camera, new computer, uh, better internet, all the things that make, uh, that get rid of the distractions. Bad sound, bad video is a distraction, and I want you to focus only on the, the content. We had a meeting yesterday talking about just the technical issues, and I feel sometimes uh, I'm wearing a, a finely tailored suit covered in pee. That's how, you know, you can have a, a suit from Savile Row, and it fits like a glove, but if you have a big pee stain all over your lap, nobody's going to notice how well the suit fits. I sometimes feel with this show, and maybe I'm hypercritical, I sometimes watch and listen to the show and I see technical problems and I feel like my guests are a finely tailored Savile Row suit and I've dropped a big pee stain on them by not improving the audio and the video. So I'm going to be working harder on some technical stuff. This show is put together by the following people. And if you've noticed that the show has gotten better, it's mostly because of these people. And they are, in no particular order, they are Professor Jonathan Bick, Hannah Feldman, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Grace Jackson, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and of course, Dan Frankenberger. I don't know if I left anybody out. I kind of mix the names up in my head and try to get it right to test my cognitive uh, ability. Where do I send the cash? Somebody wants to send the cash. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the uh, donate button. We accept all major credit cards. We had a, a, a pretty good pledge break, uh, pledge episode. Thank you for that. And thank you to everybody who donated. Thank you to people who became monthly subscribers over on my website or through Patreon, which is slowly growing. Uh, thank you for people who uh, do the super chats on YouTube. I looked at my one sheet and I don't think there was anybody to thank on YouTube for the uh, super chats. Hang, let me just check. Um, but uh, when you donate, all the money gets poured back into the show. I deficit finance this. So, yes, it's a great show. It's a nice little show with a great group of people. And I thank everybody who comes uh, to the virtual studio audience. Thank you for showing up. I can't remember what it was like doing this show without you. So thank you for being in our virtual studio audience, asking questions, uh, keeping me honest, 
annoying me, trying to get me canceled. If you would like to join our virtual studio audience, go to my website, hit attend a live taping. You'll get a link. And I invite you all to come to office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I make myself available to all the listeners. Whatever your complaints, whatever you have to say to me, if you have Zoom, I'm available every Friday night from 8 till 9.30 Eastern. If you have complaints, suggestions, observations, as Prince Charles says, I'm all ears. I try to make myself available to all the listeners. And if you email me, I'm doing a better job at answering your questions. Go to my website, sign up for the newsletter. It's a great way to stay abreast of this show. So once again, thank you all. Uh, and please be here when I come back. Um, uh, thank you to Professor Cheryl Cashin. My apologies for the technical malfeasance uh, during that interview. Thank you to Scott Dickers, founder of The Onion. Jesus Christ, we had the founder of The Onion on today. What a great show. The Hershenfelds. Go pick up Ethan's book, please. Today is now by his alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Thank you. Uh, go buy that book and stream Thug Thug Jew on YouTube. Thank you to Emil Guillermo and his wife, Kathy Guillermo. Donate to PETA. They're right and you're wrong. People for the ethical treatment of animals. PETA is right and you're wrong. Kathy Guillermo, Senior Vice President in the Laboratory Investigations Department over at PETA. Support PETA. Thank you, Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuck. Thank you to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of his sermons, writings, and interviews. And Kate Vlatch, his special guest, who talked about fake abortion clinics. Um, thank you, professors and Marianne. Thank you, uh, to uh, Professor Ann Lee, reader over at the Daily Co's, Annie Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, we'll see him Friday night teaching the Twilight Zone, and then Saturday afternoon teaching the, uh, that was a fly. Uh, boy, I'm in such a rage right now that I think killing that fly would solve all my problems. Even though I just endorsed PETA and I'm a vegan and I don't want to hurt anything, I do want to hurt that fly. I'm being honest. I'd like to hurt the fly. I think it would calm me down. Professor Marianne Cummings is in Thailand. Uh, follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, listen to Guerrilla History as well as the Mudgeless podcast. Thank you, Joe in Norway, for your delicious meal. 
Thank you, Dave and PA. Let's get Chad a hook. Thank you to Professor Harvey J.K. Pick up FDR on democracy. And thank you, Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America. That's it. I'll see you all in, what, a week, 10 days? I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of wool light and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. Sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket. I get a chill, I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender My attorney's number, in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light In case I have some visitors For breeze if I'm really stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I got my rabbi costume And my portable dark room My hair plug lotion
lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream. My Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list.